Jesus. Welcome to the mop-up for June 23rd, 2022. I'm David Feldman, barely coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 73 degrees and partly cloudy. Please sign up for my free newsletter. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. It comes out every Friday. It's the week in review. It also includes an invitation for office hours, which I host every Friday night starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, all you need is Zoom. Please stop by. The Virginia home of former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark was raided before dawn on Wednesday by federal agents looking for evidence in the role Clark played helping Donald Trump overturn the 2020 election. If you remember, Clark, in the waning days of the Trump administration, reportedly angled to get Trump to name him attorney general. In return, Clark reportedly promised Donald Trump that he would use the full weight of the Justice Department to overturn the 2020 elections. Last time I checked, that's against the law, and far worse than Watergate, where 40 Nixon staffers were eventually indicted and or jailed. On Wednesday, Clark was reportedly standing out on the street in his pajamas as the FBI ransacked his home. Attorney General Merrick Garland reportedly feels the pressure as Washington, D.C., uh, appears surprised by the number of Americans who, after watching the January 6 hearings, are now more predisposed towards the arrest of Donald Trump. Why is a former low-level Justice Department functionary like Clark now being targeted by the Justice Department? Days before the January 6 uprising, Trump was ready to fire acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen and replace him with Clark. But during a heated three-hour meeting with Rosen, Clark, and Trump, all in the same room, Trump backed down once acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen threatened the appointment of Clark would trigger mass resignations inside the Justice Department. Now, at that point, by law, the acting attorney general, Rosen, was obligated to report Trump and Clark to the FBI and hold a press conference announcing that the president of the United States is part of a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election. That would have prevented January 6th. Instead, acting Attorney General Rosen kept his job and his mouth shut. For that reason, he should be disbarred, if not arrested, as an accessory after the fact. Instead, today he testifies before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection as a conquering hero. The committee holds more hearings today where the focus is on Donald Trump's criminal conspiracy to pressure the Justice Department into claiming falsely that there was enough evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election to justify several state legislatures sending alternative slates of electors to Washington on January 6, when, as we all know, Congress certifies the results. There are men and women right now behind bars for far less. It was the responsibility of Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to report the crime 
of a president pressuring him and his Justice Department to help overthrow the government. The witnesses testifying today are Jeffrey A. Rosen, the former acting attorney general, Richard P. Donahue, the former acting deputy attorney general, and Stephen A. Engel, the former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, all of whom were derelict in their duty in failing to report a crime they not only witnessed, but were asked to be a part of. By not reporting the crime, by not reporting what so clearly by then was going to be a violent attempt to overthrow the United States government, they are now accessories after the fact. I dare anyone with a law degree, anyone who passed the bar, to challenge me on this. All Three of these men, Jeffrey Rosen, the former acting attorney general, Richard B. Donahue, the former acting deputy attorney general, and Stephen A. Engel, the former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, should have their law licenses taken away and then frog marched into the Washington, D.C. correctional facility. Today, during the hearings, they are expected to outline precisely how Donald Trump illegally tried to overthrow the election results, begging the important question, why didn't these three men immediately begin a criminal investigation of Donald Trump and Jeffrey Clark? Even a six-year-old knows this is illegal. Your acting attorney general Deputy Attorney General, Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel, the President of the United States calls you in and asks you to break the law, a big law, one of the most important laws on the books. He's asking you to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Donald Trump said to them, and I quote, don't worry about the evidence, just say there was election fraud and I'll take it from there. And all these three men did was refuse to help him. You don't get credit for coming forward now, a year and a half after the insurrection. You should, as I said, be disbarred. You should be arrested for accessory after the fact. You fail to report a crime. After the Nuremberg trials, the entire federal government was put on notice. It's not good enough to disobey an illegal order from the president or a superior. You are obligated, especially as the top officials in our Justice Department, to report that crime. Failure to do so will result in a criminal conviction. 2.5 million Americans behind bars, but no room at the inn for these three highly credentialed grifters. January 6 happened because three days after, three days before January 6, our acting attorney general, Jeffrey A. Rosen, failed to report that Donald Trump was trying to violently overthrow our elections. He is not a hero. He is a criminal. Jeffrey A. Rosen is not a hero. He is a criminal. The Justice Department by then knew what Trump was up to, and Jeffrey A. Rosen did nothing to stop it. Do you remember FBI Director James Comey? When Donald Trump ordered him not to investigate General Michael Flynn, 
Comey did what he was supposed to do and proceeded to investigate Donald Trump for being part of an illegal cover-up. That's what you do. It's your job. On February 14th, 2017, FBI Director James Comey met with President Donald Trump. It was one day after Trump had fired his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, after Michael Flynn was caught lying to the FBI about his illegal conversations with the Russian ambassador during the final days of the Obama administration. General Flynn pled guilty but was later pardoned by Trump in the waning days of his presidency. General Michael Flynn is a crazy Christian evangelical who has now sworn an oath to QAnon and has illegally lobbied on behalf of Turkey and Russia. President Obama warned Trump not to name Michael Flynn his national security advisor because Obama said he could not be trusted. Flynn was fired as national security advisor. The day after he was fired, back in 2017, during a meeting between FBI Director James Comey and Donald Trump, Trump asked Comey to go easy on Flynn. Comey immediately understood this was an illegal order. It was part of an illegal cover-up. And so FBI Director James Comey wrote a memo to his very own FBI and entered it into an ongoing investigation of Trump's attempt to cover up the crimes of Michael Flynn. That's what you do when you are given an illegal order, especially if you work in the Justice Department like Rosen, Donahue, and Engel all did. And they are testifying today. I want to know why they didn't immediately go to the FBI, why they didn't immediately hold a press conference to alert this country as to what Trump and Jeffrey Clark and Giuliani were up to. Now, we are told that our Justice Department is there to keep Americans and America safe. On the last show, I outlined how our police do such a piss-poor job preventing and solving crime. About 1% of all crimes are solved by our police. Now, here was a crime committed right in front of our acting attorney general, and he did nothing. And by doing nothing, he failed to prevent an even worse crime three days later, on January 6. Jeffrey Rosen, by the way, Harvard Law, the crackpot Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to replace Rosen as acting acting attorney general by overthrowing the election results, also a graduate of Harvard College. The three Justice Department officials testifying today did nothing to stop January 6. When Trump said he wanted to replace acting Attorney General Rosen with Clark, all these three men did was threaten to resign. And when Trump didn't fire them, they kept their mouths shut. They kept their jobs and their mouths shut. Real heroes real profiles and courage. Why is it so hard for the people who enforce the law to obey it? The federal government is littered with signs that read, if you see something, say something. Okay, guys, you go first. 
in Washington, D.C., it's not it's not if you see something, say something. It's if you see something, write a book, get paid millions for it. And then when it's too late, say something. John Bolton, the former national security advisor under Donald Trump. Mark Esper, the former secretary of defense under Donald Trump. The list goes on and on. Former Trump administration officials who refuse to say something unless there's money in it for them in a book. Why report a crime when you can write a book about that crime and make millions off of it? Well, in other news... Congress is poised to pass the most sweeping gun control legislation in decades. Possibly this could happen as soon as July 4th. 50 Senate Democrats, along with a filibuster proof 14 Republicans, appear to support the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which would forbid anyone from purchasing a gun if they have been accused or convicted of abusing an intimate partner. The law would still allow children under the age of 21 to purchase weapons, but it expands background checks into a three-day screening process looking for criminal and mental health issues. It would carry stricter penalties for what are called straw purchases, where individuals buy guns for those who cannot pass background checks. It would expand mental health treatment to those on Medicaid and in our public schools. And it would add an additional $300 million to fund the policing of our schools, which Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez warns is making it now too easy to arrest rather than properly discipline our school children. Now, one of the myths propagated by opponents of gun control is that these laws don't work. They often cite Chicago as an example of a city having the strictest gun control laws in the nation, but it's been turned into a notorious shooting gallery. Whenever you talk about gun control, the right will always bring up Chicago. And while this is an effective talking point used by Republicans, it's misleading and it's a lie. It's remarkable at how Fox and Republicans repeat the same lie over and over again until it's received wisdom that Chicago is proof positive that gun control laws don't work. It is a lie. Linda Kui, writing in the New York Times on May 27th, right after the NRA's Houston convention, where they mentioned Chicago more times than the musical, points out that, yes, Chicago does have the highest number of gun-related killings in the country, but that's only because it's the third largest city in America. What's important is Chicago's gun murder rate is 25 per 100,000, making it the 26th highest murder rate in America, not the first highest. You got that? Chicago's gun murder rate rate is 25 per 100,000. It is the 26th highest murder rate in America, not the first. Now, for a city as diverse and burdened by gangs, 26 is somewhat impressive. More importantly, the cities with the highest gun murder rate, those cities are Jackson, Mississippi, Gary, Indiana, and St. Louis, Missouri. 
these top three cities have a gun homicide rate twice that of Chicago's and more importantly, have much more lenient laws when it comes to guns. The talking point should not be that Chicago is proof that gun control doesn't work. The talking point is compared to the top three gun homicide cities, Jackson, Gary, and St. Louis, gun control does work. Here's a talking point that should stop the GOP in their tracks. Guns kill more people through suicide than homicide, and the leading instrument in suicide is far and away guns. The states with the strictest gun control laws are Illinois, California, New York, and New Jersey, and they have the lowest suicide rates in America. Think about that. New Jersey has one of the lowest suicide rates in America because the people, the government in New Jersey is smart enough to know that if you live in Jersey, you're gonna wanna use a gun on yourself. So you better make it hard to get a gun in New Jersey. Illinois, that's where Chicago is. It has one of the lowest suicide rates in America because it's harder to get a gun in Illinois, Chicago. It's harder to get a gun there. So they have among the lowest suicide rates in America. Where are the highest suicide rates? The states with the most permissive gun laws. It's quite fascinating. If you look at the Northeast, you see very strict gun laws and very low suicide rates, except for Vermont, where gun laws are not so strict. Remember Bernie Sanders from Vermont and his record on guns is problematic. If you remember in 1993, Bernie Sanders voted against the Brady Bill. He later voted to protect gun manufacturers from lawsuits. He did vote for the assault weapons ban, and for the past 15 years, Bernie has come down hard on guns. But to please his pro-gun constituents in Vermont, he has not been as anti-gun as he should be, which is why Vermont's suicide rate is the outlier in the Northeast. It is among the highest in America. It is the highest in the Northeast because it has the most lenient gun laws in the Northeast. At the NRA convention in Houston last month, Senator Ted Cruz, a Harvard Law School graduate, lied when he said Chicago proves gun control laws don't work because he lied. Chicago has banned handguns and yet the shootings persist. Ted Cruz knows this is a lie because nearly 10 years ago, the Supreme Court's Heller decision made it unconstitutional for a city like Chicago to ban handguns. He knows this, he lies nonetheless. About 10 years ago, the state of Illinois, their, its ban on carrying a concealed weapon was overturned by the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. So Chicago, doesn't have the toughest gun control laws in the country because for more than a decade, our Supreme Court has stripped Chicago of its ability to control the sales of guns. More guns mean more crime means more murder. And guns, of course, take away our freedom. Well, 
In a Supreme Court ruling today, New York City's gun laws were voided, and so were my pants. Today, the Supreme Court struck down a New York law that limits the rights of citizens to carry guns with them wherever they go. Because the first thing that comes to mind during a sweltering New York City summer reeking of sweat and garlic is, you know what the subway car needs? More Glocks. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority that Americans should have the right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. Kind of makes sense, considering so many Americans no longer have a home. Clarence Thomas delivered the majority opinion, making him the biggest hypocrite on gun control. Clarence Thomas, of all people, is one of America's biggest practitioners of gun control, considering he's never once turned one on his wife, Ginny. So far this year, there have been almost 300 mass shootings. But now, now that the Supreme Court has allowed all Americans to carry guns wherever you want to go, I guess we won't need to be paying for Brett Kavanaugh's round-the-clock security detail. He's free to carry a gun. He's perfectly safe. Perfectly, perfectly safe. Money saved. Get rid of his security detail. Well, if the Supreme Court's solution to guns is more guns then the solution to this Supreme Court is more justices. It's time to start packing, not weapons, the court. It's time to start packing the court. By the way, our court also today ruled in favor of a Georgia death row inmate who, instead of lethal injection, would like to die by firing squad. I'm no doctor, but I'm pretty sure a firing squad is lethal injection. This court will rule in favor of anything that involves guns. I honestly believe Republicans would keep abortion legal if we could somehow figure out how to perform one using an AR-15. Between the Heller decision and now today's ruling, the Supreme Court has proven itself to be the most pro-gun court in decades. Let's talk about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. You remember him. A few years back, he officiated Rush Limbaugh's last marriage. Man, is it hot in here. Judge Clarence Thomas. He is best friends with his former law clerk, John Eastman, the unhinged architect of Donald Trump's criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. Also best friends with John Eastman is the equally unhinged wife of Clarence Thomas, Ginny, who is now being forced to testify before the January 6th committee because she exchanged hundreds of texts and emails with John Eastman in the lead up to January 6th. Eastman and Ginny Thomas illegally conspired with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and lobbied illegally Arizona lawmakers to send their own slate of electors to Washington on January 6. This is illegal. It is part of a criminal conspiracy. Ginny Thomas, 
and her husband's former law clerk, John Eastman, belong in jail. When the January 6th committee subpoenaed the White House last year for all the records regarding the lead up to January 6th, the Supreme Court ruled that the committee could have all the evidence. It was a unanimous ruling, except for one justice. One justice ruled against turning over the evidence. That would be Ginny Thomas's husband, Clarence Thomas, which makes no sense to me because if I were married to Ginny Thomas, the first thing I would do was hand over any evidence I could to get her locked up and out of my house. The fact that Clarence Thomas is still married to this nut job is dispositive proof that he lacks the compos mentis to serve on the Supreme Court, thereby marking the second time this year I've used the term compos mentis, I deserve a cookie. Clarence Thomas knew that if the texts between Eastman, Meadows, and his wife, Ginny, fell into the hands of the committee, Ginny Thomas would be called to testify if not prosecuted. This is not normal. But we know by now nothing about Clarence and Ginny is normal or legal. Ginny Thomas, according to The New Yorker, after flunking the bar exam, joined LifeSpring, a cult that forced her to strip naked as she got fat shamed by the fellow members of the cult. Ginny Thomas told the Washington Post back in 1991 that she had to go into hiding to escape LifeSpring. And then she found a new cult, one that's less a danger to her than it is to our democracy. And by that, I mean the Republican Party. These are not bright people. They sit on the Supreme Court, not because they follow the law. They are there because they follow the rules. Clarence Thomas should resign. We all know he lied about Anita Hill. Like the Kavanaugh hearings, there were plenty of other women who were willing to come forward, but the Judiciary Committee had no interest in hearing from them. We know Brett Kavanaugh was guilty. We know Clarence Thomas lied under oath. These are sick, sick people, which is why their solution to gun violence is more gun violence. I have read that 1% of the general population can be classified as psychopaths. That means out of 100 Americans, one of us is a psychopath. That would be the, the top 1%. What are the traits of a psychopath? poor judgment, and a failure to learn from previous experience. You know, failing to learn from previous experience, poor judgment, like knowing that there's more than one mass shooting each day, but still ruling today that Americans should be allowed to carry weapons with them wherever they go. I'm not saying Clarence Thomas is a psychopath. I'm saying his wife, Ginny Thomas, is a psychopath. Clarence Thomas is merely suffering from a delusional disorder by remaining married to her. So this is why I voted for Biden. And it's why I voted for Hillary. 
I don't like Biden. I don't like Hillary. I don't trust them. They are horrible, horrible people, but not as horrible as these Republicans. I voted for these miscreants because they pick our Supreme Court. And while their Supreme Court picks are going to be bad, they're not half as bad as Trump's or Bush's or Cotton's or Ted Cruz's or whatever half-baked paranoid schizophrenic the Republicans choose to run for president in 2024. Now, look, I'm a progressive and I want progress, but I also realize that you can't move forward when someone is pushing you backwards. Republicans aren't just preventing new ideas. They are destroying old ones. You can't institute new and better progressive laws without protecting the ones already on the books. When it comes to playing offense, I want Medicare for all, the PRO Act, the assault weapons ban, the new Green Deal, free tuition at all public universities, universal preschool. I want to defund the police for the sole purpose of making sure the police have one job, preventing and solving crime. And I also want a hike in the minimum wage. And I blame the Democrats for not giving us that. That is our offense. At the same time, we need to play defense. We need to keep the stuff we gained. And the Republicans are very quickly taking away everything our grandparents fought for, from FDR's New Deal to LBJ's Great Society to whatever bullshit Clinton and Obama gave us. I am fully aware that Joe Biden and Hillary want to cut and privatize Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I am fully aware of that. But at least when Hillary and Biden are picking our justices, we have a fighting chance to stay on offense. We are precipitously close to losing abortion, voter rights, and an administrative state that can regulate business, especially the businesses that are destroying our planet. I get it. The Democrats are despicable. They are. But no Donald Trump, no Gorsuch. No Donald Trump, no Kavanaugh. No Donald Trump, no Amy Coney Barrett. That means a completely different court. Say you want, say what you want about the deplorable Hillary Clinton. Had Hillary won, Roe v. Wade would not be within hours of ending up on the chopping block. The Supreme Court would not be ruling today in favor of gun manufacturers over school children. So now, thanks to Trump being our president, not Hillary, everyone in my neighborhood can carry a gun. Of course, New York is the city that never sleeps. Who can sleep with all those guns going off? Well, the great thing about this ruling today is I am no longer an agoraphobic. It cured me. I am no longer a shut-in. Today's ruling cured me. Thanks to Clarence Thomas's ruling, anyone who steps outside their New York City apartment, they should be placed in the 36-hour psychiatric hold. Not me. Not me. Trust me. 
Here in New York City, we're only days away from people hailing cabs by blowing the tires out. I am never leaving my apartment again because I'm perfectly sane. And I would like to know how many of the justices ruling for the majority in this decision, how many of them own stock in all these companies like Facebook, Microsoft and Apple, which are quickly transitioning their business model over to the metaverse. 400 million guns in America and counting. Pretty soon, nobody is leaving their home in America. They're all going to be putting on their virtual reality goggles and staying put. And this ruling today makes that happen much sooner than later. Put your money into virtual reality because Republicans are making actual reality some kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland that would give Hieronymus Bosch the creeps. And yes, I worked for Dennis Miller for 10 years. New York Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, a Democrat, a Democrat, said she is thinking of convening a special session of New York State Legislature to pass a new gun control law that will fit within the court's new and narrow ruling. There's always a distinct possibility that no matter what she gets passed, this court will overrule that. So apparently the Federalist Society, which picks Republican justices, the Federalist Society believes in states' rights, except when the states want to regulate guns. Then the rights of gun manufacturers trump the rights of the state. In other words, if you believe in states' rights, you believe that the states are only entitled to the rights that you want them to have. It's almost as though the Republicans are willing to wrap their entire agenda in whatever intellectual and legal heft is necessary to further their own political and financial agenda. This is a Supreme Court of radical extremists who want you dead. Let me repeat. This is not hyperbole. This is a Supreme Court of radical extremists who want you dead. They have stripped Obamacare of practically all its muscle. They continue to strip EPA laws that are there to protect us from climate catastrophe. And now, after Buffalo, after Uvalde, they want more, not fewer, guns in the hands of psychopaths. I am utterly convinced the only reason Republicans insist on calling themselves pro-life is so they don't have to save one. No reasonable mind could possibly look at the recent racially charged massacre in Buffalo, where a retired police officer working as a security guard was shot to death. No reasonable mind could look at Uvalde, Texas, where close to 100 police officers from six separate agencies were too terrified, where they waited outside a door while one kid shot up a classroom of children with an AR-15. No reasonable mind could conclude that the solution to all this carnage is more guns. 
But that's who we are becoming. That's who America is becoming because of Republicans and because of the Supreme Court. We are a nation at peace, but we can't stop spending $1 trillion a year on war. From weapons manufacturers to movies like Top Gun to video games, this is an economy that profits off our orgiastic delight in weapons. We send $60 billion worth of weapons to Ukraine without sending a single peace overture to Russia. We flood Ukraine with guns, with no no oversight, no inspector general. We have no idea where those weapons will end up, nor do we care. If those weapons end up in the hands of Russians or terrorists, then we just make more. We are an increasingly isolated and lonely people because we, we reward violence and mock those who call for peace. America's solution to violent crime is more violence, especially in our jails and prisoners in prisons. Football is our national pastime, a game that prizes violence, violence towards others and to ourselves. The NFL's Tony Siragusa ate himself to death this week at the age of 55. On the very same day, Baltimore Ravens linebacker Jalon Ferguson died mysteriously at the age of 26. Marion Barber III, former Dallas Cowboy, on June 1st, found dead at the age of 38 under mysterious circumstances in his Texas apartment. Shane Olivier played for the San Diego Chargers until he was sidelined by his addiction to painkillers. He died on March 3rd at the age of 40. Cause unknown. Wide receiver DeMarlo Belcher, formerly with the Indiana Hoosiers, found dead in his car on February 15th, 2022, at the age of 33, after overdosing on fentanyl and cocaine. Junior Chiave played with the Kansas City Chiefs, found dead at the age of 43 earlier this year inside his cell at the U.S. Penitentiary at Leavenworth, awaiting trial. Cause of death? unknown. The list of football players dying young goes on and on and on. How many football players arrested for sexual assault? This week, the House Oversight Committee held hearings that revealed Washington Commander's owner Daniel Snyder oversaw an assembly line of sexual assaults that he tried to cover up by hiring private investigators to intimidate the victims into remaining silent. We know the underbelly of pro football is a rape culture that cherishes violence against women. This week, we read about Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson, who's been accused of sexual harassment and assault by at least 24 women. This comes as no surprise. It's the nature of the game because it's the nature of the country that plays it. We don't put up with this violence, we celebrate it. We know that pro football causes severe and permanent brain damage. We've known that for more than a decade. A recent study of autopsies conducted on football players revealed 99% of NFL players showed some degree of chronic traumatic 
encephalopathy in their brains, otherwise known as CTE. We know they can't make a helmet strong enough to prevent the onset of CTE, which causes these players to turn violent and suicidal. CTE causes the early onset of dementia and physical paralysis. How many football players end up as wounded warriors before they even make it to 50? And yet, Football remains more popular than ever. We know lives are ruined every Sunday on the field, which is why Americans love it even more. We are a violent culture. Our movies, our music, our sports, our video games, and most importantly, our relationships are steeped in the threat of violence. And yet... The Republicans tell us it's all about personal choice, that young people, young adults, regular adults should discover all by themselves where the line is between virtual and actual violence. But it's not working. We are the most violent country in the industrialized world. Too many of us don't know where that line is because our culture keeps demanding we cross it. Our culture keeps rewarding us for crossing it because violence is prized in America. It's prized in our sports, in our movies, in our video games, in our music. It's prized all the way up to the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh had several credible rape and sexual assault charges against him that were conveniently ignored by our FBI and the Senate Judiciary Committee. But those charges did not have to surface. We didn't need to hear those charges. We already knew who Brett Kavanaugh was, and he was appointed anyway, not in spite of his violent demeanor, because of it. In a sane and rational country, Brett Kavanaugh automatically disqualified himself from sitting on the highest court by the way he answered those charges of drinking to excess under oath. He was a volcano of red-faced vitriol, spewing vomitous contempt at female senators like Amy Klobuchar, who dared to ask if he ever drank to the point of blacking out. When Brett Kavanaugh's white male privilege was challenged in a menacing tone that suggested a physical price would be exacted had that question been asked in private, he answered belligerently, you're asking about blackout? I don't know. Have you? That response was celebrated by the right. Have you? I should mention that he essentially said he drinks to excess. If you're asked, do you drink to the point of blacking out? And your answer is, I don't know. The answer is, you do drink to excess. You do drink till you black out. And this, who's, who, this is who sits on our court. He is not a learned scholar. These are not learned scholars that Trump picked. They're, they're angry, malevolent, malevolent finger puppets of the dark money, anti-democratic, fossil fuel and Wall Street overseers who put them on the court. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett has a third rate judicial temperament at best. 
She served as one of the leaders of People of Praise, an Indiana-based religious group, a communal organization of Christian crackpots that live on top of one another, literally live on top of one another. According to The Guardian, People of Praise would chain children as young as three and five to a crib and then force them to watch sexual acts performed by the People of Praise's religious leaders. Four other members of the People of Praise have stepped forward claiming sexual abuse, all of which went on while Amy Coney Barrett and her husband were living there. This is not normal. These are sick people and they are in charge. Countries go insane. Insanity is contagious. We have a Republic, Republican Party of extremists, radical extremists who have now taken over the Supreme Court. Like I said, the Supreme Court overturned today a New York City law that forbids people from carrying guns to places like Yankee Stadium, Times Square, or a concert at Madison Square Garden. This court has been taken over by radical extremists who want us dead. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, during hearings on this case, remarked that the Second Amendment guarantees everyone the right to own a weapon and that the Second Amendment doesn't restrict that ownership to the home. Brett Kavanaugh says people should be able to carry a gun wherever they want. Armed guards are now stationed outside Justice Kavanaugh's home at the expense of taxpayers because a 26-year-old crackpot from California allegedly decided to carry his gun out of his home and bring it into Justice Kavanaugh's home to, I won't say the words. One would think owning a gun would make Justice Kavanaugh and his family feel safe, right? Someone is threatening your life, you buy a gun, problem, problem solved. That's why we have a Second Amendment, so we can all protect ourselves, right, Justice Kavanaugh? But no, when Justice Kavanaugh's life is threatened with a gun, he requires around-the-clock security detail. He requires that Congress pass sweeping new legislation to protect the lives of our Supreme Court justices when the Supreme Court justices can't return the favor by passing laws that protect us from 26-year-old crackpots with a gun. Rules for thee, but not for me. Rules for thee, but not for me. You would think a Supreme Court terrified right now of getting assassinated with, would think, you know, maybe we need to get these guns off the street. But these, these radical extremists on our court, their answer is more guns and more police. More guns and more police, because the solution for these radical extremists is always more guns and more police. And yet the reason for guns, they say, is to prevent a police state. This is a Supreme Court. This is a, a, re a Republican Party of radical extremists who are stupid. 
I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. Subscribe to my newsletter, and uh, please. And uh, we have office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. We had a late start. We're, we're 15 minutes uh, late. We had technical problems, but uh, I'm going to uh, take a quick break, gather what's left of my thoughts, and we will continue the show. David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to my newsletter. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bello novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket in case I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number, in case I want to change my gender, I'm traveling light. In case I have some visitors For breeze if my room is stinky A Polaroid in case I get kinky My Jesus bobblehead And my Star Wars bedspread I'm traveling light I 
I've got my rabbi costume in my portable dark room. My hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream. My Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you. I wish I was Professor Mike Steinel. I really do. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please subscribe to my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes an invitation for office hours. All you need is Zoom. We start Friday nights at 8 p.m. I'm there for the first 90 minutes. Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, the first 90 minutes. I talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's an opportunity for me to meet the listeners and for the listeners to meet other listeners as well as me. And then we turn it over to this growing community. If you're watching us right now on YouTube, by the way, we have a YouTube channel that's slowly growing. If you're watching us right now on YouTube and you'd like to join us in our virtual studio audience, go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now, hit pay-per-view, doesn't cost you anything, just says pay-per-view, and it'll take you right into our virtual studio audience, our Zoom room, where you can participate in our in our gated community of miscreants, rebels, and ne'er-do-wells, and you get to ask our guests questions, which we will be doing at the end of each interview in the Q&A. Dan, thank you for your help. I appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate it. Uh, so has Professor uh, Barak showed up yet? Um, not yet. I did do an email blast to everyone saying we were running 15 minutes. Ah, so right. And so I plowed through. That's okay. I, could, I need to calm down anyway. Why don't you turn um, your... some super chats you could talk about. Let, well, why don't you turn your video on? Why don't you do that? And there you go. Now I'm now I'm calm. You see, I see you, and I'm not so angry. And let's see if it looks differently on YouTube. We're trying something new. Did it did it switch? Sorry for those of you listening as an audio podcast. We're trying something. Always trying something new. Let's just see. So we have some. You say some new super chats. Why don't you thank the people? Very, very good. I just pasted them in the, the Google Doc here. No, it didn't so, work. Doesn't work. I thought it did. A, son of a, we, you know what? We have to try. Okay. Uh, damn it. That there, There's four hours of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> now I know how my audience feels listening to this show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I boy. spent so... I, uh, I'm so pissed off. I am so... This is why... New York City, we should not be allowed to get guns because I spent four hours learning some new software that I thought would make the show look pretty and it doesn't work. And now I want to break something. Now you feel angry and empty. Now I feel like the listeners. Yeah. 
I feel angry and empty, just like my listeners. All right, let's thank the kind people. Well, we're getting a new mixer. There you go. Thank you to the following people. Teresa Luke, thank you. Randall Hayes, who who in the YouTube chat wrote, thanks for Swinebomb Boogie, Professor Steinel, Pigs Can't Climb. By the way, I found uh, Turtle. We're going to play Turtle later. And thank you to Lars J. S. Is that his real name? <laughs> or is that large ass? Is, is that what he's trying is for Feldman? That looks he's he's saying his name is large ass, right? Yeah. Well, thank yeah, you for it. large ass. Thank you for your large ass. And I think we just raised enough money for a new mixer, which uh, which will be good. Uh, it won't make us pretty, but it'll make us sound better. What do we have on store for office hours, Dan? Well, let's take a look. <laughs> what are you planning for this weekend? I don't have a plan at all. I have zero plan. I know it's supposed to be got nice weather going on. I'm trying to fix my pool so I can be cool. Yeah. And then we got office hours, right? That's my plan. Yeah. So at 8 o'clock, we have uh, the greetings and salutations where David will be there for the first 90 minutes. And then at 9.30, uh, we got the fast lane. We love Lane at office hours. He's awesome. Yes. Then at 10 o'clock, we have the red hour with Bruce Malm. And he says, I will be taking you back to the origins of science fiction and popular culture. And tonight, we will be discussing the golden age of radio in the series X-1. So we're going to listen to radio drama. That's that's the way uh, that's the way I'm reading it. That sounds like fun. That's what I love about office hours. I I get to crawl into bed, and I turn off my video, and I just listen. Except when we watch the Twilight Zone or a movie. So what, what comes after that? Um, after that is everyone's favorite, the Twilight Zone. A guided tour of the Twilight Zone with Professor John. So that's at 11 p.m. Right. And then uh, at midnight we have. The Creative Process, a spitball ses session with Dave and P.A. Which is amazing, because we're going to see Dave and P.A. later tonight doing ASMR for the eyes. He's an amazing carpenter and builder. You don't realize how truly creative furniture makers are and carpenters are until you see the plans and the drawing and the inspiration required. We should, for you that. know, the next time you go to Ikea, you, I'm kidding. Have you been to <laughs> Ikea lately? No, I don't, I don't think we really have one up here near Rochester. I was looking at Ikea. For what? I don't know. I saw a standing desk and it seemed appetizing until I realized it would be a lot cheaper just to get a taller chair <laughs> and lean against it. I don't think you need a... I don't know. A standard. They, have, they have desktop apparatuses that you can put right on top of your desk and then it raises a couple of feet when you want. Yeah, I, I noticed that. I've been I've been looking at a lot of equipment and I realized the audience doesn't really care about the equipment. They just want something they don't want to hear any buzzing in their ear. And they just want to hear something that makes sense. They don't. There's no amount of software 
or furniture I can buy that will make this show better. There's no like auto think. There, there's no, no, it's, I keep blaming, I keep blaming. There's something wrong with the show. It's cause of my chair. It's cause of my desk. Hmm. Maybe I should look in the mirror. Oh, I need a new mirror. That's the problem. I need a new mirror. And then what comes on after, uh, professor John. Um, well, we just talked about Dave and PA with the, his uh, creative process spitball session. And I'll read what he wrote for that. He says, in the warm afterglow of our collective psychotic break led by, by our beloved Twilight Zone tripster, Professor John, let us continue our, our fast from concerns and amuse one another with creative ideas, show and tell, progress reports, feedback, fantasy, jeu de vivre. So great. Yeah. All right. Dave is, Dave is going to lead the crew on some some creative stuff. Well, let's venture into the YouTube chat room, shall we? Let's. Because when we have production meetings, we often criticize me for not having the courage to go into the YouTube chat room and see what they have to say. So I'm going right now into the YouTube chat room. Let me put on my galoshes and my hazmat suit to see what, what these quote-unquote people are up to. Well, they call uh, them that? Uh, I don't even, let's see. Invest in a backdrop. Okay, I agree with you. Or a green screen that covers my face, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about trying to, I've been trying to figure out what the background should be. I, th I thought of a green screen, but I don't think I should be trusted with a green screen. I think I would... I think I would abuse that right. It would be uh, annoying. But I probably should get something uh, that looks less like a uh, college dorm room. Right? Looks, uh, take a Xanax. A touch. I like that. Uh, stop popping my peas. Okay. I didn't know I was popping my peas. I was popping amyl nitrate. I know I was doing that. I thought that was a two live crew song. Stop popping your peas. Yeah. Uh, 220 Hertz UHF 37. Uh, no porn hub. I don't know what that means. Stop popping your peas. Take a Xanax. Uh, here we go. Now the attacks come, Dan. You voted Biden because of court seats. He nominated a libertarian, Jackson, who's to the right of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Biden, who also gave us Thomas. Well, that's not fair, Libra. Biden was, he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee and he did vote for Thomas, but had he been president, he wouldn't have given us Thomas. Uh, Stephen Corsero says, more guns equal more gun violence. I'm sick of hearing about the difference between correlation and causation. Sometimes it's just simple reasoning, like cigarettes cause cancer. They do? Why didn't I find out about this? Never heard of it. Uh, F that guy, David. Is that F that guy, David, or F that guy, David? I'm so, I, whenever I read that, I've just figured they're going, F that guy, David. My view, F you people who don't vote, it's courts, courts, courts. Yes. And we're going to be in the courts, courts, courts. 
uh, as we steadily and quickly turn into a police state. Do you have a quiz ready, by the way? Because I have a feeling this is going to be a long show. I think some of our guests may have watched the opening and said, I don't need this. What am I, what am I getting? Why do I want to be part of this? I do not. I'm like 30% into doing one right now. Well, okay. All the chat regulars loved your opening hour, David. Thank you. That's coming from YouTube. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Oh, that's top chat. Just showing up. Huh? Professor Brock's just showing up. He did. Okay. Yep. Perfect. It was a great opening. Good rant. I love this show. Vote for ever you want to. That's how it works. What? Uh, bring on the Hershenfels early. Oh, I'm getting uh, compliments, and I don't know how to deal with that. Well, Dan, when do you want to do the? Oh, there's the professor. Good. Uh, and I hope he knows how to stretch because I don't <laughs> I think we're gonna be here for a while. Uh, when it's, he's, he's perfectly on time right now, according to yes, yeah. so we're good. Right. Uh, how do I turn his video on? Let me see how I can do it. I go to I should have fixed the setting already, so hopefully, he's got the, Unmute the button and ask to start video. And we have to have a meeting to figure out the settings. But I'm yeah. getting a new mixer now, thanks to the YouTube people. Thank you to the chat room. There'll be a new mixer uh, as of next Monday. All right. All right. We're all set. Thank you, Dan. I can't do this show without Dan. Well, this is uh, important. A lot of news coming out of uh, Washington, D.C. today. And I can't think of a better guest to talk about what's going on than Professor Greg Barak. He's the co-founder and North American editor of the Journal of White Collar and Corporate Crime, Emeritus Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Eastern Michigan University. He's written 20 books on crime, justice, media, violence, criminal law, homelessness, and human rights. They include, I'm going to read these titles because it's everything I care about. These are the titles of some of his books. Violence and Nonviolence, Pathways to Understanding, Give Me Shelter, Social History of Homelessness in Contemporary America, and Theft of a Nation, Wall Street Looting and Federal Regulatory Colluding. His latest book is Criminology on Trump. Criminology on Trump. Go to Rutledge.com to purchase it. Welcome back, Professor Greg Barak. Oh, you're muted. Hang on. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, David, for having me. Are you again. kidding? Can I ask you some legal questions? You, you, you could do that. Could, could I just make a brief comment about the hearings at this point? Or yes, like please. Go, hold on? More, no, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, yeah, it just, you know, this, this is an exciting evening uh, after five select committee hearings and with more mind blowing evidence yet to come. Two things are already certain. One, Donald Trump will not be the Republican candidate for president in 2024. And two, boss Trump and his band of lawless co-conspirators will all be prosecuted by A.G. Merrick Garland for virtually all of the applicable 
criminal statutes and constitutional violations therein. So, all right, just what I wanted to toss out there. Well, I've heard I. Nobody knows more about this than you do. So let me, if you don't well, mind. A lot of lawyers know more than me about this, but I'm speaking more as a criminologist than okay. a lawyer. We've heard this before. We heard this during the Mueller report. Why is it different today? Oh, I mean, you're, you're, you're a writer, uh, fiction and nonfiction like I believe. You couldn't write a better script uh, if you wanted to demonstrate a conspiracy to steal an election, to overthrow uh, the government than the one that is being unfolded and described to us over the last um, five, 10, 10 to 12 hours of, of testimony. You know, it's, it's a slam dunk. Um, Garland has no choice. He has absolutely no choice but to prosecute. Whether Donald ultimately gets prosecuted or not, it may be preempted by Georgia. And knowing Donald the way I know, he's not rolling over quite yet. On the one hand, he's thinking this ain't over until it's over. Uh, and to paraphrase Yogi Berra, uh, it ain't over until Jenny Thomas sings or invokes the Fifth Amendment. But seriously, on the <laughs> other hand, knowing Donald the grifter and the transactional player, the, the master of deception, I suspect, is probably looking into political asylum at this very moment, perhaps North Korea. But seriously, <laughs> I am placing all of my money on Russia. Uh, so, I mean, I just think it's a convincing game. I, 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 I think everybody knows it's over. Donald knows it's over. He'll keep playing, but he knows he's done for. But I, I heard this in the lead up to the Mueller report, you're. Oh, OK. So, you, we're, by the way, we're talking with Professor Greg Brock. He is a professor of criminology and criminal justice. His new book is Criminology on Trump. What crimes did he commit? Um, criminal conspiracy to. Uh, uh, overturn the election to steal the election uh again i'm i'm not a lawyer but i'm saying any applicable criminal statute in relationship to uh his behavior will 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 be charged in other words they're not going to charge one or two items you know people were saying well will they really go after the criminal conspiracy i mean this is a criminal enterprise in action. We're all seeing it. All the pieces are put together. I mean, it's from the local level of government all the way up to the highest branches and, and to the executive. It, you know, it, it covers the whole enchilada, the Department of Justice. Um, so it's hard not to. Now, I know people are saying, well, all you got to do is get one Trumpite there on the on the jury. And, there, and there's an acquittal. Oh, perhaps that could be true if you charge them with one crime. But they're just going to pile it on. They're going to throw every possible charge 
at them. Uh, if they don't all stick, it really doesn't matter. They will be convicted. The whole world is watching this. Um, they, you know, they're just going to go forward. Yeah, we don't have anything remotely close to this. Although the Mueller report, um, you know, had a lot of things with obstruction of justice, if that would have been appropriately addressed or or dealt with. Uh, as far as the first two jury nullifications by the Republican senators, uh, that's another matter and the second one was about this insurrection they had no defense then they have no defense now okay as i recall the Mueller report outlined a a pathway to charge trump with obstruction of justice part two of the Mueller report was a, a a pathway for bill barr who was attorney general to prosecute trump for obstruction of justice Bill Barr refused to prosecute. So the Mueller report wasn't a complete letdown. It was how Barr interpreted it. Is that fair? That's reasonably fair. And here we have Merrick Garland, who is not Bill Barr. He's a Democrat. There are people who say that they would not want to be in Merrick Garland's shoes right now. Because it's one thing to prosecute Paul Manafort. It's another thing to prosecute somebody who's a cult leader who 75 million Americans voted for and would probably vote for again. As a criminologist, how does that factor into prosecutorial discretion? If somebody is beloved... Are you less likely to be prosecuted if you're, say, Paul McCartney in Japan busted for pot or Keith Richards busted in Toronto for heroin? If you're a beloved figure, do they take into do they take that into account when deciding how to prosecute? I I would answer it this way. Beloved figures, celebrities as well. that can work to their advantage. On the other hand, sometimes it works negatively. That's not very often, but there, the examples that you're putting forth are what type of offenses, you know, smoking a joint. Uh, we're talking about overthrowing uh, the United States Republic. We're talking about uh, a revolutionary coup. We're talking about the ultimate crime against the Constitution. We're talking about treason and sedition. And of course, we don't want to do this. And politically, Garland knows, oh my God, if we go down with this prosecution, all hell is going to break out. And he knows that if we don't go down with this uh, all hell won't break out because, unfortunately, um, the Democrats will will accept that that call, unlike uh, the Trump forces and the Republicans. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, this is so convincing. This is so overwhelming. This is so textbook. I mean, you couldn't again, you couldn't write this script any better than it's being written, and, you know. I mean, I can't wait to see 
the movies. I mean, and this is like an episode event. You know, we've had five. We've got another three coming up and we're stretching it out. It's great. So a normal human being facing the criminal charges that Donald Trump has faced his whole life would make some kind of deal, promise to go away and never be seen again. Not Donald Trump. Let me read you a list because I knew you were coming on. This is a list of civil lawsuits that Donald Trump is still facing. You ready? There's about 50 of them, but go ahead. <laughs> e. Jean Carroll, defamation and federal tort claims. Uh, Mary Fraud, is, uh, Mary Trump, <laughs> the niece is suing uh, him right now for defrauding her out of millions of dollars in her inheritance. Uh, there's a class action suit against the Trump Corporation uh, for scamming investors into paying for worthless business uh, opportunities. Karen Bass, Congresswoman Karen Bass, is suing him over the Capitol attack. Eric Swalwell, Congressman, suing for the January 6th riots. The Capitol Police are suing him over the January 6th riots. Uh, there are a couple of suits. The Metropolitan Police, uh, the NAACP is suing uh, Trump uh, uh, to, because of their attempts to overturn the election. It goes on and on. Then you have the, the New York uh, State Attorney General doing a civil and criminal investigation into the Trump Organization for altering property values to avoid tax liabilities. It goes on and on. Scotland is... Uh, looking That's into one him. of my favorites, but it isn't materialized in anything like I hoped it would. Michael Cohn, retaliatory imprisonment suit. Uh, supposedly, the Manhattan DA is looking into Trump's finances, although that looks like it's going to be close. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And then we have the uh, district attorney in Georgia impaneling a grand jury over the phone call that Donald Trump made to Raffsenberger. You cannot make up the evidence. You know, I just need 18,000 more votes. I mean, what, what do you need? Why do you need a grand jury to indict this man? He's guilty. We all know he's guilty. Was Nixon even one, one, one hundredth as guilty as Trump? Well, yeah, but he just wasn't guilty um, of something quite as significant. You know, he, you know, one was taking over a democracy and, and, and the other was basically, you know, taking over an election or, or cheating, you know, it was a cover up of something that they shouldn't have done. It was, I mean, uh, Dick Nixon, you know, engaged in a lot of criminal activity. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but what he went down for was, you know, Watergate wasn't that big a deal right. relative to this, you know, conspiracy. So is the lesson that if you c commit some really big crimes, you can get away with it. If you commit a really big crime in America, chances are people are just going to be too frightened to prosecute, like the Kennedy assassination, where they just say, don't, don't or, or contragate, where they just say, this is too big. 
uh, it'll bring the whole well, house of cards I mean, down. Nick, Nick, Nixon did go down, and there were people with Iran Contra that did go down, uh, who were subsequently uh, pardoned. So, I mean, it's not like big, powerful people don't go down; they do go down. Has a president gone down like this? Nixon's as close as one came. He did, you know, get booted out of office. That was consequential. Right. Um, well, yeah. So, I mean, I just think this is just an exceptional situation. And it may be when Georgia comes forward, I would anticipate they would take care of the case before Garland would get to Trump. I don't see that before 24 at the earliest, you know, the beginning of 24. Georgia could preempt maybe what they do with with Trump in terms of those charges, but they're going to go after this vast conspiracy as evidenced by the fake electors who have now been subpoenaed. Clark is going down. Uh, uh, Metals is going down. Eastman's going down. Bannon's going down. You know, and there's you know, nobody to pardon them this time around. Would be, it'll, yeah, it'll be difficult unless we do we know the answer. I mean, we learned today all of these people who requested pardons and we know, you know, but we don't know if that list was actually longer than the list. And we don't know who received those pardons. Um, but I, I, do, I just think those are, are sidebars, except for the fact that they demonstrate that everybody had full understanding that what they were doing was was illegal and criminal and they needed a pardon. And not for a moment did Donald ever think that he lost the election, nor that um, it was rigged, stolen or any of those other things. That was all a ruse just ultimately, as they demonstrated today, to get the DOJ to say the election was corrupt, then they could play their games and see where it went in the courts. And speaking of the courts, we had a lovely decision today by the Supreme Court. We'll get to that in a second. Sure. Earlier earlier in the show, I talked about acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen, who filled in for Barr after Barr resigned in December of uh, the lame duck period of Trump's administration. When somebody, when you're the acting attorney general and a president of the United States asks you to commit a crime, which he did, he asked Jeffrey Rosen to to lie and say there's credible evidence, voter fraud existed, and, uh, and that would open up the states like Pennsylvania, and Arizona to send their own uh, slate of electors to Washington, D.C. That's a crime, isn't it? Well, 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 yeah, I mean, it was to send their own. I mean, there was this fake slate of electors that were gathered from four or five states. They even had phony uh, certificates of them signing off the things. Sure, that's criminal, and those people will, will get charged with that. Whether or not you could throw something back at this point in time, I don't think you could, um, you know, in terms of the certification of all of the states, and they were only waiting for the last formal count. But earlier on, 
it may be open to throwing things back to the parliament for them to make the decisions instead. And I guess looking forward, that's what we're thinking about or the select committee is thinking about in terms of preventing this from occurring in in the future. Um, But but in terms of, I I know you're not a lawyer, but if you're the acting attorney general, right? and the president of the United States asks you to participate in a crime, what, what is a reasonable expectation? What do you expect the attorney general to do when he's asked to- as, 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 as Rosen did, as the others did, they all were not going to go along with that. They were all prepared to resign. So they weren't going forward with it. So he got a stooge, he got Clark, who was willing to do it, but they weren't willing to allow him to get into the position where he could have done that. Acting or the attorney general, they would have the powers to do the same thing. In this case, they didn't have any of those powers to do anything. But doesn't Rosen have a a moral and legal responsibility to go public with the request? Okay, I mean, I I don't know what his moral and ethical responsibilities are, but I've heard the the rationales for those people who have not come forward like Rosen, which was to the extent that they thought if they were to come forward, that might escalate the potential violence on the 6th. I mean, that was... That was the response that I've heard in, 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 you know, either directly or indirectly from those persons. Then they really are guilty of malfeasance, in my estimation. I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm really sure, trying to sure. I, I'm not trying to be rude. I, I'm really no, just I didn't think you were. <laughs> uh, it seems to me if you're the acting attorney general, the president of the United States is trying to overthrow the government of the United States and. Uh, you hold a press conference and call the nation's attention to this, because I think that meeting was three days before January 6th. I think he could have forestalled January 6th by going public with what... I think that's a reasonable assertion. I I think one should do that. He could have foresawed it. Um, it's, it's, It's potential that he could have. I guess Barr could have said something when he said Barr didn't have to cover up previous crimes. I mean, you know, all of these persons were doing things. I mean, for, for Barr to be a, a quasi person that we're relying on now is really interesting. Who could possibly trust this guy? I mean, he's a liar himself, but he's useful for the prosecution at this point in time. Right. So uh, I'm not asking you to comment on this and we'll move on. If it were an undercover sting operation, you know, you're reading about the the Gillum, uh, the the candidate right, right, who, right. who just got In busted. Florida. Yeah, yeah, the governor who lost to DeSantis by a little right, bit. Right, right. Uh, he, he didn't get elected governor, but he uh, some undercover FBI agent offered to donate money to his campaign uh, and then run it through. Gillum's restaurant to hide it. And he's now being prosecuted for taking a bribe from an undercover FBI agent. Uh, 
which is nothing compared to the president of the United States, at least I think, saying to the attorney general, help me, help me overthrow the government of the United States, which I think is sedition, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, you know, that, that's- I, I think that's you get shot for sedition, don't you get shot for sedition? So, seems to I, me- I think the other side, they're calling for people to be shot for sedition. Seems, well, I don't think this side is calling for it, but yeah. Seems to me if Donald Trump was working for the FBI and wearing a wire to prove that Jeffrey Rosen, the acting attorney general, was corrupt, and I'm going to make him an offer to overthrow the government, and all he does is uh, refuse to resign and not report this, I know, I know I'm belaboring this. These oh, are not. If, these, he would, if he would have resigned, it would have become public. In other words, if if Donald hadn't backed down, they were going to resign and go public. By resigning, it was going public. So they were prepared to do that. But Donald actually backed down and went to plan kill Pence. <laughs> I mean, that was his last straw, right? Yeah. Which, it, it, it really, what's so dangerous is we're brainwashed into believing that it cannot happen here until it does. And it, ha- it happened here. It has happened here. They, they tried, didn't they? They tried to overthrow our government. But we are so, we're brainwashed that, you know, gone with the wind, the slaves were happy, it was, uh, you know, it was evil, but it wasn't that bad. We whitewash our history, and we have... You know, that's not unique to the United States. You know, every country whitewashes its history, more or less, and we're all, you know, we all need to demystify things, and what better case study than what we're experiencing today it obviously can happen here and if it can happen here i guess it could happen anywhere as they say well i mean shouldn't we be holding judges prosecutors police officers detectives to the highest standards shouldn't our prisons be filled with judges prosecutors da's and police officers aren't they isn't a crime of isn't their crime far worse than any anything uh, an ordinary citizen can commit? Uh, in, in my view, they're state criminals and they're committing crimes by the government, of the government, against the people. And by definition, that's worse than people committing crimes against the people. They are the people. They are the state committing crimes. That's worse. Okay, before we discuss Clarence Thomas's decision today, saying that everybody in New York should be carrying a gun, uh, on last Monday's show, I talked about clearance, the police myth, the idea that police prevent and solve crime. I looked into this. One percent, if we're being generous, of all felonies in the United States, if we're lucky, are solved by the police. Is that accepted? An accepted stat? Um, 
I, I, I was I was honestly going to respond. One percent of of solving uh, felonies would be news to me. I mean, in terms of solving crimes, maybe the highest rate would be murder, which you know maybe is around 50%. And then from there, the, the rates go down to, you know, burglary at maybe 10%. I mean, that's sort of conventional wisdom. Uh, you know, I may be a little behind in, in, in the data, but they're solving a little bit more, um, you, know, the, you know, they're resolving more of those felonies than 1%. I mean, I, I'm okay, I'm not going to that. Even if we were talking white collar and corporate crime, now we're talking. <laughs> when we're talking about white collar and corporate crime, clearly we're 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 way down. You know, we, we, we're we're way down because we're not even prosecuting. Right, know? right. So, what is the role of police in our in our society? Is it to prevent crime, solve crime, or do something else? I guess it has multiple uh, uh, functions. It's to maintain order first and most, first and foremost, and that's political and economic order. And then it is to uh, maintain the rule of law or to enforce and apply the rule of law, not selectively, which is an impossible task because you're always uh, using discretion. Right. We've been running 15 minutes behind today. And sure. before you go, I wanted to ask you about this new ruling written by Justice Clarence Thomas that says you can be arrested if you don't have three guns on your person at all times. Or maybe I misread the decision. <laughs> Well, I didn't read the whole decision, to tell you the truth. I only saw saw the highlights and the talking points. They didn't bring that one up. But, I mean, the, uh, these whole, these decisions, the, 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 the six people who are going back to another era, another age, another time to set the standards. I mean, all law that's produced at any moment is always within context. And if you want to talk about those past behaviors and regulations, you have to talk about what the guns looked like and what the problem, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous what they, what they've done. It totally makes the changes as impotent as they were toward reducing any type of gun violence in America that the Senate is about to pass or did pass today. You know, it, it, it's it's so what? Now we hear that New York is going to be fighting back. We hear from the mayor. We hear from the the governor. They're going to do their best to uh, to work as though it hadn't occurred, and they're going to try and fill up those spaces where you can make exceptions to carrying those guns. Fantastic. Will you come back? I love having you. I will. I'd like to come back um, when we are just about wrapping up the next uh, set of. Uh, yes. Uh, the, when we're wrapping up the country or the hearings, we're, we're not. Well, that remains to be seen. Really? Well, I, I think it'll be a while before we wrap the country up. Right now, it's, you know, like we're, ter- we're tearing open the packages and there's there's mess all over the floor. Professor Greg Barak is author of and please go buy this book. 
criminology on Trump, go to gregbarak.com. That's G-R-E-G-G-B-A-R-A-K.com and go buy Criminology on Trump. It's published by Rutledge, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. Great conversation. Thank you so much, Professor Greg Barak. Please come back. Please come back. Well, patiently waiting, sorry to keep you waiting, is our old friend, Professor Ben Burgess. And besides being a philosophy professor, he's host of Give Them an Argument, which is a podcast and a YouTube show. He is a regular contributor to Jacobin, The Daily Beast. And his most recent book is Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Welcome back. Are you yeah, there? Thank you. I've, I've been, uh, it is, uh, it has been admitted. I, I, I thought I was being shunned. No, I, w- we had last week off. Ah, now you're doing a debate June 25th with a real group of ne'er-do-wells, Tim Poole, Tulsi Gabbard, and James O'Keefe, who I believe has been criminally charged with spying on like the the governor of Louisiana or the mayor of he, he's the is he the one who got acorn shut down yep that is the uh that is the guy I was talking about this yesterday with um one of the uh editors at Jacobin and she told me that like that it sounded like I was describing a dream like just the combination of people. It's like, oh yeah, it's Tulsi Gabbard. It's Tim it's, uh, it's James O'Keefe. Uh, you know so, you're in trouble when the most reasonable person on the panel is Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is very true. So it, it should be, uh, it should be interesting. Uh, you should, uh, you should come by and watch. I will watch and you can buy tickets by going to Ticketmaster. Everybody should go to Ticketmaster.com. And I guess just type in what on Ticketmaster? Uh, well, if you just go to uh, festival.minds.com, uh, that's, that's, I think, the, the easiest thing to remember. So I, speaking of debates and my idea of give them an inquisition. I, yeah. I well, have. I, I mean, I would love that for, for these three people if I got to be the inquisitor. I had an experience that I can't talk about because there's an ongoing criminal. It's an ongoing criminal matter. That's okay. It's just it's just you and me right now. I know, but I, I really yeah. can't discuss this ongoing criminal matter. So all I can tell you is, I was in Washington D.C. working for somebody. A was, dog. was it a was was it a victorious animal of some kind? It, yes, it was a dog. By the way, there's a great <laughs> picture in the New York Times today of triumph the insult comic dog it it could be the best picture of him ever it's black and white there was a reporter from the new york times covering the hearings last week and there's a very it's all in black and white a lot of gravitas (laughs) and there's a picture of triumph watching the hearings and the the caption reads triumph the insult comic dog watching intently as the January 6th hearings commence. <laughs> I mean, whoever wrote the caption got it, you know, didn't, <laughs> didn't try to make it funny. Anyway, uh, one of the things I noticed, Ugh. just clean slate now, 
yeah. on this experience that I had that I cannot comment on because it's an ongoing uh, criminal matter, uh, which it is. I noticed that there are certain Republicans mm-hmm. who say, I got this, right? I got it. And you start asking them questions and they talk over you. Mm-hmm. They, they interrupt you. They don't let you finish. But when you say, do you mind if we just ask a question? Do you mind if I ask the question? And I watched, and this has nothing to do with anything. This is separate, not anything that I, but I, I observed what I always observe when Republicans and conservatives are forced to ask, answer questions. Mm-hmm. They twitch mm-hmm. and their body language changes it, they they go into a crouch position and they are ready to turn violent. That I, so I call into question. You like an argument. You like a debate. Mm-hmm. I am convinced now that give them an inquisition is a much more effective way to reveal the truth. Yeah, I mean, you just the only problem is you need to uh, you need to get them to sit down, you know, to agree to the Inquisition, right? That's yeah, the, you know, so um, you know, with a you know with a debate, you know, that the two of you are doing the same thing, so you can sometimes convince them to do that, but uh, uh, just saying, you know, I'm just gonna like ask you questions and I get as many follow up questions as I want until I get the truth out of you. Uh, be a lot harder to get out of them, but I, I do have a lot of stuff I'd ask them if if I was in a you know position to just do it completely like that. I've been doing a lot of research on all three of these people, uh, especially O'Keefe and um, uh, and Poole, uh, you know, in, in kind of preparation for this. I mean, I was a little bit more familiar with Tulsi from her uh, you know run for president in uh, in twenty twenty. But um, are they all grifters? Is there so so explain the format, if you don't mind, is it you against the three of them? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a it's a whole event. There are three panels. I'm on the last one of the evening with with those three people. Like the first one is Cordell West and Colbert Hughes. And I guess Margaret Kimberly is on there. The second one is Destiny and a bunch of right wingers. And then the last one uh, is Jamie Kilstein. I don't know exactly who's on. I there, think Jamie Kilstein. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. It was all names I didn't really know. But the last one is me and those three people. Uh, I think the organizers might have a different impression of Tulsi's impression, you know, position of the political spectrum that I do. But like the the point, you know. Um, one of the things that's been most striking me is I've been, you know, as, as I've been looking into some of these people is, you know, James O'Keefe, of course, as you mentioned, he has, you know, years of different kinds of legal drama and people suing him and him suing people and him going to jail at one point and whatnot. But, but I think the what I'm kind of interested in about him is a slightly different angle, which is, okay, all these right-wingers claim that the big free speech people, right? I mean, this is something that's like every single one of them claims. Uh, but realistically, right, the, the biggest thing, if you want to, you know, if you live in a sort of, you know, shitty, mediocre capitalist democracy, 
the the biggest thing that people are worried about with regard to like saying whatever they want to say, you know, it's not like they're going to get arrested or something. It's it's getting fired, right? Losing mm-hmm. their job. And so it seems to me that if you really cared about free speech, uh, you would really want every single worker in the United States to be a member of a union so that there is some protection that, you know, your boss could just fire you whenever they wanted to with no due process. Uh, but not only is James not on board with that, I was looking at a lot of the early stuff from Project Veritas and um, and early on, right, you know, he did years, uh, you know, like he did this whole series of videos going after the New Jersey Teachers Union. So it was called uh, Teachers Union God God Wild, because I guess that was back when Girls God Wild ads were on mm-hmm. TV all the time. And so it's kind of a parody of that. Uh, but they you know, brought in hidden cameras to teachers unions, uh, conventions in New Jersey and caught people, you know, swearing and, you know, sometimes using, you know, using recreational drugs like people do in their off hours. But uh, but also um, they seemed to find, I think it was like really shocking that these these unionized school teachers in New Jersey would express frank, uncensored opinions about Governor Chris Christie, who they all seemed to think was a piece of shit. And right. um you know, and it, and it just it just strikes me. It's like, well, hold on, right? You know, do, do you guys do you guys care about free speech or not, right? You know, like because this this seems like, uh, in fact, they count. If you look at the Project Veritas website right now, they do this thing, which I'm sure they set it up this way for this for donors, right? So they can show like where their money's going, where they'll describe the project. They'll have links to the videos, you know, embedded videos. Uh, they'll describe what happened and then there'll be a little thing that says results where they say like whatever they can claim is a victory as a result of this. And for this series of videos going after the teachers unions, uh, oh, and they also seem to find it super shocking that like they would like have somebody who pretended to be a teacher ask like union official, hey, if I was accused of such and such horrible thing, would you defend me? And they're like, yeah, of course, right? I mean, that's that's what we do, right? That they provide representation, you know, it's like the same way a criminal defense attorney would, right? You know, mm-hmm. so... Um, and then under the results page at the end of it, right, the sort of victories they can claim as a result of this activity, they have Christie signing into law in New Jersey, basically laws weakening tenure protections for teachers. So it seems to me that, like, in practice, I mean, we can even leave aside all of the ways that he's been accused of distorting the evidence in these videos, the, the laws that he may or may not have broken, all that stuff, right? Like, just politically, Right. It's like, okay, you know, like the old miners song says, right. Which side are you on? And it seems to me that this guy is, uh, is not, you know, he's not holding powerful people to account. Right. I mean, like if you were, if you were like sending hidden cameras into meetings where CEOs were plotted out, you did busted strategy or, you know, generals were talking about drone strikes, you know, I'd be on his side. Uh, but what he's actually doing is he's just, he's policing ordinary people on behalf of uh, of the most powerful people in in our society, and by the way, just you know, making a mockery of the process of any claim to caring about freedom of speech. Well, that would be my take. Right. So, what is the debate? What is the issue? What is resolved? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the the topic is um, the topic is uh, is uh, media manipulation. Uh, what's the what's the real source of the the problem? Uh, of course, the cheap answer is James O'Keefe, who's is one part of is one source of the problem, which which you know has the merit of being true, right? You know, but I, I do also think that there are, you know, broader things that you can say about this, right? That that I I would like to say. I mean, I hope 
given the composition, I'm not wildly optimistic that the, um, you know, my, my job here is to make as little of the discussion as possible about sort of ephemeral, you know, culture war nonsense about, you know, like battling media narratives and this stuff like that. And as much as possible about uh, these kinds of like bigger structural issues uh, like we're talking about here, right? I mean, you want to talk about media manipulation, let's talk about who owns the media. You know, you want to talk about free speech, you know, let's talk about labor unions. Where's this debate being held? Is it virtual or is it in front of an audience? It's in front of an audience. It's at the uh, the Beacon Theater in New York. Um, oh, so, yep. So you're going to be in New York mm-hmm. at the Beacon Theater. That's a big room. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And it's this Sunday. This Saturday. This Saturday. This Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Can you have a a, a real debate? in front of an audience that's hooting and hollering and cheering. Are, are they going to be playing to the, the crowd or to a search for truth? It, it, not, I mean, I, it would be... Sure. What, what, what do you hope to get out of this? Sure. Uh, what I hope to get out of this, you know, both for the benefit of anybody who's persuadable who's in the actual physical audience on Saturday and should be a decent-sized audience... But more so, right, for all the people who watch it after, right? I mean, like, um, you know, our friend Ada Kasparian did a debate with Ben Shapiro last year at the uh, at a Chamber of Commerce, right? It's the most it's the most unsympathetic possible uh, venue, right? But I think it was great, and I think she, you know, I think she approached just right, you know, because she was she understood that the most important audience was the people who were going to watch it later. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, look, I think for anybody who's persuadable in the audience, either the, you know, the immediate audience there or people who are watching it streaming or watching it later, um, you know, I think that the, you know, I mean, I think that the goal is to, you know, is to lay down a perspective on this stuff that they are not going to hear otherwise. Right. You know, we, we live in a, super duper fragmented uh media landscape you know that the there is um the you know even the people we think of as having gigantic audiences right you know your tucker carlson's and your rachel maddow's right i mean you know there's a tiny percentage of the people watching them at any given night as we're watching like you know i don't know walter cronkite talk about vietnam or something uh and the incentive is to just pander relentlessly to whatever audience you you have left right you know that the um if you're Fox, you know, you're, you're trying to scare conservative old people about MS-13 or whatever drag queens may be, right? You know, right. The, um, if you're MSNBC, you have your version of it, whatever. But they have a – the but part of the effect of this, I think part of the value of doing debates from my perspective is that it's the, um, it's the only chance you ever get to talk to somebody else's audience, right? You know, other than that, you know, you're, you're talking to people who've sort of selected in right to uh to to your audience so it's the chance that you get to talk to somebody else's audience and say the things that i would uh that i would like to say to them like some of what i've been saying for you know for the you know the last few minutes i think if we're going to do you know media stuff and don't get me wrong i mean i think that we need to have like 10 union organizers for every person who does like left-wing media right you know but like if we are going to do media things i would argue that's one of the most valuable things we could do with it and it actually doesn't from my perspective, depend on the intentions of the other people on the stage. 
right? You know, that they, they, they could have, you could have the most unsympathetic possible view of those people, right? And it can still be true that, you know, that you can, that you can make, you know, make points to them that you're really making not because you think you're going to convince them because you're not, but you're really making to the audience. So when you say give them an argument, that's the name of your book and your podcast, you're looking for a fight. I know you well enough to know that it gets your blood boiling and it feels good and it gets your it gets you thinking. You enjoy Uh an argument. Uh Is that true for the sake of an argument? Yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't uh, I probably wouldn't be able to get myself to keep doing this. Right. If if I didn't have fun doing it. Right. Right. Like that's 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 certainly true. But I think that the um, you know, I mean, I think that the like I'd like to think that I would do it if I didn't think that it would serve the, you know, the kind of valuable purpose that I'm, I'm laid out earlier. And I certainly try to think about that when I'm doing it. Right. Because there's there's a way that I think a lot of, you know, those leftists who like doing debates, which is certainly not all necessarily most, but those leftists who like doing debates, there's a way that I sometimes see them approach it that I don't think is super helpful, uh, which is that basically what they're looking for the chance to do is to say things that's going to make people who already like them, you know, slow clap, right. You know, that's, that's, that's what they're, that's what they're after. And, you know, I, I guess there's nothing wrong with that as far as it goes. It's, you know, you cheer up the troops or whatever, but like, I don't, I think in a certain sense, that's a wasted opportunity because I think that, you know, what I'd much rather do, Right. Rather than that. Right. I mean, like, you know, is, you know, because like even if it's something where I mean, in some ways, other than James O'Keefe, the people in that debate are sort of odd. Right. I guess is the way to put it. Right. You know, and they have a uh, uh, but like even somebody who's like much more ideologically unambiguous. Right. You know, like like a Charlie Kirk. Right. You know, that that's, uh, you know, uh, so. Presumably, if if the goal is to take whatever proportion of Charlie's audience, uh, whatever percentage that is, who is either maybe they're like curious about what he has to say, but they're not really married to it, you know, or, uh, you know, they're not hardcore fans because you're probably not going to get them or you know get those people. Or maybe if they used to be hardcore fans, but right now you just caught them at exactly the right sort of point in their arc where they're open to hearing something else, right? If you're going to get those people just sort of doing like, you know, the lines that make people clap is not going to do it. If anything, you know, that might make it easier for them to, to dismiss you. Right. I mean, so I think there's a, there's a, a line to walk there. Right. But I think that the, I think that you, you want to sort of have some sense of what your goal is right into it. Right. Who am I trying to convince and what am I trying to convince them of? Right. There should be a governing body that oversees these debates and and forces the players to uh, obey the guidelines because, you know, I've been criticized for liking Destiny. I I don't have time to watch all this stuff, but I've watched you watching Mm -hmm. debates. I have no idea who Destiny is, but I you were... Mm -hmm you were live streaming one of his debates and I thought this guy is really facile and Mm -hmm. he stays within the guardrails of the debate as opposed Mm -hmm. to people 
talking over other people. Well, I've been, apparently I'm not allowed to admire Destiny. Why, by the way, why is that? What's wrong with Destiny? I mean, God, that guy, he's got... Um, I mean, I think it depends who he's arguing with and, and what they're arguing about. I mean, is he I a leftist? They, no, he's not. He's not a leftist. He's like a... He's like a... Um, I mean, they, like, it's a little hard to tell sometimes, but I think he's, you know, I think he could probably call himself a liberal, right? You know, he's, that's, that's probably... Um, Am I wrong know, to be impressed by his ability to play some kind of video game and then <laughs> take well, that stuff? That's definitely something I wouldn't be able to do. So, I mean, so I got, okay. Uh, it seems to me that so many debates are just people spewing talking points, as you 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 mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. How is it possible? I hear these two talking points all the time. Uh. You want to talk about the insurrection? What about Black Lives Matter? Uh huh. Nobody facts checks that statement. The Washington Post did that, uh-huh. that Black Lives Matter were nonviolent. That that every every study shows that that police precinct that got burnt down in Minnesota had nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. Uh, every study shows that whenever there was violence, it was somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse showing up to Kenosha and shooting people. It was outside agitators that had nothing to do with BLM. More importantly, it was the police. That whenever the police showed up to a BLM protest, the police, now you can just read, Google the Washington Post. They've done studies on this. The police had a riot. It was the police who turned violent, not BLM. And yet it's received wisdom on the right. You can get away with saying you want to talk about January 6th, what about all the BLM protests that turned violent? They were non-violent mm-hmm. across the board. Where is your side in putting an end to that talking point? It's a lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are. Uh, so trying to think what to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that you know, one difference that, you know, that matters to me, right. You know, what I think about, um, you know, like, look, I'm a lot more sympathetic even to people who did maybe do, um, you know, I mean, I think that the vast majority of people who participated in, you know, protests in 2020, uh, were, um, you know, were nonviolent, uh, BLM is a nonviolent well, when you when you say when you say BLM, do you mean like the nonprofit BLM, or do you mean like a sort of broader movement, or what are you talking about? I mean the nonprofit, even the one where they, you know, I guess they bought some houses that are now offices yeah. that people are upset about. The 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 etho, ethos of BLM, the marches were nonviolent. They did not advocate violence. They did not incite violence. The police, when they showed up, became violent, and it was outside agitators. And they've done studies on this. The Washington Post reported extensively on this. And somehow there's this lie, mm-hmm. this stubborn lie, that BLM is responsible for 
rioting and violence. It was all, it was a white guy who had nothing to do with BLM who blew up the police precinct in Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, you probably can't, you probably, my guess would be, right, like um, that, okay, that instead, sure, I think what they would say is, okay, but what about all of the, you know, I mean, like this is, um, you know, there were quite a few riots, uh, you know, and, and certainly at least destruction of property, although I'd make a big distinction between that and like violence. But uh, but that wasn't but, BLM. Well, 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 again, it wasn't the nonprofit BLM or, or, or that, you know, like that's a very different claim than like every single time somebody threw a brick through a window in the summer of 2020. It was an outside agitator. I don't think anybody's claimed that. I'm claiming that. Okay. I don't think oh, yeah. it was sanctioned. It, it, it would be the equivalent of the Women's March on Washington during Trump's inauguration. And things get set on fire. Bricks get thrown through a window or that guy Spencer gets punched in the face. That's not the Women's March. That's other people gathering. Okay, okay but that's, that, that, that's not the women's march, but presumably, you know, unless you know something I don't, right, in that example, right, the, the guy who punched Spencer, that's like, that's not like a, you know, I don't think anybody claims that's like an inside job, right? I mean, like that's, sorry, <laughs> yeah, inside job, that's the, that's the right phrase I'm looking for, right? I mean, like that, you know, he had somebody who works for him punch him, right? I mean, like that's... Um, but if women you know, are, if you... It, it, it chills I mean, our if right. You're, if you're if you're just saying the leadership isn't responsible for everything that everybody does, then fair enough, right? You know the. Um, but I would also, you know, I mean, again, I don't think the Washington Post or anybody else is claiming that, like, um, that you know there weren't plenty of people who are royally pissed off about police violence in the summer of 2020, you know breaking windows or looted or, you know, setting things on fire. Read, read, read the Washington, oh. read the, this is, I find this very infuriating because I think with all due respect to the left, yeah. we are dropping the ball and allowing this talking point, this, this libel. Because I know a lot of leftists who think those things were justified. Right? But I they're mean, not like, part of it. Black Lives Matter. Okay, they're not part of that organization, that non And they weren't Black showing Lives up Matter, for those specific. They, they, if you they have a... If so, I so, hang on for one second, hang on for one second. Okay. Okay. Because okay. this chills our First Amendment rights when you make excuses for it. If I hold a protest because the police have shot uh, an unarmed black man. Yeah, you're not you're not responsible for everything that everybody who shows up does. I'm completely with exactly. you. Like I'm not and responsible I, in Kenosha for Kyle Rittenhouse shooting three and killing two if I'm well, Black Lives Matter. Not only are you not responsible for what Kyle Redhouse does, you're also not responsible for everything that anybody who agrees with you does. And I'm not but responsible for if I'm holding a protest, this is as old as the labor movement, we're out, you know, agent provocateurs who are- Sure, sure. But I mean, that. so, so all, the only thing I was cautioning you about here is I think that like, making the claim that it's like all agent provocateurs. Again, I'll read whatever you said me for the Washington Post. I seriously doubt the all Washington Post is going that far. Uh, but like, I'd also say like one of the biggest differences uh, between, you know, those people who, who did violent things, you know, on January 6th and, and anybody who really was motivated by outrage 
about police violence who did anything you know violent in the summer of 2020 is that one of those things is an explosion of outrage about something real right you know the uh, the other case you know the uh, in the other case you know you you have people who have who've been whipped up about total nonsense right i mean that's it's just the 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 thing itself is uh is not real right you know which is why i mean if anything like one of the slightly frustrating things about the january 6th hearings and all that is that like you know the people who were actually there by and large right you know got the book thrown at them the person who's most responsible for it right is is uh is trump right and like if if uh if that would you know uh, I mean, much, you know, much more in some ways than like idiots who believed it. Right. You know, it's, it's the, you know, it's the man himself, you know, who's, uh, who certainly at least morally, you know, and I'm sure a good lawyer could, uh, could come up with a legal theory, right. You know, uh, is, uh, is responsible for that, but, you know, is most likely, you know, not going to be punished because presidents and former presidents are never punished for anything that they do in our right. country. We have to wrap it up. We're running 15 minutes behind schedule. If you're going to be in New York, I may let you buy me coffee. All right. Well, I that's what I that. do. That when people are visiting New York, it's customary in New York to allow people to buy me a cup of coffee. That's sure. Sure. Well, that's 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 big of you. I insist, uh, so. and I will insist when you're when you're in my town. You buy the coffee. If you have time, I'm going to be around. Uh, Professor. No, I would really like to try to do that. I should also say, because I didn't say it earlier. So the debate is on Saturday uh, at the Beacon Theater, um, you know, Saturday evening. Again, that's minds.festival.com. Also, though, um, in Brooklyn the next day on Sunday, I am going to be at uh, the uh, Sublation, uh, you know, which is a new uh, publishing company. They're doing this book launch, which is going to be also kind of co-hosted by uh, This Is Revolution. So, uh, oh, they, I, that is where I will, pro- because I, Jason is going to be there. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. J- I mean, Jason is going to be at the- uh, Jason the, Miles. The, the, yeah, Jason Miles is going to also be at the debate. I got him a top comp ticket, but I have a, uh, but like I have, but yes, uh, I am going to be also doing a panel at the Sublation, uh, so the Norman Finkelstein book launch, which is also a, this Revolution live show. So frequent uh, David Feldman show guest, uh, Jason Miles is going to be there. I'm going to be there. Um, so he's you know, going to buy me coffee. I'm going to have a lot of free coffees because yeah, you're going to be jittery by the end of the weekend. <laughs> Ben Burgess, I I hope to see you on Sunday. Professor Ben Burgess is the author of, and go buy this and I will reimburse you if you buy this book and you don't love it. Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Go buy this book right now and go watch Give Them an Argument on YouTube or listen to Give Them an Argument as a podcast this Saturday night. He will be at the Beacon Theater on the Upper West Side debating, dear Lord, Tim Poole, Tulsi Gabbard, and James O'Keefe. Now, and so go watch Give Them an Argument on YouTube. What is that? Give Them an Argument as a podcast. Is that me? Saturday. That sounds like you. It sounds like me. So my question before you go is, 
Ben Burgess, Tim Poole, Tulsi Gabbard, James O'Keefe. Who's not a grifter? <laughs> I mean, I, I have my views on that, but I may be biased. I want to talk to you about give them an inquisition. When, when yeah. you, I think it, I think it's time. Thank you, Professor. All right, thank you, comedian. Thank you. Joining us is everybody's favorite. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. He's a Freudian psychoanalyst. Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant comedian, and he has a, a new book out that we're going to talk about in a second. Go right now to YouTube and stream his new comedy special, Thug Thug Jew, which is hysterical. Welcome. Welcome to you. I, I Both of you look very relaxed. You look very... Uh, like you're enjoying, <laughs> like you're enjoying, you're enjoying the summer. We're both high as, as beep. Are you in the same room? Totally wasted. No, no, we're not in the same room. And we're, we're Does it look summer. like we're in the same room, David? It, it could if you've got a green screen. Okay. So, no, it doesn't look like you're in the same room. You're, you're not. So, uh, let's talk about this mystifying loss of any kind of moral sense in our Republican brethren. Is, is this a new thing? Let me ask Dr. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, what you're seeing now in the Republican Party, is this a brand new iteration of Republicans or has it always been there? I can't, I can't say we can pin it on one particular party. I think right now, the Republicans are demonstrating it in spades. Um, and, but I've been really personally wrestling with this question for a while now. What the hell happened? How come there is nobody standing up saying, have you no shame? And there just isn't. So are corrupt people attracted to power and money? Yeah, this is nothing new. It's been going on for thousands of years. But um, there has been a, a huge slide in the past number of years, uh, at least according to what I'm looking at. And I keep casting around for what can explain it. The loss of religion, not that I'm religious, but it keeps some people on the straight and narrow. The crass materialism of our culture, where the only thing that seems to matter is your bank account. Um, the cynicism or the terrible condition that everybody knows this world is in. And does it cause some people to say, well, there's nothing to be done about it. So let me just grab whatever I can as the ship goes down. Right, right. I don't know that there's one explanation. There is. Oh, 
Okay. Dr. Benjamin, what's the explanation? And he's got books behind him, so th this has some gravitas to it. Go ahead, Ethan Hirschenfeld, with many, many books behind you. I have a drawing of many books. Yeah, it's a small I page. A, I have a shower curtain that looks like many, many. No, no, Ooh. it's books. It's oh, books. okay. So what, what is um, the explanation? Well, the one you listed a whole bunch of possible explanations. Those were wrong. They weren't uh, <laughs> uh, illogical. They could have been right. They happen to be wrong. <laughs> the and it's nothing personal, but it's bowling. People stopped bowling. <laughs> I read that book thirty years ago. Book. Yeah. So we're, we're going. We're fishing around here for the explanation. The guy already read the book. It's bowling. I mean, right. come on. True. I used to bowl when I was a kid. What did you do every Sunday? I know you used to bowl and then go right outside and beat the crap out of people. So it didn't help. <laughs> no, I, I mean, we, that's what we did once a week. We went bowling, sometimes twice a week. I can, think you're on to something. Can I ask you a, a sidebar question then return to this? Yeah. Okay. If we were to go bowling, we're going to drive cross country and film it and make a movie. Why do I have one like, we'll stop and bowl. I have one good game in me every five years. I can bowl. I can pick up a bowl, ball and get anywhere between 132 and 150, which considering that it's pretty yeah, good. That's, that's like my range also when I have a really good one. That's it. But it's well, my well, first game. That's not good for me, but anyway, here's the here's the mistake most people make with bowling, and and this is this is something that really needs to get out there. There's three holes in the ball. <laughs> Easy. But, Easy. But people don't people don't realize you don't have to use all three holes. You just bowl with two fingers. It's much it's much better. Oh. They're not saying you have to use all three. You can use up to three. That's what those three holes mean. You're allowed to use up to three holes in the ball. <laughs> And, and there are actually balls with two holes, by the way. I didn't know that, but you could you could okay. bowl like this. You could even bowl like this. If you, you just spin it. <laughs> That's for people who have very strong fingers. It's like yeah. a catapult. Well, yeah. And don't you think bowling underhand is kind of effeminate. It's like women's softball. It's like Bob Cousy, the way you do the foul shots. Yeah. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't men bowl overhand? I don't, I don't mind that at all. I think you are too concerned with your masculinity. <laughs> well, you're talking about balls and and but why is that? In all seriousness, I, I marvel like I have said to people Every five years, you want to go bowling. Here's how it's going to play out. You're going to think I'm fantastic. I, I think oh, like 130 to 150. Yeah. I, well, for you're you. Like the, you're like the opposite of a hustler. You start <laughs> with one good game and then you stop. <laughs> and then it's just gutter ball after. Why is that? You know, I've had that with a return to tennis or a return to basketball after years of not doing it. That first time back on the court, you can't do anything wrong. And then you get back in your whatever the bad habits are or and sex, like, right? I have it with sex. I go 20 years yeah, without exactly. sex first. It's guilt in all these situations. <laughs> it's your guilt over that one good game. And then you got to screw it up, you know, in all seriousness. And then we'll go back to the state of politics. You have said on this show that I punish myself. I'm being absolutely serious. 
I cannot tell you the number of times I've caught myself thinking, oh, doctor, I'm punishing myself for... Look at the profession you chose. Are you kidding? Well, whipping boy? Right. You mean whipping boy? <laughs> no, You're right. <laughs> I object. I object. That's painting with a broad brush, and it's inaccurate. Yeah. Well, I do think part of stand-up comedy is being a whipping boy. It's a tough gig, truly. Right, but that doesn't mean that, that that doesn't mean it's facile to then conclude from that that therefore it's because someone wants to suffer. You can do difficult things for other reasons than the suffering. That is true. Although I, true. I think a well, Ethan, yes. ho- hold the thought on the state of our politics. When a joke doesn't go over, when you're bombing, are you in a comfortable place, a familiar place? Um, no. Do you enjoy I, 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 not getting a laugh? No, of course not. But there's see, I do. There's so much joy in getting the laughs, and there's so much, uh, so much else that there's so many other amazing perks and benefits of a career as a stand-up comedian that to to decide not to do it over the simple discomfort of bombing occasionally. But what about the joy? And I'm being serious of knowing that I'm right and everyone in this room is wrong. I'm being serious. That counts. What is that? What what job is that? A comedian. Oh. At the risk of of my learned colleague telling me I don't know what I'm talking about, which happens once in a while, (laughs) I can remember once having a discussion with him about comparing opera singing with stand-up. And he said, as By the way, as you remember, I was going to say, this is probably based on a true story. Go on. This is based on a true story, yes. As I remember, he said, opera is much easier. All you got to do is memorize somebody else's words and music and open your mouth. This stand-up, you got to write it, you got to perform it, you got to... St- okay, I'm, I'm hallucinating again. That's okay. incorrect? You're not hallucinating, it's called confabulating. Okay, I'm confabulating. What does confabulating take, mean? It's where you take certain facts or certain thoughts and you jumble them together into a story of your own creation that you're convinced is real. And it, it's... I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with it, I'm not criticizing, I'm just describing. Okay. But so I would think, first of all, opera singing has to be a marathon because you perform and you perform and you perform, and then you got to find a fat lady. It doesn't end until you find a fat lady to sing. I mean, what happens if there's no fat lady? Well, you just keep that, going, right? It turns out that's it's uh, it's just a, it's just a saying. Really? Yeah. 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 Also, oh. I would do roles in the opera often where I would get killed or dismissed earlier on in the show. I did one part. I once got to sing at the Hawaii Opera in Samson and Delilah, which is a French opera. And my role was Abimelech, who comes on in act one, basically scene one, screams his head off and then gets murdered by Samson. 
Um, so five minutes into the show, I would get in my rented Honda C- CRV with a surfboard and I would go surfing. <laughs> it was the greatest gig ever. Five minutes into the opera, I was surfing. Wow. Yeah. You know, you're just so much of a better person than I am. You're just at another level of, of yeah. your life is just been like opera. I mean, no, just, no, no. Do, now, do, do you still love opera? No, never did. No, <laughs> no, it was a, no, no, it was a, it was a, it was a, an interesting. I mean, I love certain stuff about it, but I was never a huge like. I wasn't an opera buff or aficionado. I, I liked the whole, the discipline of it and the challenge of it and the, the. I in fact, I did like the long odds of it. That was part of what attracted me. It's such a hard thing. Such a hard career. Seriously, sounds like, like a that. bad Alan Sherman album. My song, the opera singer. <laughs> Just what did you say to him, uh, doctor, when he said, I want to be an opera singer? Abigazunt. <laughs> okay, for those of us who don't speak Italian, <laughs> be healthy. Do it. Yeah, my parents were very supportive of whatever crazy career I wanted to pursue. What was your greatest um, night? Your greatest night as an opera singer? What was what was what was the greatest night? For me? Sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. It, it was going to Venice, Italy, sitting in the front row. He got me a seat there. And watching him at the maybe the most famous opera hall in the, in the world, Fenice. Uh, and he was in my favorite opera, The Magic Flute. And he was Zorastro, which is one of my favorite characters. And then turning to this woman sitting next to me in covered in diamonds and saying to her in English, and she was Italian, I am Zorastro's father. <laughs> <laughs> she looked at me like I was lost. <laughs> Um, and and uh, I like how you made that story about you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, yeah. Why would it? That it's. I don't know. I, I. It was. It was very. It was really touching. Let me explain. You asked, asked me what my greatest night in opera was. Let me explain something to you, Ethan. Please. At my son's bar mitzvah, I finally got the whole concept of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost being one and the same. I'm being serious. I'm sitting there. I'm watching my son uh, on the bima, maybe doing his bar mitzvah. It was the Friday night. And I'm watching the kid and I'm thinking, I'm up there with him. And I go, oh, now I get it. Now I get how Jesus and God are the same. What am I doing in a temple? <laughs> I, this is the wrong service. I got. I'm being serious. I actually thought, oh my. So, it's yeah. it's not narcissism. No, no, I didn't mean it that way. No, I, that was a, that was probably a highlight for me with the singing, getting to sing that role in that opera house. So I would agree. Um, I'm reminded by your story. I was once driving to an opera gig in a no to an audition. I was driving to one. That's what it was. I was in. T- I had a job singing in Chattanooga. And I drove before that job started. And to, uh, the, op- the the Tennessee, the oh, the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> no, 
Is that where you were saying at the Grand Ole Opry? It was the Chattanooga Opry. It was uh, the Chattanooga uh, Opry. (laughs) Anyway, I was on my way to an audition in Nashville before it started, and my car spun out on the road in the ice, and I thought I was going to die. I, I, my car just was, I was going 60 or whatever down a kind of curve. I was suddenly spinning and there was a truck near me. I could have easily been dead. And here, what I shouted, I shouted the word Jesus. <laughs> and you're still and, and I and came you're still to a stop. It must have worked. Keep the, it worked because I came to a stop, not in the middle, but on the side of the road unscathed the car still the car was banged up but it still worked it was just and then i i didn't take it as a sign or anything i just went about my heathen ways what do you miss most about the opera but if you could what do you miss well are there groupies are there groupies that's what i was gonna say i miss the groupies they were they were women usually between 75 and 82 so they have money so they have money that's good they would throw their bloomers at me, not panties, but big bloomers. <laughs> Giant underwear. It would hit you. It was like a sail on a, It was like getting hit by a sail on a boat. <laughs> you knew that you had a wild night ahead when that happened, and it happened with frequency. But now you're in makeup. You're in night makeup. So when you go out after the show, does anybody recognize you? Or do you go you in go costume? As, you, you know, I, I would just go out in full costume as like a ship captain or a general. <laughs> well, in my wig, with my great, my hairline in the opera was usually right down here, just above the eyebrows. The wig was, you know, it was just some big spectacular, like Andrew Jackson at a bar. You really, you get laid. Let me just put mm-hmm. it that way. If you, with that hair. And laughs? Are there any inadvertent laughs that you got? There are there are verdant laughs in some of his operas, actually. The verdant laughs aren't frequent. They're kind of more like uh, chuckles. But there was some of that really fun, like kind of losing it, like the the singers being aware of how weird the whole situation is. You're portraying in this production of Billy Budd, which is the a Benjamin Britten opera in Genoa. I was in a production of that, and we had a great time. Me and the other officers in these scenes. What did you play? Claggart? Trying to cra- Were you Claggart? No, Claggart? Claggart in that production was the incredible Samuel Ramey. That was the one time I got to sing with him. The great one of the great basses of the 20th century. So, and then a great, great cast, but I was one of the officers, Radcliffe, and we were just cracking each other up. We had to stand there at attention, very serious. It was like a court martial. People's lives were on the line, and we were kind of jiggling because the second we got it, we'd get off stage, we'd burst out because there was just a lot of kind of yeah, it was that kind of fun. It's interesting. I should mention that I, too, played Radcliffe uh, in women's soccer uh, in college. And uh, they didn't realize that I I wore a wig. Radcliffe. Radcliffe. And Radcliffe. A Radcliffe. 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 I, I see. Okay. I was reading, I think I told you, I got into a little Melville thing this year. So that's Billy Budd. That's Melville. And I think that that's considered his great, that with Moby Dick, that's really considered his greatest thing. So it's really worth reading. It's a Bartleby the Scrivener. Bartleby. It's Bartleby, uh, uh, Billy Budd, and Moby Dick. Those are, that's the, the, the trinity. Yeah. But isn't Bar- I haven't read Bartle, 
be since he wrote it. But isn't isn't Bartleby isn't his crime that he doesn't really say anything or do anything that he doesn't live his life? He says, I prefer not. I right. prefer not to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a great line that we all should use whenever it's appropriate. I prefer not. <laughs> but isn't that the problem in America right now? We prefer not. It's too easy to pu- push them, push ourselves away. Not my. It's not my oh, block. My That's a block away. I'm not going to get involved. I'm bringing this back to what's happening on January 6th and the hearings. Did you watch the hearings, Doctor? I watched them. They're, um, you know, the committee is doing a fabulous job, but it's so discouraging to see these crimes that these people have committed in broad daylight and that they almost got away with them. And they still might. And they still might. Ethan, you spent a night in jail? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sorry that you went through that. I did. I was arrested 10 years ago, and uh, the city ended up paying me back, I have to say, because it was a false arrest, which was eventually proven, and the city paid me for all my legal fees, and then a little bump on top of that. Little. But um, it was traumatic. It was physically traumatic, because I... I ended up with with serious back pain for the first time in my life from the from the emotional stress of it for a couple of months. It was just it was uh, it was terrorizing to see how that is run right here in New York City, right here in downtown Brooklyn, two miles away. That is like a gulag. There were there were rats. There was no airflow. There's little cartons of milk and like bologna sandwiches thrown on the floor in the middle. You know, people are treated like animals. I heard you saying they didn't read you your Miranda rights without you having to remind them that it was, it was terrifying. It was grotesque. There was a guy in my cell at one point in the middle of the night, which was by the way, it was jammed to the point where you couldn't sit down. It was really, it was inhuman, no windows. Um, at one point, some guy was having physical distress. He thought he was having either a heart attack or whatever was going on. And the guards just acted like, eh, he's just... Hmm. Dr. Hershenfeld. It's, it's, it's cruel, it's inhuman, it's cruel, and it goes on all day, every day in this country. The My takeaway from our criminal justice system is it's purely punitive, and they give you literally enough rope to hang yourself. No, figuratively enough rope to hang yourself. They won't give you, they take away your shoelaces. They, they don't give you a bed sheet. And it's yes, sir, no, sir. They cannot be more polite as they strip you of your humanity. They, they politely dehumanize you and isolate you and just wait for you to snap. Did you get that sense, Ethan, that that they act, they gaslight you, they act as though uh, they're on your side. They, they, they go through, they're like 
but but they're just waiting for you to completely lose it. They want you to I lose feel it. Like they might they might be nicer and uh, in, in D.C. I don't know because in New York there was nothing like that at all. It was. Well, simply... I booked a first class room in advance. Okay, good. By the way, how long were you actually in a? How long before the time you were I cannot comment on an ongoing criminal matter. Oh, I see. All right, well, mine was about 18 hours total, and it was the longest 18 hours of my life. And did you get claustrophobic? Yeah, I got claustrophobic. I was afraid of whoever was coming in next. It could be a violent criminal. In fact, a lot of them were violent. There was people uh, who were detoxing from heroin, puking on the floors. The whole thing is it's... uh, it's inhuman, and you, you're right. It's cruel, and it's punitive, and it's not. <clears throat> it's not about, and it's not unusual. It's not about corrections. It's not unusual. It happens all day. And you also commented the other night. I saw that it's a business, and it is a business for them. They are arresting people and getting them into the system, and then they can find them and they can keep them in the system, and it perpetuates this. Uh, yeah, we're in. A, we are in a. In, it's. We might. We might. It's a cruel, cruel country we live in. It's also in the You're best interest. Network. Go ahead, Doctor Hershenfeld. There's nothing correction about it. It's not for correction. You're right. It is a business, and one of the most graphic demonstrations of that was in my hometown a couple of years ago, in Pennsylvania, oh, yeah. where a judge was arrested because they finally figured out that he was throwing kids into the slammer for no reason whatsoever, except that these private prisons were making tons of money off of these kids' bodies. And he was an investor. The judge was getting paid. The judge was getting paid. He was in, I think he owned a piece of the prisons. Yeah, a judge for yeah. the uh, before you go, we're and Emil, we're running 15 minutes behind, so we're just about to wrap up. The thought of um, solitary confinement to me was always an abstraction. I didn't understand. Hey, I, I live in Manhattan. I'd give anything to be left alone for 23 hours. No, to, not hearing it. Everybody should experience being put in a room, a windowless room, indefinitely. Just have somebody say, maybe it's going to be a minute, maybe it's going to be five minutes. I'm not going to tell you. And see how long you can go indefinitely isolated. Why? Would you say you learned something from that experience, David? Yes. Yeah, I did. What? That uh, I'm a, that we're social animals. It's a cliche, but yeah. to, to to be cut off from other people is the most terrible. The thought of not connecting with people, as as beautiful as that sounds, to be left alone mm-hmm. when it actually happens, it is. The, the the source of all panic attacks. I, I believe that all panic attacks stem from feeling you're alone in this world. It's the ultimate panic attack. Hmm. Yeah, there's something to that. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
I wanted to, uh, before we say goodbye, I wanted to just plug something, if I may. Yes. It um, looks like Dr. Hershenfeld is ready to go. No, I'm, I'm, I'll stay here all no, night. No, I'm just, I'm just, it looked like. No, well, I, I'm just a jittery guy. Okay. So I just wanted to invite people Friday night, tomorrow night. I'm, I'm performing. It's a 930 show at the West Bank Cafe on West 42nd Street. It's a comedy show. I'm, I'm up second to last. My friend Tom Eshelman is closing the show. 9.30 show at the West Bank Cafe, and I'll put the uh, the ticket information in the chat. Um, it's it's um, it's like with dinner, so you can get dinner. It's dinner and a show. Wow. It's a late dinner, but that's it. West Bank, 9.30 p.m. tomorrow night. Nice show, and I think I will be performing as Dr. Benjamin. Plug the book. Tell us about the, the book. book. Yeah, the book is Today Is Now, and it's by my alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin, therapist, guru, life coach, life changer, world changer, healer, um, messiah, you decide. I, <laughs> uh, I didn't say it. But uh, anyway, Today Is Now is available on Amazon as a paperback, as a Kindle, as a hardcover. Get it. I'll sign it for you. And also Saturday morning, I'm going to be recording the audiobook, So it will be available soon as an audiobook. Fantastic. Today Is Now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin on Amazon, The and Evil Empire. Please get it. And I've, I've read it twice, and it has caused me to abandon 50 years of previous training. <laughs> Just sign on to this new method. That's I thought you were going to say, you read it twice. It changed your life once, and then it changed it right back. <laughs> Here's my guarantee. Buy the book. If it doesn't change your life, I will reimburse you. Thank, Thank you. you. And I'll reimburse you. Thank you. It was great to see you. I hope to Thank see you, you next week, if not Monday. Thank you both, Dr. Okay. Hershenfeld. Thank you. I don't speak Italian, but thank you. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. It's good to be back. I miss doing this show. I, I took a week off. It's good to see everybody. I feel better. I hope the same goes for the people listening. I hope you feel good listening to this. An old friend of mine is here. Emil Guillermo. Host. Yeah. How are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Let me just check in with Dan. Sure. When do you want to do the quiz, Dan? It wasn't on the schedule, so I have not fully prepared it yet. Okay. Just let me know when you're ready. Okay, very good. Good. Everything okay, Dan? Yep, no trouble. Okay. Well, this is the David Feldman Show. Please subscribe to my newsletter. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We're trying to cut down on all the emails the listeners get, especially those who attend office hours and sit in our virtual studio audience. So if you want an invitation to Friday night's office hours, go to the David Feldman Show website, hit attend office hours, and right there is the link. All you need is Zoom, and it'll take you right in to office hours, which starts every Friday night at 8 p.m. I get all these last-minute emails while office hours is going on. I didn't get a link. I didn't get, and we do send out links. 
if you didn't get the invitation, I am sorry. I want you to come to office hours. I do. If you somehow didn't get the invite, if it ended up in your junk mail or in your junk, go to my website, hit office hours, and the link will take you there. Also, if you sign up for my newsletter, which comes out Friday, included in the newsletter is the link for office hours. And you should come to office hours. You will meet better people. You will meet my listeners, and they are better than your friends, I can assure you. Plus, they disappear. You know, friends call you. They ask you to move a couch, drive you to the airport. People at office hours, they don't have your phone number. It's the perfect relationship email. Yeah, you get, I, like, I, I like office hours when I get around to them. It's perfect. Yeah, they're good. They're fun. You know, the party's going, and I think, you know what? I'm done. Goodbye. Click. You know what? I think I'll go back to the party. Click. <laughs> this is The virtual world is so much better. Nobody's in your face, like, eating cheese dip and wine and then, like, two inches, you know, the close talkers, and you got to smile as they spit food into your eye and your lips and not at office hours people keep keep a distance no close no close talkers at office hours emil guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast people for the ethical treatment of animals and he's a columnist for aldef the asian american legal defense and education fund good to see you sir yeah, good seeing you. I, I was curious, though. You didn't get arrested in Washington, D.C., did you? I cannot comment on an ongoing criminal matter. Oh, okay, all right. I, I, I didn't see any names. I thought, well, maybe they don't. I knew you were down there, but I I just figured that, uh, yeah, they, you just saw Smigel in all the news, and I thought, well, maybe David just sort of phoned it in and wasn't there. Well, I, anyway. I phoned it in, believe me. Uh, I always, whenever I'm working, I phone it in. But yeah. uh, I was there. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah, it's actually, uh, you know, I'm putting a brave face on. Mm-hmm. A year from now, it'll be funny. But yeah, right, right I, now, I it's, a, it's a, it's <laughs> not funny. <laughs> I'm laughing at it, uh, being nervous. Actually, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I, I, I got you, I got you. I, it, yeah. Have so you ever David, been arrested? Have you ever been arrested? Uh, you know, I've never been arrested, but I was listening to the, the last segment there. I have covered uh, prison uh, riots and I have done prison interviews in many, many federal prisons. Uh, San Quentin, uh, Willie Horton's place in Maryland. Um, and my first prison riot was in Texas. Uh, you know, it, it's scary. I mean, you go in there thinking, oh, I, uh, of course, Rikers, right? I've done several stories out at Rikers Island. And you, you don't realize how close you are to not being safe. You think you're safe, even with the guards, right? As a reporter, I'm there to tell the, the inmate stories. I'm there to tell the stories on the inside. And... You do not determine whether you are safe or not. It's the people you're talking to, and all they got to do is just, like, give a sign, and you're not safe. And so uh, I don't. I didn't realize that until like days, years after. You know, when I'm 
not a reporter in a penitentiary or in a prison riot situation, but you, even as a, just a regular person visiting, covering the story, you see what it's like on the inside and you know, you don't want to be there and you don't know exactly what these people are doing to either get better so they can go on the outside, go back into the real world, but you get a sense that they like it there enough because they're in control because it's their own little world. And so it does give you a little insight about inside, outside people are there who are lifers. Um, and also it tells you when you're outside that you don't want to go inside unless you have a special pass, like you were a reporter being able to look at this world. So I don't like anything about the inside. Um, and I, and I think that, as was suggested in that last segment, I don't know what the point of incarceration is if people don't get better if people aren't allowed to get better so they can participate back in real life. I think what happens is people like that world. They they're, you know, who likes that world? Yeah. Well, it's the world that they know it's a world they excel in and it's a world that they have a leg up on everyone. So who, I'm talking about the people on the inside, the inmates. Inmates you know? are the guards. Well, sometimes they're the same, right? Sometimes it's the same mindset. It's the inside world. And uh, I just like to cover it as a person outside looking in and hoping that people get it together so that the people who are the uh, criminologists and the, you know, the people who know about rehabilitation or uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that, they are doing what they can to make whatever situation we've created better. But all I hear in the last five, 10 years is, you know, privatization of, of these, you know, incarceration palaces and, you know, these kind of boondoggles where taxpayer dollars are, 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 are creating these, these places. So uh, I don't know. I, I also know that where do you think they put these places? Right. I mean, when we lived in San Francisco together, there, there, there was uh, Alcatraz right there in the middle of the bay, uh, which was kind of a, it's now a tour site. But there was a story about some guys who escaped from it. And and they were reopening up that case this week. There's a new Alcatraz story. But most of these places are in the parts of the state you don't want to go to, you know, Coalinga, uh, Soledad, you know, San Rafael, San Rafael. Yeah. Well, all right, San Rafael, San Quentin, right there. High, 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 uh, high real oh. estate. Just, but, but you know, like I said, um, you go to the Central Valley, and it's like one prison after the other. And Coalinga is out here on Highway ninety nine. Um, I didn't. I, I wish there was a better answer. You know, you, you know, you because there are a lot of advocates right now who are against putting people away, punishing people. There should be a better answer, but. You know, we can see if we look in the streets of San Francisco, sometimes letting them all out. And I'm talking about all forms of incarceration, not just prisons, but mental health facilities, letting them go and not having a place for them. I guess that's where the term halfway house comes from. You know, where do these people go as they transition back to real life? You know, people haven't really thought that out, thought that through. So anyway, could I could I respond to that? Sure, go ahead. I mean, it's it was just an impromptu yeah, thing. I, I think you judge a society by how you treat 
the most marginalized and the weakest, the neediest. You, yeah. you judge a country by how do you treat the oldest, the youngest, the frailest, and that includes our prisoners. Yeah. You, you I, I really, really you, excuse me for one second, you judge a country by its prisons and by yeah. its police, because that's where the rubber hits the road. What kind of country are you? And this is a nation of vicious animals. The way we treat prisoners, where hardcore two-thirds of men in prison have been raped, and we joke about that, we are a nation of beasts. When you look at the way we treat children in this country, the sick, the frail, and the way the police interact with our citizens and our prisons. When you go into our prisons and see those conditions, yeah. we are a despicable, brutal, venal, vicious people. No argument for me. No argument for me. I, like and, I said, uh, I've been to some of the finest penitentiaries as a, as a visitor. And uh, I did not put what they call a, you know, a, a, a real good spin on any of it. It was all bad, you know, prison riots, uh, going in to talk to people who are, you know, involved in some programs and whatnot. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I agree with you. Hey, hey, look, you don't you also, treat, excuse me for one second. You do, yeah. you, I don't care if you're Charles Manson, mm-hmm. you don't treat human beings this way. Right. We're, no, we're no better. We are better than Charles Manson. Therefore, yeah. we treat Charles Manson better than he would treat us. We, in many ways, as a people, are no better than Charles Manson. We torture. We sit idly by while prisoners are raped and killed and say nothing. Solitary confinement, my suggestion to every American is go sit in a room with no windows indefinitely. Any jury, before they make a decision, should be forced to spend a night in prison. We're a vicious, ignorant, brutal nation run by people who are far more ignorant, far more brutal, and far more vicious. And if you don't think that's true, wait. Wait to see what's coming your way. Just wait. Yeah, yeah I, uh, when I, uh, like I said, I've, I've been to Rikers and uh, I, I just couldn't, I mean, I did the story. I, I did that story when I was at NPR. Um, couldn't wait to get out. Rikers was, is an insane asylum. Yeah. By every um, measure of what, a Dickensian insane asylum is Rikers fits those standards. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. Anyway, so David, not me. Uh, I, you read about it. Well, that's never going to happen to me. It only happens to the marginalized. Um, wait, wait, coming to a theater near you, America. Should it's coming your way. Yeah, it should happen to more of those uh, January 6th types. 
even they are treat they should be treat they should not be in solitary confinement which they no, are they, yeah they're you know that's the, the the sad thing is you have the marjorie taylor greens and louis gohmertz who suddenly care about the dc jail because they're locking up the january sixers would be nice if they cared about the other 1400 inmates in that prison in that dc jail that's been notoriously riddled with rats cockroaches and abuse but louis gohmert and and marjorie taylor green only care about the white insurrectionists who are there but those white insurrectionists are being held in solitary they don't deserve that Charles Manson does not deserve, Herman Goering does not deserve to be put in solitary confinement. We're better than that, so one would think, but we're not here in America. We are a vicious, vile, despicable people who sit back and allow evil to happen in the, in the false notion that it can't happen to us coming to a theater near you, America, and you deserve it for keeping your mouth shut and thinking David, you're safe. I'm, I'm so glad your vacation really uh, served you well. I couldn't even enjoy jail because I was worried that somebody who I care about was worried about me. I, I was worried about you. I, I, was set to, I, I was with another comedy writer and I said, I can't even relax now and enjoy my panic attack because there's somebody who doesn't know where I am and I can't call this person. I can't even enjoy this. I was worried about you. I was I was trying to read in between the lines, but I'm, I'm glad you're well. I'm glad you're well. Thank you. Let's talk about hate crimes against Asians. Where is it the 40th and how long has it been? 40 years since the beating death of Vincent Chin. And I, I keep mentioning this every anniversary because it's not over. 40 years uh, since June, well, June 19th, 1982 is when he was beaten. Vincent Chin, born, he was a, a Chinese immigrant in Detroit. He was celebrating his, he was having a bachelor party. He was going to get married that uh, that week. And he was at a strip club, Fancy Pants, name of the strip club in Detroit, meets an auto worker, Ron Evans. They have a little fight, verbal fight in the bar, goes outside, and a little altercation, but nothing serious. It should have ended there. And Vincent Chin goes off to a McDonald's with his friends in a nearby suburb, Highland Park. And Ronald Evans, the auto worker, and his stepson, Michael Nitz, follow Vincent Chin. They get a baseball bat. They see Vincent Chin in the McDonald's parking lot. And then they club Vincent Chin. Or Ronald Evans takes a swing and clubs Vincent Chin unconscious. He dies. Uh, that's June 19th, 1982. And then the 19th, 20th, 21st, 22nd. On the fifth day, on the 23rd, Vincent Chin, they pull life support and he dies officially in the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. That was the hate crime that really sparked a generation of Asian American activists. But 
But here's what happened to, to Vincent Chin. I mean, uh, he, the, Ronald Ebens and, and his stepson Nitz, they go before a judge. They get to plea bargain to second degree murder. They get to plead. They plead out. This is the state murder trial in, in Michigan. They pay a fine of $3,700. Don't spend a day in jail. That's it. They get, oh, they get three years probation on top. This is for killing an Asian American in 1982. And what was going on in 82 in Detroit? 82, well, there's a lot of uh, discussion about, hey, the, the Asian auto, you know, the, the Japanese automakers are coming in. They're, they're destroying uh, the, uh, you know, the, the auto industry in America. People saw Asians. And no, no matter what Asian, even though your Vincent Chin was Chinese, uh, he was seen as bad as the Japanese automakers. And it was a just flat out xenophobia. There was that kind of tension that existed. Now, Evans to this day says it's not doesn't have anything to do with race, but that feeling of race was out there. Uh, here, here's the thing about what happened to Evans. After the, you know, he pled, pled out on the state murder trial, he had a federal hate crime trial, got 25 years, good, because they would not, the activists, uh, you know, took to the streets, they got the Justice Department involved, they had a federal hate crimes trial, and Evans got 25 years. But Evans then appealed, and they took the court, the case, out of Detroit, put it in Cincinnati, and Evans was acquitted. And that pretty much ended the criminal portion of this. He got away with murder. And what were their lives like? Evans, well, Evans' life was, well, here's the kicker. There's a civil civil case against Evans. And he, the, the, the Vincent Chin estate was awarded $1.5 million. Uh, and that was a judgment against Evans. And Evans took advantage of all the laws and skirted giving a penny to the Vincent Chin estate. To this day, they're looking for money, but what Evans did was he left the auto industry, left Detroit, went to a more favorable state for people like him, trying to avoid paying back judgments, went to Nevada, and he's lived out his life. I've talked to him twice. Uh, He says he apologizes, but if he was truly sorry, he would repay his debt to the Vincent Chin estate. He hasn't done that. And that's why this 40th anniversary is still, uh, you know, very much an open wound. You know, Vincent Chin is dead. Ron Liebens is still alive, still owes a ton of money to the Vincent Chin estate. And you see how justice works in America for people of color. And, especially people of color that people don't ordinarily think about Asian Americans, but this is a, an open wound to Asian Americans. And it's always worth whenever an anniversary comes around, it's always worth talking about, thinking about, and more so now because of the, the whole pandemic uh, scapegoating of Asian Americans, 11,000 transgressions against Asian Americans in the two and a half years of the pandemic because of, you know, Trump's scapegoating of Asians. And just, I mean, 
just uh, let's see today in Los in North Hollywood, they arrested a man who attacked a Filipino man in a ironically in a McDonald's drive through. Uh, he thought he ironically, uh, because that's where Vincent Chin was attacked. Yeah. And, right. and, and well, yeah, in a, in a McDonald's. Right. And uh, the guy said some epithets about Asian Americans and uh, punched and and beat the the Filipino guy, and he's he was arrested today. This is in North Hollywood, and no no one see. Here's the thing: no one takes these sort of. It was a it was a felony battery or felony assault that he's being charged with, and no one takes these things seriously. They 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 say, oh well, it's it's nothing. And and here's here's the other problem: sometimes not even Asian Americans the people who are victimized take it seriously because they, they know that, Hey, uh, look, I, I can deal with this. And they, they internalize this. This is, this is 40 years after Vincent Chin, the premier Asian American hate crime. So you want to talk about where we are as a society, where we, how we treat our, our people, uh, you know, our, our marginalized communities. Well, they're even more marginalized today than they were in 1982. More. More so, yeah. And a lot, a lot of times they're just totally invisible. So I like to take these five days. Every, for the last eight years, I've been pushing a sort of five days of meditation, the same amount of time that Vincent Chin was in a coma. I like to take these five days to think about where we are as a community, where we are as a society, not just Asian Americans, but everyone. And to see how far we've come, how far we have yet to go. And it's always sobering that, you know, every time we think there's progress, Oh, we have an Asian American who's vice president of the United States. Oh, we have Asian Americans in all these high places throughout, you know, industry and society. Um, and yet we still have, you know, you look at the, the, those who are less advantaged among Asian Americans and there are many, how are they treated? Uh, these immigrants of Philadelphia had a case. Yes. Just yesterday, just turn on the news. 77 year old, uh, Vietnamese man couldn't speak English out for his morning walk, gun down, gun down. They're looking for the killer. This is just in, in Philadelphia this week. And in New York, of course, there's just have been a string of these kind of uh, uh, violent incidents against Asian Americans. So the, the cloud of Vincent Chin still is over America. And the New Yorker just did a thing um, today. I just saw online, uh, you know, this is that round number anniversary where it's worth talking about wow 40 years since Vincent Chin and as I said there have there is a generation of Asian Americans who look at that and say wow you know that's what woke me up and made me an activist that a number of people who are you know criminal attorneys and attorneys and civil rights attorneys and yet you know I told the story on my um on my emilgalermo.media website uh, on Facebook, I did a storytelling show where I talked about Vincent Chin. And a lot of people come up to me and say, Emil, I, I had to look it up on Google. I didn't know who Vincent Chin was, you know? And, and this, is, this is part of the whole Juneteenth thing, right? 
People don't know what Juneteenth was about. Ironically, also, Juneteenth, the very day Vincent Shin was beaten in 1982, people don't know these coincidences of history. And there's a there's a movement now to really try to undermine attempts to try to teach this history, as well as there are attempts to try to let people know, you know, that get it part of the curriculum in public schools. But the ignorance, you know, around Vincent Chin, still amazing. People still saying Vincent who? Right. Vincent. Talk to me about the big lie. Yeah. Shea Moss. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shea Moss has been, to me. Was she, she in Georgia? Georgia election worker. Yeah. Right. Shea Moss. And, you know, because a lot of people. And her daughter, right? She had a daughter. It's Ruby Freeman. Yeah. Ruby Freeman, Lady Ruby, she has these, uh, you know, glamour fashion pop-ups that she did in Atlanta. She's an activist. She gets slurred by the president of the United States who calls her a scammer and brings her dishonor, turns her life upside down. And did Rudy. And I mean, Rudy Giuliani, if anybody should be. Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Well, look, you need someone like Rudy Giuliani on tape in his deposition to go after uh, both Ruby Freeman and Ruby's daughter, Shea Moss, who is the election worker in Georgia, because this is where you see the real racism in this January 6th thing. I mean, I, I sort of joke, I point out, hey, January 6th, the insurrectionists, there are a lot of Asians and other minorities, the Proud Boys, you know, they were kind of a semi-diverse group. But the racism in the January, whole January 6th, the whole, you know, Trump's, theft of you know the the presidency uh there you have it you know who people will say oh well come on emil they they went after rusty bowers right the the white uh speaker of the house in arizona right who you know he he was out there testifying say look i would i wouldn't do this for trump i honor the constitution but you know what gets me is that you ask rusty bowers who he would vote for he's still a republican Mm-hmm. Who he would vote for it if he would vote for Trump? Uh, Washington Post reports Rusty Bowers says he would still vote for Trump, Amazing. despite all he has said. You know the the fact that he uh, that Trump dishonored the Constitution and Bowers in his testimony was one of the white Republicans who tried to stop him. He would still vote for Trump today. That's the crazy thing. It's crazy, the dis- but then you respect somebody who plays by the rules even though he would have voted for trump he still wouldn't cheat so but does that make him more noble doesn't that make him more noble in a way a little bit i mean that's a that's a good part of what rusty bowers did but then to come back and say even to this day despite what trump did he would vote for him that's almost like that's almost as bad as all the republicans who are zipping up their lips and not saying a damn thing yeah Hey, yeah, we, we have we're, we're 15 minutes behind and and we have to wrap it up very quickly before you yeah. go. Yeah. Kevin Hart is investing in vegan fast food very quickly. Yeah. All right. Very quickly. To me, this is really a turning point in veganism in America when you have a black star mainstream appeal saying, you know what? Uh, I'm going to invest in, he not only invested in Beyond Meats, 
He's now investing in these heart houses, two fast food restaurants in L.A. that will serve plant whole food, plant based meals. And it makes sense because his audience, if they go to all the other fast food places, are killing themselves with diabetes, with all the other food related illnesses, cancer, diabetes, diabetes. Yeah. Uh, type two diabetes, uh, you you name it. The only bad thing, I mean, look, I have this thing about oil. I'm a no oil, whole food, plant based guy, and oil will still get you. But it's you know going a heart house route where he's serving vegan fast food or whole food, plant based food to his followers. It's a way of preserving his audience, right? I mean, right. that's that's the way to look at it. He's, he, I want you alive so that I can take you cradle to grave. You're right. not going to get, you know, you'll get to the grave a lot slower if you eat these vegan foods. So a turning point, a real turning point, I think. So you're because- saying, so wait a second. So you're saying McDonald's, which causes mm. cancer, obesity, diabetes, mm. and heart disease. And that's a fact. Yeah. Right. McDonald's has to keep advertising and finding new customers because they keep killing off their old ones. Because when you eat at McDonald's, you are giving yourself cancer, heart disease and diabetes exactly. and hypertension. Exactly. You're killing yourself every time you step foot inside a McDonald's. Look, they're no they're no better than the cigarette companies. Right. And and people are now wising up to this. And when um, um, mainstream celebrity like Kevin Hart tries to do this, it could be a turning point, especially if you get people in the minority communities. And I'm talking about the black community to embrace this. There's a woman who runs a restaurant in Atlanta called Slutty Vegan. And she says she's the best vegan restaurant in Atlanta. Well, you know, you might be able to get a uh, a chicken fried steak, a vegan chicken fried steak there. So slutty vegan, a shout out to you. But well, yeah, if we you have make to it have. mainstream, right? Hard house. Right. We I have. think it's a real turning point. If you're, Af- we have to wrap it up. If you're African-American, do not eat at McDonald's. Read about how they treat African-American franchise owners and oh, yeah. how they only keep African-American franchise owners underwater in poor neighborhoods. They will not allow African-Americans who own franchises to expand into wealthier neighborhoods. Do not eat at McDonald's. It causes cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. Emil Guillermo is host of the PETA podcast, People for the uh, Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. There's Professor Ann Lee. We're running behind schedule, Professor. Did you know that? There you go. Thank you. There's Hi, Professor. Hey, 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 check out my live stream, too. Uh, 2 p.m. Pacific Live. We will do oh, that. Yeah. You're, listening, you're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, we will be joined by the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Join us right now in the Zoom room by going to my website, hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right in to our Zoom room where you can participate in the conversation. We'll be back with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. (laughs) 
Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit Drives everything in sight Not sure we can stop it Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top We've lost the power to think So we shop until we drop We're surveilled and monitored While they keep us all distracted So we never notice that our data has been extracted We're living every day We're living every night In the USA of distraction All right The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living at 
neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night. A distraction We're living every day Living every night In the USA A distraction We're living every day We're living every night in the USA of distraction that's right you're listening to the David Feldman show davidfeldmanshow.com office hours every friday night at 8 p.m. Go to my website for an invitation or sign up for my newsletter. Joining us in Washington, D.C. is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is an attorney, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. The Supreme Court is wrapping up. Anything happened today? that we should care about? You know, I have devoted a huge percentage of my life to caring about the federal judiciary, in particular, the Supreme Court. But just just in the last three days, Tuesday and again Thursday, they did such an enormous disservice, both to students in schools and today to literally everyone in the United States. The first one was a church state case. Today was the big New York uh, gun case that we've uh, talked about in the past. But in both cases, it was worse than I thought. These were more extreme. Where do you want me to start? Well, let's start with Clarence. Thomas writing the majority opinion. As I understand it, here in New York City, it, it, it's a mandate. You Same way we all had to get Obamacare at one time now, we are mandated to purchase guns and carry at least three AR-15s on us at all times. Is that 
So the that's con- the next case. Oh, okay. This case just says that New York State cannot have a perfectly reasonable approach to the licensing of guns, which is to say that if you want to conceal carry in New York, you have to go and talk to somebody and convince them that you have a reason to need one. So we have two clowns associated with uh, the National Rifle Association affiliate in New York State who said, no, we don't want to do that. That infringes on our rights. So what Clarence Thomas, on his birthday today, I'd like to think that the Chief Justice didn't just do this today because it could be an add on to the celebration of, uh, of Thomas's birthday. Maybe he blew his candles out with a gun. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's truly possible. Um, basically, now, there, is, there are six or seven jurisdictions. That one of them here in Washington, because this, of course, is a phony background. I don't have real estate on the ocean. But... Uh, where you have to give a justification for some concealed carry. In Washington, they've already, even before today, a couple of years ago, decided that that was unconstitutional. But a lot of other major states, including Massachusetts, where I spend a lot of time in California, Rhode Island, they still have a requirement that if you want a concealed carry permit, you have to explain why and give a good reason. Now you don't have to give any reason. Clarence Thomas said today, in his opinion, that you shouldn't have to give a justification for the exercise of a constitutional right. And people say, well, that's true, but how do we know the Second Amendment is actually the thing that affords you an individual right to keep and bear arms. That's because there was a five to four decision uh, based here in Washington about eight years ago called Heller. And the Heller case ruled that you could have in your home a weapon for self-defense. And Justice Scalia wrote that opinion, but he said there are there may be limits. We're not saying everybody can own anything they want under any circumstances. But today we take a step away from that into an even more radical view. NBC News tonight said, well, this doesn't mean that there can't be licensing for the use of guns. I don't I don't read this case that way. I don't think that's at all clear. I think that if you can't, for example, license a person to uh, speak, uh, print a book, publish a magazine, then maybe the next case, because I know these right-wingers, I know so many of them. I know the guy who brought the Keller case. I know when we get when we get to earlier this week, all these people, they're their minds are constantly making noise, grinding, trying to figure out the next vulnerability. And the next one here would be to say, come to think of it, if you can't require someone to explain why they want to exercise a right, why can you force them to be licensed? Because the paranoia of the gun nuts in this country is so high. They think if you have a license, What does that mean? You have to put your name somewhere. There'll be a list. And then the police or the military or Beto O'Rourke will be able to come to your house, find you, and know exactly what weapons you possess. So they're not going to be satisfied. They're exuberant today about this decision, but they're not going to stop there. And this means 
in New York, as your mayor, who it would not be exactly my favorite person for uh, uh, being the mayor of any city. But, you know, today he said this is basically a statement that nobody cares about New York. One of the things that Clarence Thomas said was you can't, there might be certain sensitive areas where you, um, where you might be prohibited from carrying a gun. But the only two examples he gave, ironically, were ones where the government functions. He talked specifically about polling places and courthouses isn't that amazing yeah isn't yeah because i guess that's but the the, the thought it even he didn't even mention schools as a potential example and this is a six to three decision a couple of the even well i i i cannot think of a more loathsome member of the court than uh than clarence thomas but kavanaugh and amy coney barrett they all signed on to that a couple of them wrote kind of additional commentary you know they, they were in the six to three majority but then they decided to pontificate in addition uh, to things that were um, that they had on their mind i found it so unusual that kavanaugh who of course uh, just yesterday i'm not sure that this made national news but certainly made washington post news there's a guy named nicholas roski i believe is how he pronounces his name he's the guy who was arrested outside of brett kavanaugh's house a few weeks ago and has now been charged with an attempt to assassinate a supreme court justice as a separate statute for that and when you look at what he he appeared before a a judge in Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside of Washington, just yesterday, and he pleaded not guilty. So I wondered, well, what what did he have on his person that convinced the prosecutors to charge him? This is the list of things he had. He had a Glock, which, of course, is a, a semi-automatic pistol. He had 37 rounds of ammunition, an aiming laser, a pair of padded boots, so he wouldn't make noise, a black mask, duct tape, pepper spray, and burglary tools. The only thing, at least if you listen to what Clarence Thomas was writing about today, the only thing that's inherently illegal out of all those things are the burglary tools. Right. But the guns aren't. Well, he's hunting varmints. He's hunting varmints because there's so many, I think, the prosecutor and the justice himself should have gone out and said, thank you so much. There are more rodents in Montgomery County than usual. They're all coming in from D.C., of course, because <laughs> if we don't we don't take care of our garbage here. But thanks for, for coming around and uh, taking a couple of pot shots at the rats <laughs> that are moved into the neighborhood. But, but, this, but it is astonishing. So as you and Emil were talking about uh, Ruby Freeman, uh, here is a woman whose whose life has been destroyed. There's nobody. The Supreme Court justices at their houses always have two or three security officers. These poll workers in Georgia have no security officers. And and uh, I think it was uh, 
Thomas himself today in his opinion says, you know, sometimes people think, oh, the Second Amendment, I mean, it's just esoteric. I mean, what do we care about it? Because these people live in these uh, ivory towers and the, yeah, like the Supreme Court justices live in ivory towers. They don't understand. They don't, they can't imagine the horror. I was just having dinner a couple of uh, days ago with a, a couple whose daughter lives in Manhattan. She never uses the subway. That's even now, before today. Now, when you think about this, anybody in those subway systems will be able to conceal carry. So you don't even know what you're up against. Literally what you're up against on those subways. Is that an erection? Are you glad to see me or is that a gun? Well, that's only a fetish in Japan and New York City. (laughs) But um, the other thing that Thomas says, which I found in the midst of the absurdity of this decision, possibly the stupidest thing, although it's, it's just one of many, he says there are two reasons you might have concealed weapon you might want it for self-defense the other reason you might want to commit a crime with it as if there's not a huge thing in between called people who just get pissed off and somebody says the wrong thing or they brush against them in the wrong way and they decide to pull it out they weren't planning to kill anybody but they're so angry somebody cuts them off in an intersection they get out of the car and they shoot somebody. They didn't plan it. But those, there's enormous, there are thousands of people every year killed in these acts of passion, not about somebody sleeping with your spouse, but just somebody ticks you off so much. So it's Clarence Thomas who's living in a dream world. I, I once interviewed a physicist who wrote a book about multiverses. You know, multiverses, it's an idea that there are alternative universes not dissimilar to the one where we know we're living in. And some people think if there are alternative universes, maybe one is a little bit uh, behind the times. If you could get to it, maybe we'd all be wearing powdered wigs and uh or maybe it's just a different place. Maybe New York City wouldn't have skyscrapers. It'd have jungles. But you read this thing, Thomas's opinion alone is about 90 pages long. And you realize he does live in an alternative universe where it's not that dangerous. And if it is, the way you deal with it is not to think about getting rid of guns it's just to make sure you have your own weapon so you can take care of yourself now you mentioned something as a joke doesn't this mean everybody will have to carry guns that's the next that's another next step there are four cities that i know of in the united states where you are required to own a firearm yes two of them are in georgia One of them is in Utah, and one of them is a place called, I just was reading about this today. Uh, It's it's something like Gun City, Texas. Now, people don't enforce that law, but they love it. 
and they don't repeal it and they mandate it. There was a challenge to a very similar ordinance in a place outside of Chicago that was struck down many, many years ago. These have never been litigated because nobody bothers to enforce them. But what is what would be stopping some community from saying, you know, gun ownership is darn near absolute. Therefore, everyone needs to defend themselves. And if they can't, if we they can't expect the police to come and do that, they have to be able to defend themselves. And we're going to check and make sure everyone owns one. I think the place in Illinois that don't, no longer has such a statute on the books actually had some kind of a conscientious objection provision. Like if you certify that you were against shooting people, even if they came into your yard, you wouldn't have to own the gun. But the, these six people, five of them at least, I mean, I think Justice Roberts still has a patina of sense that uh, maybe things could go too far, too fast. But these other four uh, will literally support anything, any abridgment whatsoever on the rights of the people, other than the rights that they cherish, including this largely unfettered ownership of guns. Scalia had said years ago in the Heller case, and uh, it was repeated today by uh, Justice Thomas, that there might be certain weapons that you couldn't possess as an individual. And you know, when I used to do radio with Pat Buchanan, he had a friend uh, who ran an organization called Gun Owners of America. Gun Owners of America was founded because they thought the NRA was a little too wimpy when it came to guns. They believe basically you can possess any kind of weapon at all. And maybe, maybe Clarence Thomas would draw the line at what? Battlefield nuclear weapons? You know, you can carry them when we Army has those now, battlefield nukes. Maybe kind of sawed-off machine guns? I don't know what, but I could, he did suggest maybe there was a kind of weapon that possibly could be regulated in some way. That's how extreme it is. I've gotten eight requests for money today on the internet to pass the a bill that would expand the supreme court by four people and i always write them or call them if i know people and go what are you going to do to make that happen how are you going to do this it is literally impossible to pass that piece of legislation with the current senate impossible raise money I understand how you raise money. I used to do a lot of raising money, but I tried to be honest about what you could accomplish. And it is not it is not possible to expand the United States Supreme Court today with this this Senate, Senate that won't break the filibuster and a Senate that has people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema in on the so-called democratic side of the aisle. So Go. I wanted to ask you, so I live in New York City. What happens? I want to buy a gun. Can I just go buy one now? Do I have a, do I need a concealed carry permit? How does it work? Yeah. 
Well, the, you know, the, one of the things about the Supreme Court is they're totally impractical. So they don't actually tell you, they don't tell the government what they, the lower forms of government, what they should do. But and, and the mayor and, of course, the relatively new governor of, of New York have already said they're going to pass legislation. They're going to try to fix this in some way because it is, in the, in the words of, of the governor, reprehensible what was done today. So they will try to do some things. And there are a couple of things that they've suggested or that other legislators in New York have said in the last few hours. One is they're going to try to redefine what is a sensitive area beyond the courthouses and the polling places. And they could try that. But the fact that Thomas and five other justices didn't use as an example, even schools, there is a federal law against carrying um, uh, guns around schools uh, obviously that has not been terribly effective um, maybe they could say well tightly contained modes of transportation like the subway i mean that's what they could try to do but it will immediately be challenged because the gun nuts will say wait a minute um it's those crowded subways there could have a lot of dangerous people and we better make sure that everybody has a gun to defend herself or himself. Lately, they've been plugging, of course, guns for women. Uh, it's a big growing part of all the advertising of the gun nut groups. But eventually, within a two years, I would say you'll be able to walk into a gun store. They'll be able to be gun stores on every other block and you'll be able to uh, buy your McDonald's and then stop by and get a Glock in the which, next which block. is still safer for you than a Big Mac. <laughs> it could be. It is. could be. But well, I mean, yeah. But the, I mean, they have a couple of other ideas that uh, they said, maybe before you get your license, you have to get training. Now, this is done in some states. Here's the problem with that. Most of the training statutes, when you have a state that says, well, you can we'll license you to conceal carry, but you have to go through training, is NRA type groups set up the schools to do the teaching. So, so yes, it'll be there. But I mean, I can imagine in New York, uh, you know, places burgeoning up next to the gun store and the McDonald's, uh, where their idea of teaching you how to prepare with your weapons is to show clips of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood movies and just say, just, just this is this is what you need to do. Are you feeling lucky today? Right. So um, New York State, New York State is also suing the NRA, trying to get it broken up. There, the NRA is in bankruptcy. But uh, by the way, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, yeah, they they move their technical headquarters into Texas, but they're not to allowed to. This. But didn't the court say they can't declare bankruptcy in Texas, that they have to do it in New York? Yeah, well, yes, but I I mean, again, I would love to be optimistic about this, but I don't see any way in which even if New York declares them bankrupt, they will appeal, guess to whom? To the federal courts, 
which are marginally, only marginally better in that, this part of the United States, your part of the United States, than other places. But then it has to go back to the Supreme Court. And I don't see five members of this court deciding to allow bankruptcy for the National Rifle Association in the state of New York. I just don't right. see it. By the way, we should point out that it's not the NRA. The NRA is a paid lightning rod to distract away from Smith & Wesson, yep. Six Hour, Sturm, Ruger & Company, Glock, and Kimber Manufacturing. They make 70% of all handguns in America. Stop focusing on the NRA. Go after the NRA's paymaster, which is Smith & Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm, Ruger & Company, mm. Glock, and Kimber Manufacturing. You're banging your head against the wall if you think Wayne LaPierre gives a rat's ass about you or the next school shooting. The people who do care are the CEOs of Smith & Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm, Ruger & Company, Glock, and Kimber Manufacturing. Find out if your mutual fund, if your pension fund, if your school pension fund is investing in Smith & Wesson, Six Hour, Sturm, Ruger & Company, Glock, and Kimber Manufacturing. Forget the NRA. <laughs> That's just a distraction. Yeah. Go to the source. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, as you know, when they do polls about whether people are NRA members, and then they ask them things, simple things, the things that are in this um, possibly somewhat useless proposal that's about to be passed by Congress because they gutted everything and now they're about to gut a few more provisions. But if you ask the NRA members themselves, do you think you should raise the age for possession of a semi-automatic rifle? The majority of NRA members say, sure, of course, that's reasonable. Should you do some background checks at gun shows? A lot of NRA members go to gun shows and uh, they most of, I haven't seen a number lately, but most in the past, a majority of people say, yes, you should even require background checks of NRA members that you should uh, be required to uh, have a background check if you buy your gun uh, at a gun show like they have in Virginia, a couple of miles from here every, seems like every two weeks, maybe it's every twice a year. Well, the thing to remember about NRA membership is the NRA doesn't represent its members. It represents gun manufacturers. When you buy a gun from, say, Smith & Wesson, you get an automatic membership in the National Rifle Association. Yeah. So yes, you do. Smith & Wesson, by the way, is run by Mark P. Smith, the president of Smith & Wesson. Is Mark P. Smith... And uh, look up Smith and Wesson and uh, find out who the enemy is and write to your mutual funds if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough to have a mutual fund. Find out if you're a teacher, find out where your school pension fund is going and demand, demand that you 
pull your money out of these gun manufacturers. Forget the National Rifle Association. You know, if you're in show business, you hire a manager or an agent so they can take all the heat when you say, I don't want to do this gig. That's that's Wayne LaPierre's job. He's he's there to take the heat for Smith and Wesson, Sig Sauer, Sturm, Ruger and Company, Glock and Kimber Manufacturing. Any hedge fund, any mutual fund, any investment advisor who owns stock in Smith and Wesson, Sig Sauer, Sturm, Ruger and Company, Glock and Kimber Manufacturing are your enemy. They're the enemy. No doubt about that. I mean, look, um, the these efforts are occasionally successful. One of the things that people used to do starting back in the 60s was they would buy a couple of shares in a stock in, a, in Nestle or in somebody that was doing something terrible. And uh, then they would go to the stockholders meetings and attempt to speak and to make it clear what, what their uh, investing company was doing. And there were there were occasional cases where it did make a difference and there was corporate responsibility was undertaken. But in many of them, people kind of gave that up as a tactic. This, what you're suggesting is a little different, which is to go to those pension funds that are incredibly more valuable than your individual you know, five shares of stock and try to get them to do the same thing. Make it clear we're not supporting these policies. And in fact, we're pulling our money out unless you change those policies and get with a sensible, non-extremist view of guns and the American people. Well, I've mentioned this over and over again on the show. I want to run it by you. It's an idea I had that nobody can shoot holes through. If you'll pardon right. the pun, the president of the United States, through executive order, can disbar. It's called disbarment. The, the U.S. government is a purchasing agent. We buy guns. And it's well within the right of the commander in chief of the United States military to declare if you're manufacturing weapons for the military, you cannot sell the same weapons to ordinary consumers. Make a choice. That's simple. With the stroke of a pen, as far as I can tell, you're a, a lawyer. Is there anything the Supreme Court could do to a commander in chief who says, I don't want our military buying from the same people who arm our enemy consumers? Does the commander in chief well, have that no, power? It, 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 I believe the Commander-in-Chief does have that power. Now, here's the problem. We have a Commander-in-Chief who wouldn't give that 10 seconds of thought. And number two, even if he did, it's quite possible that at least five, if not six, of the Supreme Court justices would create a new doctrine that would prevent that from being done by because somebody would sue, one of these gun manufacturers would sue, he'd go to the Supreme Court, and I have zero, zero confidence in what the court is going to do. You know, so that would set a precedent, excuse me for one second. So the court overturns that, and then that would set a precedent by which 
the federal government can no longer decide who they buy goods and services from. There can no longer be any strings attached to who they buy cloud computing from, who they buy rockets from, mm. who who they buy uh, automobiles from that mm-hmm. set cafe standards. What the the who determines what the federal government buys? Then the whole purpose of a federal government is to influence the trajectory of a con- the economy by determining what they buy and what they don't buy, since we're one third of the economy. Of course, of course. But, you know, I'm sure I've said it on this show before, the the court these days ignores its own precedents, um, puts a kibosh on all kinds of things that would otherwise make sense, comes up with this cockamamie constitutional reasoning to go and do whatever they want to do. I mean, I think, and I mean, a number of commentators today have said, look, it's now clear that this court is, it's nothing, is no interest in the constitution has just become one more political arm in this case of the Republican party. Joe Biden, remember, let, and I'm, I want to step back and say I still I'm delighted that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump or I think we'd probably all be in jail now. But he's the guy who, when Clarence Thomas was nominated to be on the Supreme Court, not only listened to Anita Hill, but refused to allow two other women to testify to precisely the same kind of sexual harassment that Anita Hill had already described. And there's a wonderful book by Jane Meyer called uh, Strange Justice. It's just about the confirmation hearing of, uh, of Clarence Thomas. I know, you know, I sat there and watched that confirmation and I read the book and I thought, why doesn't some woman in the state of Delaware decide to challenge Joe Biden in his next Senate campaign? Because it was so disgusting that he wouldn't allow these women to testify. They would have made a big difference. This, they, they had stories that were at least as powerful as those of women accusing uh, Brett uh, you know, drunk would be rapist Kavanaugh to get on the United States Supreme Court. That was Court. the year of women getting elected to the Senate and Congress. That, Anita Hill spawned was. a generation. That it was. Yeah. That it was. Well, we need women to, well, the right women to start running for office. <laughs> That's correct. Unfortunately, as we know, there was a recount uh, down there in Texas and Jessica Cisneros lost. And Nancy Pelosi now has a firm vote in the unlikely event that uh, she remains Speaker of the House. One of the things that's been going on in these hearings, which I was very skeptical about the way in which these are going to be held, but I've watched them, both of them in, in more than I had expected to in the last couple of days. They're very well orchestrated. They are, of course, orchestrated by a television producer, which Fox News finds so horrifying. But the truth is they have managed to 
do in a very short period of time what it took the Watergate committee seven months to do, which is to explain in in a reasonable chronological fashion, all the terrible things that Donald Trump has done. And instead of having every member of the select committee pontificate for a while, and then everyone ask questions, they assign the questioning to certain people, different every day. And that has made it smooth and coherent and absolutely Breathtaking. I, I now believe that it could have an effect on some of the Senate races where people like Ron Johnson, uh, who has always you know, been just a nitwit, but now he looks like he's really corrupt and it looks like the evidence is there to prove it. And in some of those tight Senate races, I'm now, after this week, I think there's starting to be a little bit of a dent in the feelings of those Republicans who used to just be kind of, we're corporate, we like it, we like to lower the taxes, but maybe they don't like to lower it if the only way you do that is to be a corrupt politician. The Republicans apparently made a mistake. They don't have Jim Jordan haranguing the committee chair and interrupting and turning it into a spectacle. The Democrats are allowed to conduct. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is a disgrace, especially for supporting Henry Cuellar over Jessica Cisneros. However, she does deserve credit for saying this is who serves on the committee and this is who doesn't. You can't have Jim Jordan on the committee because he's under investigation. He's, he's, we're investigating him. For, That's right. For, for this. So by boycotting the committee, one would like to think that the American people could be swayed. But I would assume the only people watching this are the ones who've already been swayed. Tell me about Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. He apparently claims he didn't know that one of his aides had approached no. Mike Pence with a slate of different electors. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, having hung around uh, the staff of the Senate for many, many decades, um, it is, I would say, not unusual. I would say it is absolutely 100% impossible for a staff member of a sitting senator to just do something that dramatic without telling his or her boss, this is what I'm going to do, or let me know, can I do this? You just don't operate that way if you're on the staff of a United States senator. So I think it's just one more case of Johnson lying. Johnson defeated a guy that uh, Russ Feingold, who, who I knew somewhat, and it good was man. A, a truly, truly good person. And I, I, after Johnson had been in there about three three years, I, I was talking to Russ Feingold. And I said, what has this guy actually done? And he said, nothing at all. He's a millionaire. And, of course, he was, was reelected. And and now, of course, yesterday on the show, uh, they, they ran this, uh, I, I don't want to get into uh, Triumph, the insult comic talk, but I'm Colbert last night. They did a wonderful piece where they run a footage of Johnson 
being asked this question. Did, did you know about this alternative slate of electors? And he's on the, he's on, he, he says, oh, I'm on the phone right now. And one of the journalists following behind him said, you're not on the phone. I can see your screen. Yep. Yep. So, so what do you think? We had Professor Greg Barrick, criminologist on earlier. He, he thinks uh, this is a slam dunk and that they've got Trump and <laughs> they're going to yeah. lock him up. I love Professor Greg Barak. Yeah. I, I, I hope he's right. But do you think there's any chance they're locking? Yeah. No. yeah, I do think there's some chance. And I think it is growing. And whatever is the content of not so much the documentary made by the uh, BBC guy who will it'll soon air on the discovery channel or whatever it's called the cnn parent company owns it it's the outtakes of that that i think are most interesting because that's where you might find interview pieces of interviews with his family for example where they say things they wish they hadn't said or uh, commentary, but the few pieces that have been leaked to CNN or CNN obtained it, wonder how that happened, but CNN, uh, they're pretty interesting, but they're not conclusive of the august, enormous criminality that most of us think Donald Trump was involved in. When you look at today's hearing and you look at these kind of career justice department people who were told that they should all resign whether they were told they were going to be displaced by uh, a guy who worked in the civil division of the justice department i just blocking on his name right now but the guy had had never argued a case jeffrey clark Jeffrey Clark from Harvard. Jeffrey Clark from Har- He went to Harvard. That's great. That doesn't mean you're qualified to be the attorney general. No, it means of the you're United not qualified. States. I was pointing that out. I'm serious. That automatically yeah, well, I, know, I, I, I know two people who went to Harvard Law School and might be qualified, but in general, it's just you know, it it's a luxury that most people cannot afford. But you can't. So. What Clark was saying was he's sitting there with two of his colleagues, including one who was the acting attorney general. The acting attorney general listens to Clark and he said, you know, this is nonsense. I I think he used even harsher words. We cannot do this. And Trump basically says, look, all I want you to do, and Clark said he would do this, is just say there were irregularities the Justice Department has investigated and found that there are irregularities in the voting in a number of states. That's all you need to say. And then I, the president, will just work with Republicans in the House to make sure Biden is not elected. I mean, what do you need besides that? To know that here is a president who has been informed by numerous people that there is no there there, that there is no case for uh, for fraud in any of the states that he claimed fraud was occurring. And you just say, just say it, Mr. Clark, and then I'll take care of the rest. Right. That, Nixon didn't go that, that far. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I used to talk to, to John Dean when I was on radio before he 
uh, you know, when he had just started to be willing to talk about Watergate. But he now he talks about it a lot and he makes a lot of good points about how this these sets of hearings are much better than the Watergate hearings. I was um, the pastor of a church in New Hampshire during the summer of the Watergate hearings. I was just riveted to them, watched them every day. And uh, but they were kind of a mess. It was only when the discovery was made of tapes that Richard Nixon had kept that everybody started to desert that sinking. Ship. Well, they were gathering the information in real time. As I remember reading, it was in like 1973. Yep. Yep. The This July 6th committee had a year to block the, the shooting, rehearse their lines. They're using a teleprompter. So you are a officer of the court. Is that correct, Reverend Barry W. Lynn? Uh, that is that is correct. You are a lawyer? I am. And a member of the Supreme Court Bar? That is true. When three members of the Justice Department, Jeffrey Rosen, Engel, Donahue, are brought into the Oval Office as officers of the court, as the acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, is sitting in the Oval Office and the president of the United States presents to him a plan to a criminal conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States. I believe, would this be treason or sedition? I think it's sedition. Sedition. Right in front of your eyes. Right. What is your responsibility as an, as an acting attorney general when you are being asked to participate in a crime, what is your what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to report it before they ask you to talk to a select committee sixteen months later. And yeah, look, excuse me for one second, Reverend. Before this yeah. committee adjourns, please uh, yeah. hold your hold your thought. Okay. Do you remember what yes. you were about to say? Yeah. Okay. Remember what you were about to say. Okay. And also remember, please, that you are under oath. Okay. Uh, or at least you're swearing to yourself that I'm a bastard. So is he an accessory after the fact? If, if he knew that the president of the United States, if Jeffrey A. Rosen, acting attorney general, three days before January 6th, attended a meeting where a president was hell-bent on committing sedition, you say? Yeah. And he, he didn't do anything to stop it? Is he an accessory after the fact? Uh, that's... A, I, I think he is. What I was about to say was, even if that's a stretch... What what we see happening with so many of these witnesses, important as they may be toward getting a criminal prosecution of the pre former president, they're not heroes. They are not heroes. The fact that uh, Lynn Cheney makes great speeches at the select committee does not mean she is a person who she's getting some kind of profiles and courage award, I understand. 
that she deserves and the true i mean in well no wait a minute but, no. but that's how that's did you if you read ted yeah, Sorensen's his book it was written by ted Sorensen, not jfk right a profiling courage is when a piece of human excrement <laughs> finally does something and pays a political price for doing something courageous it's 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 a movie. It's where the piece of human excrement has one come to Jesus moment and does something correct. And that's an act of courage. That's like every movie. So right. she is. It is. It is a profile and, uh, in courage as defined as by, defined by Ted Sorensen. Yes. And, but in by any other normal moral standard, if you're against women's rights, if you're you couldn't care less about the wealth disparity in this country. If you are constantly increasing military expenditures and then you do this one thing, um, you get a little, when I went to the YMCA as a young person. Easy now, we don't want to talk about your past. (laughs) There always used to be a lecture given by somebody. And they would say, you know, if you and then they would pull up a piece of paper like this and it would draw on it. And then they'd say, it, now, if you apologize, and then they would put an eraser on that line of paper and they say, but it's still there. The smudge is still there. You're not perfect. I always remembered that. That's what I feel with these guys, including that, you know, the wonderful comments by by the uh, uh, the speaker of the House in Arizona who explained he's a Mormon. He's deeply religious. He said it offended every fiber in my body to be asked to overturn a lawful election. He put my magic underwear in knots up my <laughs> the day before he had talked to the Associated Press and he said, well, if if Trump were to run again and was the nominee, I'd vote for him. OK, that ain't even a profile encouraged by the Sorensen standard. It well, just isn't. yes. Well, by the way, uh, Paul Pelosi. Mm. uh has been charged with driving under the influence of alcohol and causing injury and driving with 0.08% blood alcohol. By the way, 0.08% is still higher than his wife's approval rating. And uh, (laughs) so what are we looking at? uh, It's a misdemeanor charge, five years of probation, a minimum of five days in jail, and uh, all right, professor. Well, uh, you've go, got the professors and Mary. Do you have Marianne? Would you like to stick around and play the role of Marianne? Uh, no, I I have to get ready to go do an all day drive to New England tomorrow again but with, I do the say, with the grandkids. With the grandkids. With the grandkids. But I want to next week on this show. Uh, yes. I have some very interesting people I want to bring bring to the attention uh, a first amendment lawyer who's uh, superb and a former non-registered for selective service and in separate sections i'd like to answer this question i'd like to explore this question why do we have criminal laws on the books if we're not going 
to enforce them. And I just want to look at a couple of examples of federal criminal statutes that are rarely, if ever, enforced, but hang over the heads of people in various occupations or statuses and could be used at any time. That is bad legislating, I think. Well, whatever you want, whatever you want to do. So I'm honored to have you here. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state, which has never been more important. And he is a a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. Go to barrywlynn.com for the man's lectures, sermons, and appearances on several television shows, including Firing Line. By the way, I asked if you wanted to stay. It wasn't an invitation. Okay, good, because you projected. You thought, wait a minute, I bet he's going to Massachusetts. I mean, he hasn't been there for weeks. What are the children going to do without Grammy and Pop-Pop? They're dragging you down. I'm just telling you, Grammy... Did I tell you my joke? What joke? You've told many jokes. I Some told, of them are quite funny. I, If I knew how great grandchildren were, I would have had sex with my grandmother. <laughs> no, that's bad well, joke. I apologize. Now you, okay, now, I, I just apologize. want to remind you. I'm sorry. Before you. Before you go to this panel, sorry, um, I was I, told. I apologize. I was told on numerous occasions that the next time you came to Washington, uh, you would be taking me out to dinner. Yes. Now, without revealing whether you were or were not a part of the uh, arrests at the Capitol uh, involving Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, I do know. I didn't get an invitation. And because you would never mislead a person about going to dinner, I'd be willing to testify you weren't even here. Well, (laughs) I said I would buy you and your wife dinner in Washington, D.C. And as I was being handcuffed, the first thing I thought is I just saved two hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, there's so few vegan restaurants in Washington to charge uh, uh, whatever three into two hundred is. But uh, next time, just bring the dog with you. Yeah. It, uh, hey, by the way, you. I'm laughing, but it is an. I just for the record, I take this very seriously and. Uh, I'm laughing because I'm nervous. So I, it was yeah. a it was a horrifying experience. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Thank okay. you. Okay. Good night. Thank you. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. Only good trouble. Bye-bye. Well, let's go to Joe in Norway, and I've done some defensive eating, and then we will do our ASMR for the eyes. Joe in Norway. He'll, uh, today it's a pickle cam. Yes, uh, glad to have you back. Thank you. Glad you made it. Thank you. you. Very revitalized. You should spend more time down in D.C. Yeah, they're very, they very friendly place. Yeah, so um, the local grocery had a bunch of uh, n- nearly uh, off-the-shelf items. So they were giving me a deep discount on some old turnips and some uh, aubergine eggplant. 
even cut off the rotten parts for me. So I figured I, I might as well uh, make some pickles. All of that, uh, all right. the, the courts and the politicians are just reminding me of of um, a very pickled preserved situation. Okay. Thank you, Joe in Norway. We will watch your pickle cam. It is now time for the professors and Marianne. Professor Marianne is not with us today. I think she's traveling. So uh, I think she's on a three hour tour. The three hour tour. Yes. Let us start with uh, (laughs) Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Ann Lee. Let's start with Professor Ann Lee, who you can read over at the Daily Kos. Read her. Her handle is Annie Lee. What is on your mind today? It's good to see you and hear you. Good to see you, too. Uh, well, it was a very busy day today. And uh, I, I think um, the uh, select committee was pretty much on message today. And I think uh, all the little memes that needed to be thrown out there that, you know, people were actually paying attention. They were there all the time. It's just that uh, I, I think it uh, really hammered it home, particularly on the issue of uh, trying to get the Department of Justice and the uh, Department of Homeland Security to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in effect, seize voting machines, uh, among other horrible things. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, and I think this is, uh, I think it's about timing as well. The Supreme Court did uh, do a lot of horrible things, and you've already discussed it in the earlier segments, but I, I think it's uh, incredibly problematic relative to uh, trying to uh, delimit uh, concealed carry uh, regulations in the United States or by in reverse order, trying to say that because there is a history, a vague history of of the right to uh, to keep and bear arms, that all uh, concealed carry regulations should be voided uh, nationally is is a bit out there. And and I uh, I wrote a little thing on when you read the um, Breyer dissent, he really goes through and essentially tells uh, Clarence Thomas he's full of crap. Which it's a it's a useful decision to to read but my my big thing today is that uh there's some movement towards uh including uh anti-money laundering regulation in uh, some of the national um national legislation and it has some very strange uh sponsors and co-sponsors in the bill it's uh called the enablers act and it has uh steve cohen the the very crazy guy from uh, Tennessee. I, I think he's incredibly funny, actually. Um, and uh, 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 the, uh, uh, well, Tom Milanowski, who's uh, not quite as funny, and who's from, uh, from New Jersey, and uh, uh, Joe Uli uh, Wilson from oh, right. South Carolina. Is, uh, so there's some interesting people who are co-sponsoring it, but in effect what it does is it... Uh, it requires American banks uh, to be more circumspect about uh, uh, accountability of, to foreign money uh, relative to anti-laundering. Which, and what's more interesting is that they never paid attention before, which 
explains why all that foreign money wound up in the U.S. getting laundered. Right. So that this is, you know, and and the thing is, the you know, the horse has already escaped the barn, and undoubtedly there'll be workarounds and stuff like that. But at least um, there's some attention being paid to that. So there was a little bit of brightness on the on on one side, but on the other other hand, all these other crazy things are happening at the Supreme Court. Right. So January 6th, the Thomas ruling and money laundering. That's a good topic. Let's go to Professor Jonathan Bick, who will be with us Friday night teaching Star Trek and the Twilight Zone, but not in that order. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Twilight Zone at 11 o'clock Eastern and uh, Star Trek on Saturday. I believe it's one o'clock this Saturday. What would you like to talk about? I would also like to talk about the Supreme Court and its uh, its many doings. Um, you know, David, a uh, lot of uh, important decisions have been made uh, by the Supreme Court in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and there are nine cases left to be decided in this term. And uh, they're all going to be bad. Uh, you know, I'm putting my money on bad. So I, I'd like to talk about, I, I mean, some of your earlier guests talk about just briefly touch on the guns uh, decision that came out today. Uh, I'd like to talk about a couple of uh, different cases involving religion, freedom of religion. Uh, a case that is uh, going to be released in the next week, couple of weeks on climate change. And of course, abortion. Yeah, are they gonna, yeah, go ahead. And, and I wanted to touch on uh, how the Supreme Court is uh, being perceived by the American public. A uh, new Gallup poll was released today about uh, people's confidence in the Supreme Court as an institution. Okay. And Professor Adnan Hussein, what would you like to talk about today? Uh, well, besides just noting that uh, Afghanistan is suffering a terrible earthquake that has caused a thousand deaths and probably many more. And, uh, you know, there's not much to say other than to remark that um, a 5.9 or 6.1 um, Richter scale, uh, you know, earthquake wouldn't, you know, be so devastating if it wasn't for the fact that the country has no infrastructure despite 20 years of so-called reconstruction. Um, so it's a social disaster as much as it is, um, you know, a natural one. And of course, it's just following from a famine and the sanctioning and expropriating of Afghanistan after the U.S. pullout. So. I don't want to go too much into detail there, but it's just something to know. What I hope we might get a chance to talk about is labor actions rising in the UK, the RMT workers strike, uh, rail strikes uh, spreading dramatically one day kind of um, 
uh, strikes that they've been doing, one on Tuesday, one today, and possibly on Saturday as well. And the fact that this seems to be part of a wider public sector and other essential worker strike um, wave that is brewing in what I think will be a long, hot summer of discontent. Um, and how the government is responding or not responding appropriately. I think that's important to talk about this in terms of, uh, you know, responses to inflation, uh, which is clearly being engineered in such a way to be, uh, you know, born principally by workers uh, as a way to undermine any potential wage increase. and um, and uh, also how disappointing and pathetic the Labor uh, Party leadership, their name is the Labor Party. And they are telling front benchers, the, the Keir Starmer, the head of the uh, Labor Party, um, is telling front benchers, that is uh, shadow cabinet, uh, ministers, shadow ministers, the people who are leaders of the Labour Party and would take on ministerial positions should they form government, uh, not to join picketing by, uh, you know, striking rail workers. Astonishing. So something we should perhaps talk about. Okay, great stuff. L- let's start off with the January 6 hearings, since that's the big story. Who amongst us watched it. I was too busy talking about the hearings to watch them. So they were going on while we're doing the show. Professor Ann Lee, you you watched them. And going back to our earlier conversation, do you think it's moving? Do we have any indication whether or not it's moving the needle for people who are sympathetic to to Trump? And is it moving the needle for Merrick Garland? Is Merrick Garland finding uh, some new courage to raid the home well, of uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey Clark today? Do you think he raided well, that I, up? I think. Uh, well, I'm of the school that 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 uh, sort of saw it as uh, you know, sort of Niagara Falls, you know, slowly returns step by step. Uh, I, I think. Uh, Merrick Garland is the kind of person who doesn't really speak very much about the ongoing, you know, investigation. And I do think actually everything is falling into place. I think the real bombshells are still uh, waiting to drop. Uh, the the uh, what's it? The Alexander Holder um, uh, film, and uh, it may have one or two very serious outtakes. Uh, He's it, the documentarian but, uh, who is following the Trump family. Yeah, and and I think the what mainstream media is focusing on mainly is uh, how uh, uh, it is sort of monumentally um, <laughs> bizarre that uh, some people in the White House didn't know that the 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 film crew was running around, and that uh, it was sort of monumental ego that uh, uh, Trump Jr. described it as a legacy project for. You know, in other words, this would be, you know, the sort of uh, triumph of the will for for the you know remainder of the presidency for life. And they didn't care what they said. Wow. Um, and and so I think. So what could we could, end up seeing? Oh, I I think. Uh, well, 
Trump has already confessed. I mean, I, I think a lot of at least uh, people on the on uh, in the liberal side of media have have sort of said uh, that uh, Trump, on numerous occasions now, has essentially confessed to crimes, and I think it'll just uh, nail it down for sure. Because uh, we have now so many different little things that have they're just sort of moved into place and that Merrick Garland, all he has to do is move forward. And, and I agree that, that uh, they don't have to, uh, there doesn't have to be a criminal referral. I think everything else is beginning to fall into place and that I think things are actually well timed. Some of them are stunts. I think today's stunt to send the FBI in at 6 a.m. to uh, search uh, uh, Clark's house is just simply a stunt, but uh, but I think it does state, you know, exactly how serious they're going to be with Clark, because it seems pretty clear that they're going to squeeze him very, very hard to give up Trump or at least give up Eastman. And uh, I think we'll see, you know, there'll be indictments. It just uh, we all have to be very patient. Let it happen step by step. And, you know, because otherwise we have all these stunts going on anyway, you know, these uh um, insane false equivalencies being thrown up by the GOP. Um, there's this whole side narrative about recriminations uh, against uh, Kevin McCarthy because he didn't put uh, Jim Jordan and Matt Gates on the select committee. And so there's a lot of finger pointing that's peripheral to try and draw us away from the very key points that, are, that uh, we're getting closer to, you know, the top. And and even though there's there's some shifting of trials, like the the Proud Boys trials are being shifted into December, um, I think these there's a certain timing that's going on here. And as much as we'd all like, you know, instant gratification, I think it's going to take a little while. But the bad bad things for the Republicans are going to happen. Let me ask Professor Hussein and Professor Bick and you. If the Mueller report came out at the end of Trump's presidency and was handed over to Merrick Garland, what would have happened? Obstruction of justice charges would have happened. That's just my opinion. I, I, it seemed very clear that, that there was clearly obstruction. And we still have, in effect, the... And that's what made me think when Merrick Garland went to Ukraine that he was going there to uh, with a side mission to get more stuff from Zelensky on on Trump, which which is what I really hope was going on there. Well, that's interesting. I go on. Give us a context, well, please. Well, um Merrick Garland was uh, in in Ukraine two days ago, and uh, the the claim was that he was getting more information about war crimes prosecution and and that kind of stuff. But For I a fictitious a ICC that we don't belong to. That's right, but but it, and it, and it, on the one hand, it was meant to sort of cover Zelensky on the whole business of trying to prosecute war crimes, which was in effect a response to the fact that Americans. Uh, American um, uh, foreign fighters have been um, uh, are being held hostage by by the the Russians. And so that's even more problematic. Wait, are uh, you saying that the Biden administration is telling Zelensky 
we can give you weapons, but I need you to do me a favor. We need dirt on Trump. <laughs> this poor guy, well, this poor Zelensky can't get a break. Well, in effect, that was sort of going on. But, you know, it, it is a complex process. I mean, was it yesterday they delivered uh, medium range uh, missiles, some very good missiles? It's uh, top of the line U.S. missile systems, which will uh, put the hurt on the Russians, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your position. But uh, I, I do think that there's a side, you know, there must be a side mission there. I would assert that there's one because uh, I, I do think that probably Zelensky's held in his back pocket a whole bunch of stuff that they probably have on Trump. I do think that, that there's something going on there. But what, and, what, uh, at what point, what else do you need on Trump? I, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. Well, I, you know, considering how Trump is... Uh, you know, he's just all about the lawfare. I mean, about throwing lawyers at, at, at the problem at some at some moment, you know, there he's going. He's, he's trying. It's a war of attrition, uh, a legal war of attrition. And I think that Garland is, uh, as, as the cliche goes, keeping his powder dry. I think it's all right. going to, you know, it's all going to come down at once. Well, not at once, maybe, but it's going to build. Um, I, I do think that everyone's trying to play the politics as best they can, even though some people are incredibly inept at it. Right. Professor Bick, your thoughts on January 6th, and let's turn to the Supreme Court, if you don't mind. Yeah, so just quickly on January 6th, it was a year and a half ago, and we still uh, have not uh, charged any of the uh, major people involved with this. Um and we have the, the midterms uh, coming up in uh, less than six months. I'm not sure the Democratic Party is doing the best job they could in handling this whole thing. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm hope I, I, I want to believe that uh, what Ann Lee is saying is, is going to come to pass and that many of these people are going to be held accountable. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. I do not have a lot of confidence in Merrick Garland. He's given us no reason to believe uh, that we should have that confidence uh, so far. But maybe he's doing his job as an impartial uh, attorney general uh, and building a case, and he's going to unleash it upon uh, those who engaged in an attempted coup against the United States. Um, but again... You know, I will believe it when I see it. And, and as for Trump himself, I, I can't imagine, you know, I, I mean, what, what's been going on in New York State, uh, where they uh, seem to have mountains of evidence against them, and still they will not bring the case. And people have resigned from New York State's uh, district attorney's office because of that failure. Uh, I... I I don't know. I, I can't be overly optimistic at this point, but I hope I'm wrong. I certainly hope I'm wrong on that. Professor Hussein? Just a quick question on this. I mean, is there a statute of limitations? What is the statute of limitations on obstruction of justice? So you said, uh, you know, if it had been closer to the election, um, why can't they do this? Why haven't they done this? 
I you think know, it freezes John's point, you know, that maybe there's no real intention of doing anything very serious uh, here, because surely if there were manifest, you know, evidence of obstruction of justice that they thought was serious and actionable, why a year and a half, two years? I mean, when did the Mueller report come? It was like, what, 2019 um, or was it 2018, 2019? I mean, why can't they act on it? There's a six, and I just looked it up. I think they freeze the statute of limitations for a sitting president until after he leaves. Mm-hmm. Obstruction of justice, it has six years in the state courts. Uh, and as for federal, I don't see it. But I, I don't think we're quite approaching the statute of limitations yet. Right, right. So, I mean, maybe they're just trying to time it for the midterms. <laughs> maybe maybe Merrick Garland will make appearances in, uh, you know, late September and October. I mean, you know, I, I just don't think that they're all that serious. It's really more political theater. This was a very serious legal process. Might we not have seen more action, you know, earlier? Can you hear? Well, go ahead, Professor Lee. Well, it, it does seem to me that, you know, as encouraged as we are by various things, there's always other weird contingencies that are part of it. For example, uh, uh, indicting Trump for all of those things in Georgia probably won't get too far relative to the Georgia legal system at the state level. What do you mean? But if, Well, uh, with all due respect to the uh, conservative quality of Georgia courts, don't think that even though you're going to have the district attorney of Fulton County moving forward, you have a much more conservative attorney general and a variety of other things that I think would would get all bollocked up. But the, but the reality, of course, is that that those charges can still be used at the federal and it to, to help build a federal case. So I think there are a lot of moving parts to this. Similarly, for the New York stuff that I think if you combine them all together, they make a very convincing, you know, obstruct, at least an obstruction uh, or some other kind of uh, conspiracy. And I think we've, we have all the pieces being, you know, put into play. I, I think there's enough being put into place already. It's certainly clear that some career prosecutors say that there's enough to, to at least charge Trump, if not convict him. How much do you have to factor in, if you're Merrick Garland, that 75 million people voted, 75 million well-armed people voted for Donald Trump? Is well, that- I don't think that I, I still think it's a rule of law issue and we still have an army that it, that's uh, not completely fragmented. <laughs> and it's right. really, really awful to think in those terms. But ultimately, uh, relative to January 6th, you know, if if. If the uh, if the armed forces had been a little bit more iffy, <laughs> things could have been different. And the Republican part, we purposely keep Republicans off this show. There are no honest Republicans left. They're not welcome on this show. <laughs> Try to read their tiny little minds. If you're Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy. Are they secretly rooting for Merrick Garland? They do one thing and say another. Don't they secretly wish Trump would go away? Don't they? Would they be upset if he were locked up? 
wouldn't that free up Ron DeSantis and some new nut jobs? Suppose so. All right, let's talk about guns, something more cheerful. Oh, boy. <laughs> Professor Bick? Yeah, so I'll just say um, regarding the ruling today in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. versus Bruin, uh, the Supreme Court invalidated a New York State law that is century, that's a century old. Uh, it placed restrictions on concealed carry of firearms in public. The law required those applying for permits to carry guns outside the home to demonstrate proper cause to do so. And the, the Supreme Court said, you don't need to show proper cause. You can do it any reason you want. Uh, the court's ruling is likely to imperil gun control laws in other states and undermine local lawmakers' ability to combat mass shootings, which have taken hundreds of lives so far this year, not to mention uh, guns generally that have taken uh, uh, thousands of people's lives so far. Hmm. Uh, the court is making regulation of the ownership of guns at the federal, state, and local level increasingly more difficult. And this is in the face of majority support for substantial gun control measures. I mean, the U.S. has tens of thousands of deaths due to guns every year, far more per capita than any other developed nation, and uh, you know, and we have this endless wave of mass shootings in the news and the Supreme Court doesn't care. They want to block people's ability to make laws to protect themselves. That's what they're doing. And, and you know, it's based on a, I was going to say radical interpretation, but it's not even uh, an honest interpretation of the Second Amendment. In, in the case uh, Heller uh, that was decided in the 90s by uh, Antonin Scalia, uh, or written by him. Uh, it was about 10 years ago, I believe. Oh, was it 10 years ago? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, there's 2008, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was the first time that the Supreme Court said that uh, owning a gun is an individual right as opposed to a right that was afforded to militias, a well-regulated militia. And uh, Scalia just said, oh, I'm going to ignore the first part of the sentence that makes up the Second Amendment. So what we have to realize is that the Supreme Court is an all-powerful institution that can to decide without regard to past precedent or for the plain language of the law and the Constitution, whatever they want. That's what it comes down to. And that is not an institution that has, should have any democratic legitimacy. You have essentially a nine-person dictatorship if they want to make it that. They can just read it the way they want and say, this is what the Constitution means. And we can afford certain people or, or certain institutions like corporations 
constitutional rights that are clearly not in the Constitution. But what are you going to do? We interpret it. And we're, and we're letting them get away with this, despite what's in the Constitution about Congress being able to preclude legislation from judicial review. The Congress doesn't do that. They have the power to do it. They don't do it. And I don't have a lot of faith in, in this uh, presidential administration to hold the court's power at bay either. Right. Marbury versus Madison. That's the problem. Which is where the court simply asserted the power to overrule acts of Congress and to be able to declare them unconstitutional and invalidate them. Uh, It just seized an enormous amount of power for itself that was not in the Constitution. Right. It's uh, almost as though the richest 1%, the oligarchs, want it that way. They don't trust our democracy. They rather have nine people deciding instead of 435 members of Congress. And it, it, it also agrees with your point, David, earlier about the, the gun industry that, uh, in effect, what what this ruling creates is a slight... Uh, jolt for the uh, uh, gun market, particularly the handgun market. This is a really a handgun ruling. And um, it's unfortunate, but that's what's going to happen. You're going to have a slight jump in that. And, uh, and unfortunately, there's snarky people like Sa- Samuel Alito, who made some side comment about how, you know, this wouldn't have affected uh, the Buffalo massacre at, at all. You know, and, and then you have the contrast that's and it, it, it is about uh, uh, things going on at the same time. That is the 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 sort of um, the the uh, uh, the gun measure in the Senate at uh, you know being being moved forward. Uh, you know, it, there's a lot of political elements to that. Aside from the wackiness of uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene trying to demanding that. Uh, uh, Mitch McConnell resign or something. It's just, you know, you have the circus still goes on, but it is all about the chaos. And I uh, preempted Adnan. So Adnan? Oh, just um, uh, perhaps uh, Prof. John will have a lot of other cases that he wants to talk about. So I don't know if this is an appropriate time to raise the larger question of the popularity of the court, the public perception of it. But it just seems to me, since you raised the whole unconstitutional nature of their acquiring these powers of judicial review uh, ever since John Marshall and the famous Marbury versus Madison decision. Um, you know, might this be an opportune time given historic unpopularity of some of its decisions that are coming out um, to really question uh, and reverse that role? Like, could there be a real political movement um, built around um, discrediting the court as a, an incredibly undemocratic institution that was never meant constitutionally to wield such incredible authority to roll back democratic legislation, like legislation that passes in Congress? Um, I think it could be a good opportunity to say that, like, 
you know, the court has really, uh, I mean, I know this has happened on the right, you know, for years because of their wanting to discredit what they saw as the so-called activist court. But in fact, actually, that is just a very, very brief period in the history of the court that really is much more characterized and marked by Plessy versus Ferguson's and, you know, other horrible decisions that are either pro-corporate or racist or anti-democratic. And um, so I think now might be a time to build some sort of a public movement politically to say, well, a lot of these decisions are illegitimate and uh, this isn't the appropriate power of the court and restrict them to, you know, a much more narrow uh, understanding of what their role is constitutionally. I I would agree with that. Um, I would say that uh, it, it does have to be a movement because I don't, see uh biden you know spear pointing this uh this type of thing or or the congress certainly uh, as barry lynn said um the senate which itself is an uh, you know anti-democratic institution uh is not going to uh, pass major reforms of the supreme court given its current composition and given the uh toleration by the Democrats of the filibuster. Um, I'll just quickly go through a couple of uh, cases that I think are particularly important and then are going to These are the eight cases that we have left. I'm not going to go through all of them. I I just want to mention three that are coming out and then uh, a couple that just came out. Uh, As far as uh, uh, freedom of religion goes and separation of church and state, uh, the uh, the court ruled a few days ago in Carson versus Macon that um, people can use state funded tuition vouchers. This is money coming from the state government. This is Maine, right? This is Maine, right? State of Maine, uh, where, where the case originated uh, for religious private schools. This is a boost to the conservative movement's larger war on public schools. You know, if they can divert state funding into getting more students in private religious schools, um, they're going to do it. And it's going to be uh, predominantly in red states, but it could happen in blue ones as well. Uh, It's a way of, again, draining funds from public schools and you know, chipping away, taking chunks out of the wall between church and state. Uh, And whatever you think of the founding fathers of this country, that's one thing they got right. They saw the destruction that was caused by mixing religion and government in the United States before the Constitution was founded, which is why God is never mentioned once in the U.S. Constitution. And... um. And why it is wise to keep it separate, right? You should not be funding private religious institutions with public dollars. That is bad for not only religion, but it's bad for government. So, uh, and it's just a uh, an area where it's going to have unending uh, uh, conflict. So it's, um, you know, they saw this in, hey, Massachusetts, right? Uh, Burning uh, people alive at the stake. 
<laughs> um, not not great policy, to say the least. So um, there's that, and then uh, we're expecting a decision in the case Kennedy versus. Bremerton School District involving a former Washington State high school football coach who lost his job for praying at the 50-yard line after games. Um, Lawyers for the coach, Joe Kennedy, argued that he should be allowed to express his faith in public, saying it is protected by the First Amendment under the free speech and free exercise clauses. The school district said it suspended Kennedy to avoid violating the establishment clause of the Constitution by appearing to endorse a particular faith. During oral arguments in April, the justices seemed sympathetic to Kennedy. So So this would be a public school. And let me ask Professor Bick. Let me ask Professor Ann Lee, Professor Adnan Hussein. You all played football in high school. Yeah, right. You're trying to you're trying to please the coach. He has a Christian prayer. Are you going to compromise how you were raised to please the coach? I would. <laughs> and I would turn you in for not praying. To me. Uh, well, Ann Lee was a linebacker, so I was not going to yes. stand up Middle, middle linebacker, that's right. What, uh, what is the trauma of forcing somebody to, to, to pray to a god they don't worship in order to uh, appease the coach? Well, I have to say that um, I encountered these sorts of situations all the time growing up as a Muslim, in especially when I lived in places like Virginia, uh, near Lynchburg, Virginia, home to the moral majority, Jerry Falwell's headquarters in Liberty University. So it was a very conservative Christian culture. Hence the name Lynchburg. uh, Yeah, yeah. Wonderful name, yes. Um, and I remember <clears throat> uh, absenting myself uh, from uh, Christmas carols, although I actually have learned quite a few of them and don't mind singing them to myself in the shower. But it was like a point of pride for me to say, hey, listen, I don't, you know, celebrate uh, Christmas and it's uh, not part of my religion. This shouldn't be a school activity that you know, I have to participate in. I mean, it's fine on other bases. I mean, if people all want to do it, that's fine, but I shouldn't be required to do it. And, you know, people actually in that time and that era, they were probably so taken aback by, you know, uh, a Muslim in their midst. And it was pre 9-11. So it was before a lot of the, you know, political sensitivity and fears of terrorism were there. So they just sort of accepted. I was just some weird person off on the side, you know, doing my own thing, doing my math problems or, you know, like whatever else, you know, I did in that era. I certainly wasn't training for the football team, but um, so that comes up a lot and it takes quite a bit of courage, I think, to say, hey, listen, this is not, you know, appropriate for everyone to be required to participate in, you know, a religious prayer or religious uh, activity in a public school. I mean, if it had been a Catholic school, of course, I wouldn't have right. had the same standing uh, to do that. But it was a public school. So I'm with Professor John that these things need to be kept separate, if only to preserve 
dissent uh, for people who don't believe in any religion and people who have different religions. There are a lot of assumptions that this is a Christian nation. Um, and that is the, you know, Sunday is uh, not a normal work day. Uh, Christmas is a public holiday. And these things are part of the secularized Christian culture that is sort of the bedrock of you know, the country, I'm not saying that those um, need to be changed, but there are a lot of assumptions that go on with people just as believing that this is a Christian country. And so that line between the secular and the sacred established church and public institutions has to be watched pretty carefully because it's very easy to just fall into this majoritarian sort of culture. Well, Unfortunately, I think the problem is, is that the right wing Christians have turned that sort of discourse into themselves as victims of this is the problem is that they have appropriated the idea of religious freedom as they should be able to have this in public institutions. And the fact that it's not allowed, they you know, make it out to be that they are victims of some kind of secular, you know, humanist uh, uh uh, suppression of their religious rights. So they, they well, look at it in a completely different way. Isn't that a bit of a cultural dodge anyway? Because the, the point is that if you have a, a not unlike school vouchers trying to, to uh, allocate public money to private schools, whether they're religious or not, isn't that a bit of double dipping anyway? Because uh, uh, in terms of the tax status for, relig- for religious schools, that that is they're being subsidized double over and, and you don't even have to talk about religion it's just frankly an economic problem uh, a problem of administrative law or public financing why wasn't that brought up in the tra- in the court case well, well yeah I, well that's why i i think that you know uh this is more of a barry lynn <laughs> question right. but it does seem to me that someone should step forward and say well okay if you're going to demand uh uh, public money in in vouchers or whatever for for private schools, particularly religious schools, then their tax status has to be reevaluated. Well, Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. In Florida last week, a Florida synagogue is announced that it was suing Ron DeSantis over his abortion bans after 15 weeks of pregnancy, saying that the Jewish religion believes in abortion and this is this law is in violation of the Establishment Clause. By the way, I'm going to get complaints about my saying that the Jewish religion believes in abortion. Long story short, the Jews believe in abortion. So uh, if the well, the, what, what you mean to say is that historically rabbis have interpreted you know, many cases in such a way that it allowed, you know, preservation. If the, of, if the mother's psychological, if the mother's yeah. psychological health is at stake, yeah. then you can get an abortion. The only reason for an abortion, one of the, well, is it for the mother's psychological state. So Jews believe in abortion, whether, and so it's the establishment clause by forcing people not to be allowed to get an abortion. But what has that been brought up in any of your classes, Professor? 
Uh, well, um, I don't teach a kind of uh, public policy and religion sort of class, mm -hmm. um, but I know that these issues about gender rights and other sorts of things do come up in courses that we teach about how one negotiates these um, kind of borderlines between, you know, public policy and, and religion. But all I can say is also that there's very similar principles in, you know, Muslim legal interpretation about prioritizing the health of the mother. Uh, that is always like the first priority. And that obviously invests a lot of of the decision in, you know, in, in their hands. And that also, um, you know, you have things that are clear that establish that um, certainly for, I can't remember the exact uh period of time, but certainly within the first three months, uh, there is no um, funeral procedure, you know, ritually established uh, for miscarried children, for example, uh, that are less than like four or five months uh, of, a, of a pregnancy. So, you know, there's a lot of precedents in some of these other religions that actually deal with law questions of law and ritual in ways that Christianity hasn't typically done. Like it just, you know, I mean, the, you know, spirit gives life and the letter killeth. Right. So there was, Paul was, you know, trying to roll back, you know, uh, Jewish uh, law um, in establishing a new direction uh, in Christian theology. So I don't feel like they wrestled with it in quite the same way as a practical concern of everyday life and in traditions where it was dealt with as a practical concern of social life they came up with accommodations like this because they're responding to social concerns and social conditions and an idea of social interest what's good for society um that could be incorporated. Whereas in this context, we have a very abstracted kind of moral principle that is very absolutist and not connected with, well, how do you work this out in the practicalities of daily life? Because it's not a religion of law and legal thinking. It's a religion of these kind of dramatic theological kinds of positions. And I think that uh, is partly also why it's, um, you know, uh, why you need you know, to kind of immunize discussions about practicalities and public policy from, you know, theological kinds of questions. Is abortion a religious issue, even though it's being fought by deeply religious people who claim to be deeply religious? Does this temple have any standing in saying you're imposing your religious beliefs on us? by outlawing abortion. Can't, can a religious organization support something like outlawing abortion without outlawing abortion being a religious issue? Uh, this is a very interesting question. I mean, we should really have, this is a great one for Reverend Barry Lynn, you know, uh, but I think what he would end up saying is um, uh, that it's not the best way to approach the issue, to try and establish a religious right to abortion. Okay, I think um, what we're this is clearly an issue about uh, how we understand uh, gender uh, gender roles and rights, uh, privacy rights, uh, rights to one's uh, body. These like have big implications. Um, and it's a question of patriarchy here. I mean, this is really what it's about. It's like who wants to control, um, you know, 
birth and uh, we connected it. The reason why the right wing is so invested in this is not just because of religion in a kind of principled, moral, ethical theology, but also, I think, um, connected very much to um, fears of decline of white populations and white dominance. And we see this in Europe, we see this in the U.S., and it's connected with this very fascistic right-wing racial nationalism. Um, That, it seems to me, is really why it's being pushed so you know, urgently now is it's very connected with the anti-immigrant, you know, it's like we don't, and this whole so-called great replacement theory, you know, it it, it preys upon, um, you know, these kinds of anxieties um, and exploits them um, in order to, uh, you know, uh, exclude racial, ethnic, uh, and cultural others on the one hand and subordinate women, you know, on the other. That's really, this is a white patriarchal kind of politics, and it's, it's very dangerous. Okay. Let's talk about money laundering, speaking of religion. <laughs> the Church of Feldo doing well, I guess, David. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's easy to circumvent the usury laws. Yeah. Oh, well, I won't talk. I... <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about my credit card bill. <laughs> but do you know that if you just speaking of usury, if you borrow $700 and leave it on your credit card for a year unattended, if you forget about it, it's $2,000. It gets turned into, if you're lucky, it gets turned into $2,000. Oh, I, the interest rates on credit cards are obscene, particularly given how low interest rates are now, uh, even though the Federal Reserve is raising them. Uh, it, it, it's out of all proportion to the risk that they take. And, you know, you can just take a look at the profits from uh, the banks that issue them and from MasterCard and Visa and American Express, et cetera. Uh, It's obscenely profitable and it is doing enormous damage to people who are not earning enough because we have suppressed wages in this country for almost half a century. If you... Whenever you go to Banana Republic or Old Navy or The Gap, they say, take out a credit card. Oh, okay. You take out a credit card, you buy, let's say, $700, and you forget that you have an Old Navy credit card. Maybe you move, maybe, right? And you wake up a year later, and it's now $2,000. You didn't buy anything more than the $700. What they do is they tack on, you don't pay it one month, they tack on interest. Now you owe $760. Now you're paying interest on $760. And then the next- compounds. It just compounds and compounds. And one day you wake up after a year, and that $700 that you- borrowed is now $2,000, to which I asked, which would be cheaper? Where would I get a better rate? From the Gambino family? If I go to the (laughs) mafia? Or Jamie Dimon 
at Chase? Who, who's giving me a better, whose VIG is less? And they can't even answer the question. When you call, they don't even train. They can't do the math. They can't explain to you what an APR is. They can't explain what the, I, I, I can't, I don't understand the math on this, but I know that. Uh, I, mean, I should say, David, rates, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I definitely prefer uh, the, the methods of collection of uh, Jamie Dimon over those of the Gambino family. But um, really? <laughs> yes. You only have there two legs. There are some legal protections for you. <laughs> Professor Lee said you only have two legs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they can find other things to break. Hey, we um, never but, bailed out the Gambino family. No, that's, well, I guess that's true, yeah. Uh, uh, but but I would also say it may even be worse than that, David, because if you don't pay the minimum amount due, I think it's at least 2% now, uh, then they can increase the uh, the the rate as well as assess late fees. So uh, right. not only are you, you know, paying an absurdly, uh, they raise it from like 18% to like 29%, or I've seen it even as high as like 35%. Uh, but if you penalty. tell them you're, I'm being serious, I'm not making a joke. If you tell them you're a military family, they'll take the 35 and lower it to 30. Well, so love, they have a heart. Love of country. <laughs> 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 uh, but worse than credit cards, even, uh, are these uh, payday loans. Which are owned by the major banks. Go Most ahead. Most of them are. Yeah. Uh, there you're paying the equivalent of hundreds of percentage uh, APRs uh, on the money you borrow. It, you see, one of the is, things I, I, I owe... Uh, you an apology, Professor Bick, because about a year and a half ago, you had brought up the idea of discussing. I was on edge, <laughs> uh, but we, we mutual we, funds, yeah, but not necessarily <laughs> mutual funds. And I apologize, <laughs> but we we need to start giving out financial advice to the listeners. Because I, I, I really agree with yes. that, David, uh, in terms of, you know, what to watch out for, how to avoid scams, uh, how not to get, uh, you know, caught in a cycle of debt. Uh, there is a lot of things that really are important that that affect people's everyday lives uh, that, that could be helpful. I agree with Helene that. Olin used to come on the show and talk about this and. Uh, and we covered it, you know, ex we had an exhaustive, but I, I realized so many people, including me, don't like to talk about my, I mean, even when I, did, somebody said when I did the last pledge episode, I watched it, I was just covered in sweat, just <laughs> mop, like, to the point where it, got, it was so painful, I began to enjoy it. But uh, I, Professor... Lee and Professor Adnan Hussein, you are well steeped in Marxist theory, and you've. Uh, do you think there's a problem on the left where we're spending, and by where I don't mean me, spending way too much time reading Marx 
and not understanding how the Federal Reserve works and how these criminals are stealing from us? Is what, what are you uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it actually points out, uh, you know, the VIG, if nothing else, uh, Marx himself uh, was very concerned about these matters. I right. think Mar- uh, Anne likes to do both. So you can <laughs> clearly <right>. do it. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have to exclude one for the other. Okay. I, I mean, That's but true. I think you're right that there are a lot of practical uh, resistance to being just victimized under capitalism that needs to, you know, happen. I mean, I feel like I lost a lot of money by you curtailing uh, Prof. John's advice, uh, you know, over the last several, you know, couple of years. I think I could have picked up some tips and made better decisions if I'd been a little bit more educated so i'm hoping that prof john will come back in because i have a retirement to want to look forward to eventually so well the feldo Um, fund have you heard about the feldo fund (laughs) (laughs) is it a new cryptocurrency it's it's it our theory is just drive into the skid we invest in (laughs) exxon mobil uh smith and wesson just armaments yes armament whatever I, you know, I, there we go. it would be fun. In fact, we talked about this. Somebody was going to do this for me to create an index fund that's pegged to evil. Whatever, like pick the, the 30. Doesn't mo- that already exist? <laughs> it's yes, called the it Dow does. Jones. <laughs> There's a conservative, a conservative mutual fund, David. Is that real? That, that, that's oh, it's like real. betting on war. That's like betting on wars. They invest in uh, uh, gun manufacturers, tobacco uh, companies, uh, 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 defense contractors. Oh, yeah. And, and how are they doing? You know, they weren't doing that well a few years Aww. ago when I heard about this. <laughs> but uh, I suspect they're doing better now. <laughs> oh, and oil, fossil fuels, big in fossil fuels. Yeah. We should we should if somebody out there knows the algorithm to create an index of 30 stocks and weight them properly like the Dow Jones. And we would pick 30 of the most evil companies (laughs) out there. We could call it uh, uh, no evil funds. (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great oh i wonder how they're doing no evil foods we should check in with them we should check in we should check in well this was great thank you all professor adnan hussein who is on the uh, i love that idea no evil funds. Who's on the Mudgeless podcast and who's on Guerrilla History? Well, my, my former uh, PhD student, um, Muhammad Abdu, has just published a really interesting book called Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances. And I'll be interviewing him shortly. So look for that on the Mudgeless. And in Guerrilla History, we had a wonderful conversation with Brandon Wolf Honeycutt about the paranoid style in American diplomacy, about U.S. relationship to Iraq and the oil industry and Iraqi nationalism. Uh, and also, we just recorded today and should be out in a week, um, a conversation about the history of the Red Hill uh, facility that's been leaking oil into 
the aquifers of uh, Oahu, the island of Oahu and poisoning the water for thousands and thousands of people uh, with Mickey from the Oahu water protectors. So we talk a little bit about that and the inspiring story of the coalition, um, the activist coalition that they put together for uh, resistance against uh, uh, the Navy and the Department of Defense. Um, there's a lot more yet to do, but it's a really great story. So uh, listen for that on Guerrilla History. How's Henry, by the way? He's doing great. I just saw him today because we recorded with Mickey and uh, he's doing well, very busy, um, keeping busy. He's out there in Russia and um, he seems to be having, you know, a great time. Well, tell him I said hello. Thank you. Professor Ann Lee, how do we read you over at the Daily Coast? Uh, I my handle over there is Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. Um, and at midnight, there'll probably be another Ukraine report. Tonight on The Daily Kos. Yep. Fantastic. And Professor Jonathan Bick, how do people contact you? And can you give us a preview of tomorrow night at office hours? Uh, well, tomorrow night I, at 11 o'clock Eastern time, I'll be doing a, uh, analysis of a, uh, twilight zone. And, uh, it is a, about a pilot in the Royal Air Corps, um, uh, that, um, has some interesting experiences. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, but I think people will, uh, will enjoy it. And, and Lane, uh, in, and Lane, well, wasn't Lane a yes, Navy, I, an Air I'm, Force cadet or something? Yes, I'm Did dedicating he, this uh, this episode to Lane. I think actually. Lane flew bombing missions over Germany during World <laughs> War II. I don't think the I timeline think, works out. For I that think one. with yeah. Lane, I, I think he's a shapeshifter. I think he's lived. Timeline works okay on the Twilight Zone. That's right. That's true. Thank you both, all three, not both. Thank you, all three. And uh, let's go to Joe in Norway on the, what I call the torture cam. What do you got there? Hey, David. Yep, I uh, chopped up all of those turnips I had and made a pickle brine with uh, onion seed and chili and garlic and uh, fenugreek. Get a nice yellow color to it and with the leftover uh, pickling brine i steamed added it to um, garlic olive oil and paprika for a steamed eggplant this will pickle overnight it's beautiful nice salad fantastic those are two good looking items yes mm-hmm. yep now joe in norway dave and pa will be teaching the creative process at office hours tomorrow and anybody in earshot should go to the YouTube feed of this show. I don't know how Dave and PA got a picture of me behind bars, but that is exactly what my cellmate looked like when I was being held. Dave, I don't know how you got the image of the guy I shared the cell with, but that I was going to ask you how your week in, uh, North Korea was. <laughs> well, look at Dave in PA. He's captured exact my view in the cell of, of my my roommate. With Captain Hook. The Captain Hook. Corrections, right? 
This is the face of corrections. The face of corrections. What are we correcting? I, like it, it says here, correct these nuts. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you a stupid question. I forgot what you ask any other types. What does ACAB stand for again? It was a cop thing, right? Yeah. What does it stand All for? All cops are bastards. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Is that a, and that's the, the opinion is, of whoever wrote that in this cell? By the that's way. an fu. Uh, that's a Feld, Feldman University shirt, right? That's uh, no, but we it's yeah, a tattoo. Well, while he got some ink while he was in the clink, and uh, he also got uh, his education by yeah. listening to. Uh, I mean, he had all the time in the world to listen to this adorable, an adorable uh, podcast, right? So, mm-hmm. so he got his fu diploma, and he got ink to prove it, and he got his hook from medical service. Well <laughs> set. What are you going to be making today for us? Um, I'm going to a birthday for a little boy uh, this this weekend, so I'm going to take this block of wood and cut it up with a bandsaw and reassemble it into a box. That you know how this like is Geppetto got Geppetto got started this way. You do realize? Um. <laughs> I, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, it is. There is a DSM number for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I'm just going to make a little box for a little boy and it's going to be a secret box for all his little boy things. Uh, so I figured a four year old, four year olds have secrets. I did. Right. And you know, our community in the chat room, they're, they're not going to say anything bad <laughs> about this. Right? Are you making a little... Why would they? Yeah, that's not our community. That they would uh, trivialize you're making a little box for a boy. Okay. Thank thank God nobody can read the chat room here in Zoom. Uh, so we'll be watching Dave and PA. And th- no, I just saw what you're looking Thank you, uh... Thank you, Joe in Norway, and your pickle. Well, before before I go, actually, I just wanted to mention there's a few things on Saturday. Yes. So uh, Prof. John will do trekking with Prof. John. I should mention Joe Classic in Norway. Joe in Norway pretty much runs office hours. So go ahead. Yes. And then, so that's at 1 o'clock with the Star Trek. And then at 3 o'clock, I'll be streaming uh, Burn Baby Burn, uh, Viking Inferno. The it's the yearly midsummer night uh, burn. We have uh, the town here. The local youth groups get together and build a gigantic. You tower did this last year, didn't you? Palace. Did, yep, stream last year. So it'll be for a few hours. So that starts at three p.m. and then at four thirty we have Valley Box showing uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Ah. Okay. No, the burn should be fun. Little, little lower than it was last year. Last year it was around 115 feet, but uh, pandemic and the cost of pallets, I think, has taken a toll on people. All right. Well, it's thank you, Joe in Norway. Yep. Let us now go to Ron Johnson territory. <laughs> Wisconsin, where Professor Harvey J.K. is standing by. He's the author of FDR and Democracy. And I'm going to guess Alan Minsky. 
I'm going to say he's at the Grove supporting Rick Caruso. Yeah, yeah. Are you Rick supporting? Caruso, yeah. See, Rick right. might come by and say hi during the show. We can have a little chat with him about how things are going. Are you at the okay. Grove? No, I mean, it looks like I'm like in Sarasota, Florida because of the fine green uh, umbrella. No, I'm in Pasadena, actually, in Old Town Pasadena. With my friends who are just, they're just real American one and real American two. Okay. Oh, hello, real Americans. Well, I can't hear you because I have my headset on, but so say David says hello. Okay, (laughs) so let's start off with Jessica Cisneros. Yeah, they they we sort of knew that result a month ago. It's a sad result. It's a very sad result. And and she really did lose, right? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, yes, I suppose. Uh, Lyndon Johnson once won an election down in that part of Texas in for Congress, and they found one outstanding precinct where he received all of the votes, and then he, he jumped ahead of his opponent. I don't think anything like that happened this time. Um, I think the, the, the nature of the corruption is in the money influencing our political system and so on. But, it's, yeah, it's a very sad result. Right. And... Um, there's a lot going on in the world politically. Didn't think we'd jump back to South Texas. I mean, by the way, I'm I'm packing a gun here. Right Good. Now. I'm hope, hoping you're packing a gun, David. Um, the shootout could break out at any moment on the set of the Feldman Show. You got you got to protect right. yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what happened on Tuesday that was important? On Tuesday uh, this week, there were no primary elections. Were there? There elections in Illinois next Tuesday. What happens next Tuesday? What? Next Tuesday in Illinois, there are a bunch of races where there are progressives. There's one, Delia Ramirez against the establishment act. Um, there's a very sort of sad circumstance where Marie Newman, who's a progressive against Sean Caston. They are going up against each other. There are a number of progressive candidates that we've endorsed who are longer shots. Are you supporting Marie Newman? Yes, we are supporting Marie Good. Newman. Yeah. And then um, we're supporting Jonathan Jackson, Jesse Jackson's kid, not Jesse Jackson Jr., uh, but another son of Jesse Jackson, down to replace Bobby Rush. Uh, he's definitely running of uh, the competitive candidates as the most progressive. And um, he was ahead of Rainbow Push. He was a Bernie Sanders surrogate. Um, and uh, but it's, you know it's a tricky race. The Rahm Emanuel establishment, of course, is not endorsing him. And you know it's a really difficult situation. This, you know Bobby Rush held the seat for decades. South side of Chicago, congressional seats a very, very potentially important seat where a lot of progressive public policy could come from there that could be very influential for very significant constituents for the progressive movement to build around and through. And, uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel and the Chicago machine has its favorite candidates down in that race. And what's very unfortunate is, is you know, the census results came in late. The districts were drawn late. There was very little runway for candidates to get going. And um, there's not a lot of engagement among the general public in these races. So we'll see what happens on Tuesday. But I'm hoping Jonathan Jackson wins down in Chicago 1, which is, again, the south side of Chicago seat. Can you hear me okay? I hope you can. It's not great. It's not great. Uh But it's okay. Sorry about that. I don't know. He sounds better than ever, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Professor. food is good. Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR and Democracy. I would assume you've been watching the hearings. No. 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 I just get a summary kind of look at it. I'm just, I, look, I, I have, 
I know they're important. I know there are a lot of people watching. I know that the Democratic Party believes this is their ticket to save their asses in November, but I'm just not watching. Right. But you cannot watch. Because but- when, when Garrett, when Garrett, when, listen, when, what's that guy's name? Uh, Garland, when Merrick Garland shows himself to be more than a putz, <laughs> then, uh, then I'll believe all this stuff matters. Right. So what are you paying attention to? Well, I've been doing, I'm doing, you know, I do a lot of other conversations. Like tonight I did a, I spent the day reviewing my knowledge of how FDR fought inflation because I did a live, I did a wow. live stream with Marianne Williamson just before I came on. Really? Yeah. This, she and I did two shows the last few weeks about FDR. So during World War II, inflation yeah. breaks out. What? During World I mean, War, we had inflation during World War II, I would assume. Oh, massive. Yeah, massive inflation. And did so they was find, it, was it war profiteering? Were they taking advantage of the country? Not like it, no, in fact, um, no, because the FDR administration was ready based on the World War I experience. He was ready and he was determined to control inflation in such a way to actually be effectively redistributing downward. So, uh, nope, they didn't. There were were those who, I mean, they made money and they came out of the war better than they probably went in even, but, but nothing like, uh, like, you know, one of the reasons that the war profiteering didn't occur, this is something people don't realize is that uh, Harry Truman chaired a committee during the World War II, which had oversight over just that problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there were a whole series of initiatives. At first, they, they spent 41 and 42 having a really hard time getting inflation under control. And in fact, it, it really looked bad. And then in late 42, they, uh, the administration, having already, they already had price controls, they had rationing, um, they were selling war bonds to pull you know, money out of the, out of the, out of the system. But what they did is they went from just having an office of price administration. They set up 5,000 small offices for price controls around the country and then recruited tens of thousands of citizens to go police the prices in stores and, and businesses. Sounds like communism. Well, I said to Marianne, I said, I know it's going to sound like Cuba and it's uh, in, in, in the past, but really was the case. And that's when inflation literally came under control. They literally controlled it. So what is inflation? Because, not, not economically. Is inflation a new way to gouge consumers? Is it real or is it corporations looking for an opportunity to raise well i think in this instance i mean it's a whole variety of things but in fact in certain cases it's it's it seems glaring but to uh to me that 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 there's got to be gouging but i'll tell you that the other the the saddest part or obvious it's not sad it's typical is that the fed is now you know imposing these they're raising the interest rates and it it's not really at, a, at an outrageous rate or anything like it was under certain time in certain times of the past, but it really is the case that they promised to raise it on a regular basis. And the fact is that 
everyone knows that when they do that, the ones who will pay will be workers who will then, you know, either be laid off because the companies are not getting, not borrowing money the way they did before to sustain production. And, uh, you know, we'll go back into a, we'll, you know, we'll face, at least working class will face a recession at this rate. To kill wages. When the real source of inflation, from what I can tell, I would assume most Americans would, maybe I'm speaking out of school here. I would assume most Americans would be okay with the high cost of food. Horrible thing to say. If If they had a place to live. That the real inflation... Is rent well? The inflation is right. There's an inflation in food, rent, fuel, and uh, well, it's across the board in some hey, ways. But yeah, inflation is, is of course price gouging, and it's related to the supply chain. It's related to the price of oil, right? All those things right now. Yeah, and there's the uh, right wing talking point excuse that uh, the money that was distributed by the government. Um, you know, gave uh, consumers too much money in their pocket. They deleveraged debt, which is all BS. Yeah, that's all BS. BS. Yes. Credit card debt is rising very rapidly right now again. And uh, so, and, and of course, the rate of increase in wages falls far below what um, inflation has been in terms of commodities. And basic commodities are being subscribed. But there's a crazy silver lining that could be terrible for us, but the silver lining is that it is, it is a fundamental break with what the neoliberal social contract was supposed to be over these last three to four decades, which was the Walmart social contract. Yeah, you got shitty wages, right? Yeah, you had no benefits, but you could rest assured you had cheap commodities in Walmart. Right. Now you don't have cheap commodities in Walmart. There is going to be incredible amounts of economic distress and a sense of vertigo um, and disorientation among uh, working class people across the country, people who live in economic precarity, the majority of the population. Now, of course, our major problem there is they're completely alienated from the electoral political system as well. They should be. But they did rally around to a degree. Bernie Sanders, economic politics. And if we can get the message out there and anchor it, hey, Harvey, do you think there's some kind of like framing device that could be used around these issues <laughs> something like the economic bill of rights yeah right. <laughs> well it's but, interesting you know, to know there's that, an opening there because yeah. again the the, the breaking well, of the neoliberal social contract well i don't know i I'm, that that's that depends on a lot because right now my bigger fear is that no, in november the democrats get walloped and then the republicans will look don't forget Barack Obama and Joe Biden were ready to make a deal. Okay, the, the Biden, the, the Obama Biden administration created the Simpson Bowles, also known as the Bowles Simpson BS Commission, and they would have cut into Social Security. They would have cut into Medicare, and I, my fear is that next two years after the election, that the Republicans will literally give Biden what he was salivating for for. 40 years of his political career, 40 years, something like that. That's my. Cuts, cutting Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, privatizing it. Yeah. And then also don't forget that all this depends on 
some kind of leadership force and the AFL-CIO had its elections and they elected the same woman to be who has been, you know, the successor to Trumpka. Liz Shuler is now the president there. She said she'd like to, she said the plan is to recruit one million new workers into the labor movement. That's peanuts. Right. Actually peanuts. Right. So it's the end of the quarter. The S&P 500, the companies start reporting their earnings. What happens if amidst all this inflation, the these corporations start reporting record earnings? Isn't that going to suggest price gouging? Isn't aren't we going to find out in a couple? That, that, well, it, who, who's going to tell the American people that they've been gouged? It's at some point it's think, you think MSNBC will. If ExxonMobil reports record profits, which they tend to yes. do whenever the price of oil goes yeah, up, right. that suggests they're passing along all, they're just doubling costs, which means they're doubling profits. If food companies have record profits, that means they're price gouging. It's that simple. Am I wrong, Alan? That seems pretty accurate, um, and th there's a lot of price gouging going out across the board. I mean, there have been some good investigative journalist reports on who've listened in on, um, you know, uh, shareholders' meetings, and um, the profits are very high for corporations, for many corporations. Yeah, I, I want to um, hear Joe Biden call them all economic royalists or whatever. I want to. I, I want to hear. I want to hear the Democrats start pointing a finger. At capital. That's, right. that's what I want. Well, for our listeners, it would behoove them to start paying attention to earnings season. Every three months, there's earnings seasons. Yeah. And what you're very on point about here, David, is, look, for, I believe for the next 18 months through the four years, we should anticipate that political economics will dominate mainstream American politics. And then it's going to be very reductive, simplistic messaging. The Republicans tend to be masters at that. Um, yeah. Really, I mean, the exploitation and what would be, you know, advantageous for the wealthy with their, with their hedging uh, as, uh, you know, interest rates go up, people with floating mortgages are crushed. Um, we have to be on top of it, too. And so we have to get ready to have to, to be able to be discursive in popular political economics, because what should be evident to everybody is if they're going to claim that rising wages produce this much turmoil, what they're admitting is that they are running a system in which nobody can get ahead anymore except the people who are already ahead. Okay. Right. So, um, again, the next 18 months to four years, expect that that will be very center. Of course, COVID pandemics and wars and global and you know, climate emergency crises will grab headlines. But I think there'll be a lot of economic turbulence. Capitalism goes through these cycles. 
it may be worse and we may never come out of it. God knows. We've stretched the neoliberal logic about as far as we can. But certainly, we'll have a lot of this. Right now, Republicans have an upper hand in the messaging. There's no space for neoliberals to move. I mean, by the way, Larry Summers, our favorite crypto bro, right? <laughs> I mean, Larry Summers has come around to supporting Ponzi schemes, right? So, you know, deregulate that market, okay, as it crashes and burns. And by the way, the crypto market can be seen a lot like the housing bubble in 07, 08. It was at the end of a boom and bust cycle, so you had the economy moving up after the Great Recession, going through Obama through the first three years of Trump. You arrive at a scheme, not unlike the housing market, where middle-class Americans believe they can make money through speculative investment. And, of course, it's a total Ponzi scheme. And are they placing bets? I've read that hedge funds have a trade going that's unseen by the government, where hedge funds are trading between each other, kind of like the collateralized debt obligations of the housing crisis. Is that what's going on with cryptocurrency? People are bet making bets on how... Short, short, short bets on it, you mean? Yeah. Um, probably, but I wouldn't know. I cannot speak to that. I don't have that information. Probably. So Jerome Powell, former hedge fund manager, now... Uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, originally appointed by Donald Trump, reappointed by Joe Biden. Big mistake. He's trying to squeeze the economy, create a recession, raise interest rates, make money expensive so that people stop buying houses. So people stop investing in businesses. He has said he's doing this to crush wages. That's not the mandate of the Federal Reserve, Professor Harvey J.K., correct? Correct. And by the way, the federal, you know, it's funny, I, I did that whole talk about uh, FDR fighting inflation. One could do similar kind of thing for Nixon fighting inflation. And uh, somewhere after post-Nixon, we handed everything over to the Federal Reserve. Have you had Richard Wolf on lately, by the way? No. But what does he have to say about this? Well, he could speak to he could speak to it. I mean, he to the this whole transfer of power and authority to the Federal Reserve or expectations. But that, it's not their job. It wasn't the takeaway like Gerald Ford had whip the buttons, whip inflation now, win, whip inflation now. <laughs> Do you remember? I remember. Yeah, reading I was it. thinking about that just the other day. Yeah. And it was a joke and it didn't work. What what right. what happened with price freezes? Nixon froze prices yeah is, and did it work i well um, hey that's, go ahead. guys is it okay if i sign off and harvey take this because harvey is authoritative on the 1970s i was a little kid and um you know i never I, liked I actually, the university I, I've, of Michigan. I've, I've, I've read yeah. two rendition yeah well enjoy your food enjoy your food yeah. and i'll be with you guys next week thank you david thank you. bye right, guys bye bye so what what is your I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure to I've seen the debate over whether or not it exceed, succeeded or not but it held I and mean, it held prices and, and wages for a while keep in mind it was a 90 day freeze I can't remember if it went longer than that but my recollection is that he came on television one night said starting tomorrow we're going to the price wage you know anybody tries to break it we'll arrest you <laughs> Good times. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, compare, you know, not bad. 
No, no. I mean, it's just a look. There's nothing. Nothing would have prevented Biden from trying to do something, getting the Democrats to do something. You know, it's just easier for him to leave it to the Fed. If, if the Fed acts, unless I've never, I don't remember any occasion where the Fed would act and the working people would be better off for it. Yeah. What caused? Actually, the- I did hear. I did hear Richard Wolf one day say to, on some show. He said, "Yeah, they ought to, you know, raise the minimum wage and and have a uh, a price freeze at the same time, something like that." Right. What caused the inflation? They said the Vietnam War caused the inflation, but yet we were able to fight a twenty-two-year war on global terror with zero inflation. Was Viet? Did I, 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 it's a good question. I, I don't know. Right. Did Roosevelt? R- Roosevelt froze. I'll say first. Thing, okay, so it, they knew going into the war because. It had already begun the, the rise in inflation because the U.S. was already revving up for defense industries, whether they went into the war or not. Also, because after the Arsenal of Democracy speech, it was obvious that the U.S. was really going to rev up its industrial production for defense, for arms and, you know, the all arms and material for war. So they instituted the Office of Price Administration. But at the early in the first part of the war, the, which is really about a, just about a year's worth of the war, had no real authority. So there were lots of, there were companies that followed the rules and regulations, but had no authority. But then if the, when it was evident, okay, evident that the inflation was going to, you know, just not stop, keep in mind, they used, first of all, they used the taxes. Most working people did not pay income tax until World War II. But there was there was so much money now in the system they taxed it, not only to reduce inflate to reduce people's capacities to buy things, but also because they needed to raise money for the war effort. So there was there were the taxes. There were also the war bonds, which was the idea of taking money out of the system and putting it into savings. And you know, eighteen dollars and seventy five cents, and you get twenty five dollars later. Oh, can I, on that note, can I just ask you, you had a bar mitzvah, right? Mm-hmm. Did you get, did you get savings bonds for your bar no, mitzvah? No, no, I was bar mitzvah in an Orthodox temple on a Monday oh. morning at 9 a.m. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. Are you serious? Yeah, it was very, it, it was oh, okay. serious. It was not a okay, party. It was not unusual in the more conservative and reformed synagogues. You know, boys often got, and girls, if they were bat mitzvah, as they call it, to receive savings bond. But, of course, our parents were all World War II vets and mothers were greatest generation mothers. So it made sense to them. This is the way you save. You buy savings bonds. Okay. Then the other, the other thing that they instituted was rationing. And the ration, you know, you got ration books. You had so many points that you could spend on, on diverse commodities because they really did set prices on commodities. And there was, you know, it was a black market and all that. But in late 42, the FDR administration decided, okay, enough is enough. And they issued a they issued hold the line orders. They had these Office of Price Administration operating around, you know, operating. And then they set up these five. Did I already mention this? Five thousand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the point was they mobilized people, basically, as, as we were saying. So. In 43 and 44, inflation came under control when they really went, if in quotes, all out on this. The, and by the way, what's really significant is 
the, the people who ran the Office of Price Administration were progressives. They came out of the New Deal era. And one woman in particular who was running the consumer division, her name was Carolyn Ware. She, she was great. She actually started, she wrote a book and she was, you know, convinced that all of this activity was to prepare for a democratic, small d, democratic economy at war's end. That there was no reason that this didn't set an example for a post-war economy. And, and, and in fact, it's in that same year that all of this is taking place in 43, when Roosevelt asked Americans what they wanted after the war and ended up deriving from their desires and projecting and proposing the Economic Bill of Rights. It's a very progressive approach to, uh, to a war effort pursued in this country. We're talking with Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR on Democracy, Take Hold of Our History. Yeah, I know you got people coming in after me. No, right? no, no, we're done. You're, oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask a rude question. This is going to come across as rude to the listeners. I can hear my father's voice. All we keep talking about is how horrible things are, and they are. All we talk about on this show is how horrible things are for the, what, 60% of Americans who can't come up with $400 for a medical emergency, for the one out of five children who live in poverty. I, I don't mean to diminish any of that, nor do I mean to uh, trivialize climate change. As a historian, the world has always been turning to shit. Is that a fair statement that it has always been? No, it's not. Okay. Okay. And I'll give you the period in which it was not turning to shit. Okay. So let's start off with the fact that 1930s, was terrible times, really hard times, undeniably hard times. But even in the midst of all that, literally in the midst of all that, massive programs, A, massive programs, and B, workers secured collective right to organize and bargain collectively with the government standing behind it, okay? World War II, a terrible time, mass, you know, and we know that, we would never want to go through that again. But it is the case that the war effort at home made life much better for a lot of people. Uh, Americans were living better in during the war period because of the ways in which the Roosevelt administration handled the war effort. Workers were organized in 19. Listen, to this in 1941, 10 million American workers were in labor unions. OK, with me. Yes, I'm, I'm taking notes. That was, that was a huge, a vast growth from 1932. In 1947, 15 million workers were in labor unions. So in the course of several years, basically like a million workers more a year were in labor unions. And that, that's, that's significant, okay? Also, um, black women who ended up in the war industry, they saw a significant rise in their, their wages, in the course of the war, the Roosevelt administration actually brought the bottom up by controlling weight prices and wages, actually brought the bottom up. So from the from the mid 30s, decidedly, say, 37, well, 38, all the way through to 1974, 
inequality in the United States, inequality decreased. So now, because of what the 30s involved, the, the New Deal, because of what the war effort involved, the post-war period, especially with the GI Bill thrown in, I mean, that was the greatest social welfare program in American history in, in, within a short period of time. You had a, the 1950s, okay, was, was seeing di- incredible growth and development in this country. We can complain about it. We know the inadequacies, but we also know that it was in the course of that because of all those black veterans who came home from the war, the civil rights movement took off in a way that it had not before. And younger African-Americans who were, who were in black colleges down South, you know, decided it was time to act. And you, you know, and then in the sixties, poverty did, was, was reduced. And, and I mean, so fifties, 60s to the early 70s. I mean, the world may even go to shit. You know, you had the war in Vietnam. I'm not making it out to have been any kind of paradise, but sure as hell, you and I grew up at a most advantageous time. And I think what really leads us to be as angry as we are is we know it didn't have to be this way. Period. We know it didn't have to be this way. And so this is worse. Well, let me review. Everything you're saying is, you know more than I do. Well, let's put it this way. Democracy was, it was a far healthier and more vibrant democracy coming out of the 30s, 40s, into the 50s. And and the proof of that was what we witnessed in the 60s. It afforded phenomenal expectations, not only because, and phenomenal expectations that led to the, Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights, voting rights, environmental protection, immigration reform. The 60s was remarkable. And it was really as a consequence of this sort of arc, this long age of Roosevelt. And then, you know, war was declared by capital. But if you. okay, so if you look at the 30s, it was the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, polio. If you were an African-American, if you were gay, if you were Latino. Look, wait a second. All I'm telling you is all I'm telling you is things developed in the 30s and the 40s to make things better. And it was decidedly because Americans elected a progressive president who, for all of his faults, right. pursued progressive initiatives and the dem- and, com- and literally brought the Democrats along to empower workers. Right. Okay. But and if you now, did bean counting, because the, the, I'm talking about, you know, we've talked on this show, you and I, about Jimmy Carter. I'm not nostal- Wait, I'm not nostalgic for life in the 30s. All I know is that what the 30s and the 40s show is it does not have to be the way it is now. That right. the Democratic Party is not the Democratic Party that I grew up believing might well create a truly social democratic America. Right. Okay. That that's, I mean, I can't be in count and tell you better or worse. Look, we're, we're living better now than people lived in the thirties. We're living longer than people live. Well, actually it's, that's under stress too. Okay. But it, it's better. Okay. It's right. better if only because dentistry is better. Right. Just for, for the sake of, us, of, for those of us who can have it. Right. For the sake of hosting a show, the Democratic, this is just 
not arguing with you. The Democratic Party was made up of inveterate racists. Yeah, you bet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Most especially, of course, the Southern Democrats. So the reason I'm asking this question is Biden versus Carter. Carter never said malaise, but he had that famous speech where he said... But Basically, he said austerity, but he said auster- austerity, which was we should have listened worse. to him. <laughs> uh, this is a capitulation. This is worse than the 70s. This is where people have just surrendered to the inevitable breakdown of our democracy. Yeah, we this didn't, is, we, this we is a consequence of nearly 50 years of what emerged in the 70s to do its damnedest to stop the long age of Roosevelt, the 30s to through the 60s. And so if a sunny-faced optimist, a Reagan, because that's what's coming next, a Reagan is going to come along and tell us we've never had it better. And, and, and Roosevelt, by the way, was a happy days are here again. He was a sunny optimist the same way Reagan was. So if you want to get elected, either. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, I think the happy days are here again may actually have been. Was that sort of a legacy of else? I everyone associates it with FDR, but it, doesn't it precede FDR, that one? Let me. You happy days. I have this vague idea that it started with. Huh, 1929 song by Milton Agger. Thank you. Yeah. Campaign song for Franklin D. Roosevelt's 32 campaign. Yeah, 32, but it, the song itself is a bit earlier. Yeah. But it was his. I, how they've used that song is beyond me. The speech, the New Deal speech was not a happy days are here again. But you do have to sell optimism if you want to get elected. You can't. Well, actually, he didn't sell optimism. He's, but it, what he sold was. What he sold, listen to me. He didn't sell optimism. He he warned. He, he he. But you know what he did? He pointed a finger at culprits. That's what he did. At the money changers. He did. And right. You don't. When's the last time Democrats ever pointed a finger at capitalists? They just put. They point all their fingers, palm up, and say, "Give me, give me, give me, give me." Give You're me. right. Right. Somebody's so, gonna so you understand what I'm <clears throat> what I'm asking you to appreciate is this. And I've been saying this on the show every time. It it's not like I ex- expect the Democrats to radically transform things, but I do expect them to make an earnest effort to make things better, not necessarily to defer. And all we've seen over and over again in the wake of that American rescue plan, was that what it's called? The American rescue plan? Is just is is division, capitulation, um, gimme, 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 basically. Okay, reassuring the corporate the corporate bosses. Right. To me, because you know, because seriously speaking, I mean, think about this. One of the I've said this before. One of the really smart, not smart. One of the dumbest things that the rich folks did in thirty four and thirty five is they went after Roosevelt. When working people loved him, okay. Now, if people nobody nobody loved Biden, but it would be the case that maybe maybe Biden should have told him to come after me, so that you know I'll 
it should have been the case that capitalists should have tried to screw him. And then maybe he would have gotten some backbone and said, hey, I got to do something. I'm nothing. I'm just fantasizing now. The point is, this is a terrible administration. And next year we can decide, assuming we aren't censored, that um, we can debate who is worse, Biden or Carter. Biden. Because Uh, Biden, Carter waited till he was no longer president to work on his post-presidency. Biden is already in his post-presidency. <laughs> Biden's the worst. Biden is... Only, only because, well, he's the worst because the crisis of democracy is even that, that much more intense. And, and his leadership is so inadequate. He's not putting cosmetic numbers on the board. Didn't you think when we were talking two, three years ago... We knew Biden was going to be a major disappointment, but we thought yeah, he sure. would, But right. didn't we think he would trick the American people into passing bullshit legislation that looked and sound better than it actually was? He can't even bullshit Congress or the Senate into passing innocuous, anodyne pieces of legislation that just look good. He's not even doing that. He's not. I mean, Obama, who we crap on passed more legislation than any president since LBJ. Well, in his Obama first... had, a, in, defense, in defense of Biden in one respect, Obama had 60 vote Senate. Briefly. Two years, right? Mm, not really, because oh, there Franken, Ted Kennedy died, and then Al Franken oh, didn't get yeah. his... He, he was in a very close election, Frank, and so he didn't get That's right. certified yeah, right, to like July. Right. It was a brief window. And it, well, let me put it this way. FDR knew damn well, just in case, make it happen in the first hundred days. Right. Okay. Obama. Better than Biden. That, Obama was better than Biden. Well. Got more done. I, I can't. I don't know. How do you compare? Ob- well, Obamacare. I, I, I mean, it's like. By now, okay. First of all, by Obamacare, not by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still something. By now, 2010, Obamacare, two year, a year and a half in, he had Obamacare going. Well, I, I you the know, stimulus I know it package. helped a lot of people. I know it helped a lot of people, but I just, I at the time I thought it was unconstitutional. What Obamacare? Yeah, I still think it's unconstitutional. It's a tax. You read what John Roberts said. It's a tax. Well, I think I think John Roberts was afraid to say otherwise. So you, you don't see any optimism for your grandson? I, actually, to tell you, that's the that's what scares me about this is that I have a grandson who is going to have to endure this, the outcome of this crap. I, I've I can hear my father's voice saying. Because I've had to say this to my kids. Yeah. And I do mean it. Yeah. It's horrible. But it's always horrible. I mean, I mean, if because how do you get out of bed in the morning if you don't say that? If you don't. Look, sun- I remember a Republican governor in this state who, though, he, he did nothing for our salaries. I do believe he actually enhanced the university budgets. 
I mean, I, 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 it's not that long ago in my life, but it's an, an age ago for young people. And these folks, I just worry that they just don't realize it doesn't have to be this way. Well, I think most young people. Oh, how'd you like this? Did you see that? Uh, what is it? They're going to absolve uh, absolve people of the student debt who went to uh, DeVry, the Art Institute. Yeah, that's right. a step, but that's illegal. Yeah. That's a that's a no, no, no. I frankly, I I thought as of. So you mean to say that they're going to bail out the people who went to the fly-by-night schools, but they're not going to pass a law banning for-profit higher education? Obama tried that. Obama tried to pass that and... I remember this. He, he. I didn't realize you had a crush on Obama. No, no. I just remember. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. I remember around. Somebody looked this up. Around 2012, 2013, yeah. Obama uh, tried to ban for-profit colleges. He banned them from making loans to veterans. He passed laws executive orders that demanded that for-profit colleges had to reveal their success rate in getting people jobs. Obama, compared to Biden, Obama was Roosevelt. I'm serious. If you look, you know... Wait, wait. (laughs) I'm serious. Wait. Compared to Biden. I know you're serious. Somebody needs to give you an enema. All right. Compared to Biden, Barack Obama. Before we go, before we go, I'm in New York next week. Let's have coffee. Yes, I can't do the show, but I can see you. Even better. Good. But just not on a Thursday. Everybody's in New York. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Because you got the show on the Thursday. How long are you in town for? Well, my daughter's getting married in Brooklyn. Really? Yeah. So we got, I got a lot of family responsibilities. We got people coming from Brit- England and everywhere else. Or I'll come to the wedding. <laughs> if you insist, I'll show up. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. When, when I'm in New York, since we can't do the Thursday, let's shoot, we'll shoot from possibly getting together after the weekend. For the divorce. When's the divorce schedule? <laughs> so, so your daughter's getting married. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, that's what they tell me. I'm happy. I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. But I, I my responsibilities are minimal in this, and uh, thankfully, but I have to be there, and we've got family to, to worry about who are coming in. And so. you got in, new in laws. You have that. That is a that is a nightmare. Meeting new in laws. What's really funny is politically that may. I mean, my daughter's not marrying anything. He's a very progressive young guy. His parents, I understand, we, we don't talk politics, but his parents are really fun people. Absolutely fun people. Because they're not progressive. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Who wants to talk? It. it sounds like that, doesn't it? <laughs> Who wants to talk to a progressive? Like a, Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR. We should do, we should do this one-on-one. Uh, we haven't done this one-on-one in a long time. Right. Hey, when's right. what's happening with Miss Counts? Is she running? Yes, she is. Big battle. I mean, the, the DSA folks are really pissed off that uh, it was a brand new district. 
she she launched the campaign and they were going to they were trying to move their the candidate they wanted for another district into this it's a very it's a it was a mess last week i was taking bullshit all over on twitter but uh okay so yeah. i i'll i'll see you but she is a she is an astor she she originally she was you know born in new york upstate new york she lived down in arizona but she's an astoria girl you know greek best greek food in the world is in astoria yeah yeah i understand it's and by the way, and my daughter and her soon-to-be husband are moving in, are moving into the district where she is. They're not moving to Astoria; they're moving to Greenpoint. Great. That great. new district is Astoria and Greenpoint, oh. and a little bit, I think, across the river in Manhattan. You're going to buy them guns. It's in New York now. Everybody has to have a gun. Is wow, it a shotgun right? wedding? Oh yeah, no, jeez. <laughs> I told you Clarence Thomas was no good, and you didn't listen to me. I did. You didn't have to persuade me of anything. <laughs> I told you that wife of his. I said, stay oh away from that, Chinny. No, I mean, you know, it's funny. We can, we can laugh. It's a good thing you're a comedian. You can make me laugh about this. Uh, it's depressing. I was talking about you the other day. Who was I talking to you? I was talking about you the other day. I was. Yeah, I can't remember. It was, I, I, was talking, I was talking about you the other day. The FBI came by. <laughs> So you should talk to David Feldman. He's a. How about the blacklist? Uh, the fifties. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, Politically correct. We'll have to change the name of that, right? Yeah. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR and Thank Democracy. You. Thank you. It's good to talk with you. And it is good. So listen, I'll, when I'm in New York, call me. I'll give you a call or I'll text you. We'll, we'll definitely. We can go to our old place. We'll go to our usual place. Yeah, I'm happy. Happy to. In fact, that would be you great. Bet. Okay. That's great. All right. I'll, I'll see you later in the week. Good news. Everybody's coming. Absolutely. Everybody's Guaranteed. Coming. Great. Thank you. Follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. And read his books. Go to wherever you buy books and buy all his books. Read all his books. Uh, the Fight for the Four Freedoms. And he has a new book coming out in the fall. Not a new book. His old book is being reissued, and it's a study of Marxist historians, which we've been talking about, and we will continue to talk about on this show. Dave and PA, did you finish? Let's see. Hang on, I'm unmuting you. Chad, there, look, you, go. there you go. Well, let's see what you now. made there. Remember, it was a block of wood that looked just like this. Now it's a box that looks just like a block of wood. Very nice. Sliding, little sliding lid. Fantastic. For all the uh, and you're gonna and, uh, mouse skulls a little boy will find and stick in his box. Mouse skulls. Yeah, you know he's a country boy. You know he's just walking around barefoot out in the woods. I got mouse skulls here in New York that I can give him. That's true. What are you That's teaching? An urban event. What are you teaching at office hours Friday? Uh, well, I, you know, I've been forty years. I've been making things that other people design. Right. And I've always, uh, it's almost playing hooky for me to make things that I design, and so. I have a lot of items that I'd like to turn into into art, pieces of machinery, odd pieces of wood. And I just want to have a session where we all talk about different ideas we have for creating things and 
and how we, what's the process for creation? Uh, when is it a burden? When is it, when does it feel like it's coming down from a muse? I like to discuss those things because it's always business for me. It's always practical for me. And, and it's a release to be able to do something artistic that doesn't matter. That, right. That's what I want to make. That's all. Yeah. Last time you were showing us how you built a staircase, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And, the process of uh, trying to figure out how to construct it. Someone else drew it and designed it, but you know, there's no indication on the drawing of how you're going to build it. And so there's a sort of a creative process. Uh, it's hard to explain that, that uh, allows where I break it down. I showed how I break it down into components that I can buy in a lumber yard. And even though the, the staircase itself was curved and uh, had twisted rail to it and all that. Um, yeah. It's just interesting uh, to look at the sausage of, yeah. of high end artisanry, you know, and it's fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's fun to talk about uh, <laughs> current events and right. And economics and anyway. Right. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Dave and PA. Beautiful. Thank Anytime. you. Thank you. Uh, Dave and PA will be at office hours Friday night. You're invited. We start at 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm there for the first 90 minutes. I take your calls. I talk about their chat is being put. Are you putting chat in the uh, in the coffin there? There you go. Uh, so <laughs> chat is getting locked up there. The first 90 minutes of office hours, I take the your calls, your suggestions. It's an opportunity for me to meet you and you to meet me as well as the other listeners. I promise you'll meet better people by coming to office hours. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern, Friday nights, and then the community takes over at 9.30. Go to my website, hit attend office hours, and you will get the link. If you're on our mailing list, you'll get the link, but sometimes some people don't get the link. So if you didn't get the link, nothing personal, just go to my website and hit attend office hours. While you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. If you sign up for my newsletter, it includes an invitation to office hours. I want to thank the people who produce this show, Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Professor Jonathan Bick, Joe in Norway, The Invisible Ninja, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman. I left somebody out. I don't think so. All right. Uh, we've got some calls. Let's take some calls. Uh, all right. Let us go to James. 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 Uh, yes. Did I have my hand up? Oh my God. I'm sorry. I'm going to lower my hand. You go ahead. Okay, James. Thank you. And Rodrigo in Mexico. How are you today? Uh, good. Uh, can I jump in or did you want to wait for someone else? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, a leftist wrote an article chiding AOC on the Daily Beast 
I hate defending AOC from bad faith attacks more because it leaves me no time to talk about my actual criticisms of AOC than because bad faith attacks are worth responding to since they usually come from the right or the FBI informants pretending to be the left. I hate the whole Latinx nonsense with a passion and many people have heard me ranting about this, but this time all of these came together in an attack from the left on the left. I will not be defending AOC's take because it's self-evidently bad, although some people may want to have it explained again. But I want to point out that the writer of the, of the article compared the best things Bernie Sanders has done this year, perhaps this entire decade, depending on who you ask, with the worst AOC taking weeks, if not months. The article doesn't just claim Sanders is an unpeachable progressive on social policy, which is a lie from someone who is aware of at least some of Bernie's bad takes on policy. It goes on to heavily imply that Bernie is always doing something awesome like debating Lindsey Graham and AOC is always doing something idiotic like that one misguided attempt to promote inclusivity for LGBTQ people with the word Latinx. What is AOC actually doing with her social media? She started a private Facebook group with 19,000 people where they explain how to sign up to organize a child care collective. She has a summer program to help kids with their homework. She's sharing information about COVID-19 and baby formula standing up for Asian Americans who are victims of hate crimes, helping people sign up for the U.S. Census, providing information to help get help for homeowners struggling in New York. She regularly posts videos, short or long, up to 90 minutes, where she explains how things actually work, you know, the thing David Feldman used to ask Mark Zabascos about. And that's not even counting when she grills conservatives in Congress. That one AOC take was bad, but this article is remarkably bad faith. You have to dig on AOC's social media posts for months to find a bad take. And the article I'm talking about consciously pretends comparing apples to oranges is fair. Either the article's author doesn't know how to look at her other social media, or he was told about this one bad take and immediately decided the one Instagram post was not only characteristic, but an average contribution. Why focus on AOC instead of Cory Booker, who last August bragged about voting with the GOP to, buy, to give Biden sorry, the money to hire 100,000 more cops? The amendment was not binding, but this is just one horrible take from quote-unquote progressives that make AOC posting a video about Latinx look completely irrelevant. Where are the leftist articles attacking male progressives or expressing disappointment on the progressives who have distanced themselves from AOC and the squad on human rights for Palestinians? Does he ever write about bad progressives that aren't AOC? Well, I was looking for that when I stumbled on a Jacobin piece where Bernie staffers are shamed for almost calling for a strike and another one on current affairs, shaming Bernie and, quote, the entire squad, end quote, for having a bad stance 
on the Ukraine aid package instead of using their six candidate six votes to force the United States to immediately begin peace negotiations because that's how nearly unanimous votes work. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times wrote a very long, allegedly nuanced article on trans people. I mention this because if she had just asked some trans people about some of the organizations she's introducing to a larger audience, she would have known they were horrible people and not just people with some slightly conservative views. I can do better, Emily can do better, but somehow Emily spent eight months researching a single article and she never discovered how horrible some of the people she describes as reasonable actually are. And finally, some good news. Strippers in Los Angeles are striking in a North Hollywood club for unsafe working conditions and have voted to unionize. Portland strippers are also organizing for better working conditions. If strippers can start unions, can you start a union? Thank you. I'll see you Friday. Thank you, Rodrigo. That's our show. I want to thank all our guests. We started the day with Professor Greg Barak. Please pick up his book, Criminology on Trump. Professor Ben Burgess, pick up Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. The Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and Ethan Hershenfeld, I don't have his book in front of me. Shoot. Uh, stream his new comedy special, Thug, Thug, Jew. Uh, Today is Now is the name of his book. Today is Now. Emil Guillermo, read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and listen to his podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, the PETA podcast. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of his appearances on television shows, radio shows, his sermons, and his writings. Thank you to Professor, Professor, Mary Ann Cummings, who is not with us today. We miss you. Professor Adnan Hussein. Listen to the Mudgeless podcast as well as Guerrilla History. Professor Jonathan Bick will be with us tomorrow at office hours teaching Star Trek and the Twilight Zone and read Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Co's. Her handle is Annie Lee. Thank you to our pickle cam, Joe in Norway, and thank you to Dave in PA. Professor Harvey JK, thank you. Read, oh, take hold of our history, FDR and democracy, fight for the four freedoms, and of course, Thomas Paine and the promise of America, which President Obama read. Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats, of America. Thank you to our Zoom audience for showing up. As always, you make this show happen. If you would like to join us in our Zoom audience, go to my website and hit attend a live taping. Or when the show is in progress, just hit pay per view. It'll take you right in. While you're over there, sign up for my newsletter, Office Hours, every Friday night at 8 p.m. I believe that covers everything. Thank you. For listening, I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. 
Gracias. Walking 13 miles on every shift with not a chair in sight. Lifting 20,000 pounds a day, that don't seem right. Saving plastic bottles to have a place to pee. Injuries in this place are the highest in the industry. Don't believe those TV ads, things ain't what they seem. Don't tell me this sweatshop has become the American dream, we need to stand together. Can't do it on our own, we need to stand together and make our presence known. We need to stand together to get the union done. We need to stand together. What side are you on? One million strong, working two shifts a day. Packing all day long while the cameras are running away. 100,000 trucks tearing up and down the roads. Delivering stuff all over the world in 40 ton loads. When did this sweatshop become the American dream? Don't believe those TV ads, things ain't what they seem. We need to stand together. Can't do it on our own. We need to stand together and make our presence known. We need to stand together and get the union done. We need to stand together. What side are you on? Call your mates, can't listen to music, gotta pack all those crates.